Howard had been acquitted on the forgery charge, while Graham had served out her full sentence at Corona. In both cases, however, Shin did bring up the reward. When he asked Ronnie if she knew about the $25,000, she bluntly answered, I think I am entitled to it. On redirect, I asked each, Are you aware that testifying in court is not a prerequisite to collecting the money? Objection. Sustained. But the point was made. The letters Susan Atkins had written to her former cellmates, Ronnie Howard, Joe Stevenson, and Kit Fletcher, were very incriminating. Although I was prepared to call a handwriting expert to testify to their authenticity, Shin, in order to save time, stipulated that Susan had written them. However, before they could be introduced in evidence, we had to arandize them, excising any references to Atkins's co-defendants. This was done in chambers, outside the presence of the jury. Canarac fought to exclude almost every line. Disgusted at his constant objections, Fitzgerald complained to Older, I don't have the rest of my life to spend here. Older, equally disgusted, told Canarac, I would suggest that you use a little more discretion and not try to clutter up the record with motions, objections, and statements, which any ten-year-old child can see are either nonsense or totally irrelevant. Yet, time and again, Canarac pointed out subtleties the other defense attorneys missed. For example, Susan had written Ronnie, When I first heard you were the informer, I wanted to slit your throat. Then I snapped that I was the real informer, and it was my throat I wanted to cut. You don't inform on yourself, Canarac argued. You confess. This implied that other people were involved. After 19 pages of argument, much of it very sophisticated, we finally edited this particular section to read, When I first heard you were the informer, I wanted to slit your throat. Then I snapped that it was my throat I wanted to cut. Canarec wanted the line, Love, 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 excluded from the Stevenson letter because it refers to Manson. The court. It sounds more like Gertrude Stein. Since the love references were among the few favorable things in Susan's letters, Shin fought to retain them, remarking, What do you want to do, make a killer out of her? Liz Sinatra on Sleigh List the Los Angeles Herald-Examiner broke the story on October 9th in an exclusive article bearing the byline of reporter William Farr. Learning the night before that the story was going to appear, Judge Older again ordered the windows of the jury bus covered so the jurors couldn't see the headlines on corner newsstands. Farr's article contained direct quotes from the Virginia Graham Statement, which we had turned over to the defense on discovery. Questioned in chambers, Farr declined to identify his source or sources. After observing that under California law he could not order the reporter to do so, Older excused Farr. It was obvious that one or more persons had violated the gag order. Older, however, did not press the issue, and there, it appeared, the matter rested. There was no indication at this time that the issue would eventually become a cause celeb and result in the jailing of Farr. Greg Jacobson was an impressive and very important witness. I had the tall, modishly dressed talent scout testify in detail to his many conversations with Manson, during which they discussed Helter Skelter, The Beatles, Revelation 9, and Manson's curious attitude toward death. Shalrok Hatami followed Jacobson to the stand to testify to his confrontation with Manson at 10,050 Shallow Drive on the afternoon of March 23, 1969. 
For the first time, the jury and the public learned that Sharon Tate had seen the man who later ordered her murder. In Rudy Altabelli, Canarac finally met his match. On direct examination, the owner of 10,050 Shallow Drive testified to his first encounter with Manson at Dennis Wilson's home, and then, in considerable detail, he described Manson's appearance at the guest house the evening before he and Sharon left for Rome. Extremely antagonistic because Altabelli had refused him permission to visit 10,050 Shallow Drive, Canarac asked, Now presently, the premises on Shallow Drive where you live are quite secure, is that correct? Answer, I hope so. Question. Do you remember having a conversation with me when I tried to get into your fortress out there? Answer. I remember your insinuations or threats. Question. What were my insinuations or threats? Answer. That we will take care of you, Mr. Altabelli. We will see about you, Mr. Altabelli. We will get the court up at your house and have the trial at your house, Mr. Altabelli. Altabelli had told Canarac that if the court ordered it, he would be glad to comply. Otherwise, no, it is a home. It is not going to be a tourist attraction or a freak show. Question. Do you respect our courts of law, Mr. Altabelli? Answer. I think more than you, Mr. Canarac. Despite defense objections, I had succeeded in getting in perhaps 95% of the testimony I'd hoped to elicit through Jacobson, Hatami, and Altabelli. With the next witness, I suddenly found myself in deep trouble. Charles Koenig took the stand to testify to finding Rosemary LaBianca's wallet in the women's restroom of the Standard Station in Silmar, where he worked. He described how, on lifting the top of the toilet tank, he'd seen the wallet wedged above the mechanism, just above the waterline. Canarac cross-examined Koenig at great length about the toilet, causing more than a few snickers among spectators and press. Then I suddenly realized what he was getting at. Canarac asked Koenig if there was a standard procedure in connection with servicing the toilets in the restroom. Koenig replied that the standard station operating manual required that the restroom be cleaned every hour. The bluing agent, which is kept in the tank of the toilet, Koenig further testified, had to be replaced whenever it ran out. How often was that, Canarac asked. As lead man or boss of the station, Koenig had not personally cleaned the restrooms, but rather had delegated the task to others. Therefore, I was able to object to this and similar questions as calling for a conclusion on Koenig's part. Fortunately, court then recessed for the day. Immediately afterward, I called LAPD with an urgent request. I wanted the detectives to locate and interview every person who had worked in this particular station between August 10, 1969, the date Linda Kasabian testified she left the wallet there, and December 10, 1969, the date Koenig found it. And I wanted them interviewed before Canarac could get to them, fearing that he might put words in their mouths. I told the officers, tell them forget what the standard station operating manual says you should do. Forget, too, what your employer might say if he found you didn't follow the instructions to the letter. Just answer truthfully. Did you, personally, at any time during your employment, change the bluing agent in that toilet? To replace the bluing agent, you had to lift the top off the tank. Had anyone done so, he would have immediately seen the wallet. If Canarac could come up with just one employee who claimed to have replaced the bluing agent during that four-month period, the defense could forcefully contend that the wallet had been planted, 
not only destroying Linda Kasabian's credibility as to all of her testimony, but implying that the prosecution was trying to frame Manson. LAPD located some, but not all, of the former employees. None had ever changed the bluing agent. Fortunately, Kanarak apparently had no better luck. Hughes had only a few questions for Koenig, but they were devastating. Question. Now, Silmar is predominantly a white area, is it not? Answer. Yeah, I guess so. Question. Silmar is not a black ghetto, is it? Answer. No. According to Linda, Manson had wanted a black to find the wallet and use the credit cards, so blacks would be blamed for the murders. My whole theory of the motive was based on this premise. Why, then, had Manson left the wallet in a white area? In point of fact, the freeway exit Manson had taken was immediately north of Pacoima, the black ghetto of the San Fernando Valley. I tried to get this in through Koenig, but defense objections kept it out, and I later had to call Sergeant Patchett to so testify. With a single witness, a service station attendant, the defense, specifically Canarek and Hughes, had almost knocked two huge holes in the prosecution's case. By now, I had narrowed down my opponents. Fitzgerald made a good appearance, but rarely scored. Shin was likable. For his first trial, Hughes was doing damn well. But it was Irving Canarek, whom most members of the press considered the trial's buffoon, who was scoring nearly all the points. Time and again, Canarek succeeded in keeping out important evidence. For example, when Stephanie Schramm took the stand, Canarek objected to her testimony regarding the murder school Manson had conducted at Barker Ranch, and Older sustained Canarek's objection. Though I disagreed with Older's ruling, there was no way I could get around it. On direct, Stephanie had testified that she and Manson returned to Spawn Ranch from San Diego in a cream-colored van on the afternoon of Friday, August 8th. On cross-examination, Fitzgerald asked her, Could you be mistaken one day? This indicated to me that Manson might still be planning to go alibi, so on redirect I brought in the traffic ticket they had been given the previous day. With the August 8th arrest report on Bruner and Good, which contained the license number of the same van, I was now ready to demolish Charlie if the defense claimed he wasn't even in Southern California at the time of the murders. Yet I had no way of knowing whether Manson might have his own surprise bombshell, which he was waiting to explode. As it happened, he had. Sergeant Gutierrez on the helter-skelter door. Duane Wolfer on the sound tests he'd conducted at the Tate residence. Gerald Friedman on the last telephone call Stephen Parent made. Roseanne Walker on Atkins's remarks about the eyeglasses. Harold True on Manson's visits to the house next to the LaBianca residence. Sergeant McKellar on Krenwinkel's attempts to avoid recognition just prior to her arrest in Mobile, Alabama. Bits and pieces, but cumulative. And eventually, I hoped, convincing. Only a few prosecution witnesses remained. And I still didn't know what the defense would be. Although the prosecution had to give the defense a list of all our witnesses, the defense had no such obligation. Earlier, Fitzgerald had told the press that he intended to call 30 witnesses, among them such celebrities as Mama Cass, John Phillips, and Beatle John Lennon, the latter to testify as to how he interpreted his own song lyrics. But that, and the rumors that Manson himself planned to testify, were the only clues to the defense. And even Manson's testifying was an iffy thing. 
In my talks with Charlie, he seemed to vacillate. Maybe I'll testify, maybe I won't. I continued to goad him, but was worried that perhaps I'd overplayed my hand. The defendants hadn't been in court since Manson's attack on the judge. The day Terry Melcher was to testify, however, Older permitted their return. Not wanting to face Manson, Terry asked me, Can't I go back in the lockup and testify through the speaker? Of all the prosecution witnesses, Melcher was the most frightened of Manson. His fear was so great, he told me, that he had been under psychiatric treatment and had employed a full-time bodyguard since December 1969. Terry, they weren't after you that night, I tried to reassure him. Manson knew you were no longer living there. Melcher was so nervous, however, that he had to be given a tranquilizer before taking the stand. Though he came over somewhat weaker than in our interviews, when he finished his testimony he told me, with evident relief, that Manson had smiled at him. Therefore, he couldn't be too unhappy with what he'd said. Canarac, probably at Manson's request, did not question Melcher. Hughes brought out that when Wilson and Manson drove Terry to the gate of 10,050 Shallow Drive that night, they probably saw him push the button. The defense could now argue that if Manson was familiar with the gate operating device, it would be unlikely he'd have the killers climb over the fence, as Linda claimed they had. By this time, I had proof that both Watson and Manson had been to 10,050 Shallow Drive on a number of occasions before the murders, but the jury would never hear it. Some months earlier, I'd learned that after Terry Melcher had moved out of the residence, but before the Polanskis had moved in, Greg Jacobson had arranged for a Dean Morehouse to stay there for a brief period. During this time, Tex Watson had visited Morehouse at least three and possibly as many as six times. In a private conversation with Fitzgerald, I told him this, and he replied that he already knew it. Though I intended to introduce this evidence during the Watson trial, I didn't want to bring it in during the current proceedings, and I was hoping that Fitzgerald wouldn't either, since it emphasized the Watson rather than the Manson link. Though I suspected that Manson had visited there also during the same period, I had no proof of this until the trial was well underway when I learned from the best possible source that Manson had been to 10,050 Shallow Drive on five or six occasions. My source was Manson himself, who admitted this to me during one of our rap sessions. Manson denied, however, having been in the house itself. He and Tex went up there, he said, to race dune buggies up and down the hills. But I couldn't use this information against Manson, because, as he well knew, all of my conversations with him were at his insistence and he was never advised of his constitutional rights. It was a decidedly curious situation. Although Manson had vowed to kill me, he still asked to see me periodically, to rap. Equally curious were our conversations. Manson told me, for example, that he personally believed in law and order. There should be rigid control by the authorities, he said. It didn't matter what the law was right and wrong being relative, but it should be strictly enforced by whoever had the power. And public opinion should be suppressed, because part of the people wanted one thing, part another. In other words, your solution would be a dictatorship, I remarked. Yes. He had a simple solution to the crime problem, Manson told me. Empty the prisons and banish all the criminals to the desert. But first, brand their forage with axes so if they ever appeared in the cities, they could be identified and shot on sight. 
Do I need two guesses as to who's going to be in charge of them in the desert, Charlie? No, he grinned. On another occasion, Manson told me that he had just written to President Nixon, asking him to turn over the reins of power to him. If I was interested, I could be his vice president. I was a brilliant prosecutor, he said, a master with words, and you're right on about a lot of things. What things, Charlie? Helter-skelter? The way the murders came down? Your philosophy on life and death? Manson smiled and declined to answer. We both know you ordered these murders, I told him. Bulio, see, it's the Beatles, the music they're putting out. They're talking about war. These kids listen to this music and pick up the message. It's subliminal. You were along on the night of the LaBianca murders. I went out a lot of nights. Never a direct denial. I couldn't wait to get him on the stand. Manson told me that he liked prison, though he liked the desert, the sun, and women better. I told him he'd never been inside the green room in San Quentin before. He wasn't afraid of death, Manson responded. Death was only a thought. He'd faced death before, many times, in both this and past lives. I asked him if, when he shot Crow, he'd intended to kill him. Sure, he replied, adding, I could kill everyone without blinking an eye. When I asked why, he said, because you've been killing me for years. Pressed as to whether all this killing bothered him, Manson replied that he had no conscience, that everything was only a thought. Only he and he alone was on top of his thought, in complete control, unprogrammed by anyone or anything. When it comes down around your ears, you'd better believe I'll be on top of my thought, Manson said. I will know what I am doing. I will know exactly what I am doing. Manson frequently interrupted the testimony of Brooks Poston and Paul Watkins with asides. Canarek's interruptions were so continuous that Older, calling him to the bench, angrily told him, You are trying to disrupt the testimony with frivolous, lengthy, involved, silly objections. You have done it time and again during this trial. I have studied you very carefully, Mr. Canarek. I know exactly what you are doing. I have had to find you in contempt twice before for doing the same thing. I won't hesitate to do it again. It was all too obvious to both Canarek and Manson that Poston and Watkins were impressively strong witnesses. Step by step, they traced the evolution of Helter Skelter, not intellectually, as Jacobson understood it, but as one-time true believers, members of the family who had watched a vague concept slowly materialize into terrifying reality. The cross-examination didn't shake their testimony in the slightest. Rather, it elicited more details. When Canarek questioned Poston, for example, he accidentally brought out a good domination example. When Charlie would be around, things would be like when a schoolteacher comes back to class. Hughes asked Poston, Did you feel you were under Mr. Manson's hypnotic spell? Answer, No, I did not think that Charlie had a hypnotic spell. Question, Did you feel he had some power? Answer, I felt he was Jesus Christ. That is power enough for me. Looking back on his time with Manson, Poston said, I learned a lot from Charlie, but it doesn't seem that he was making all those people free. Watkins observed, Charlie was always preaching love. Charlie had no idea what love was. 
Charlie was so far from love it wasn't even funny. Death is Charlie's trip. It really is. Since his extradition to California, Charles Tex Watson had been behaving peculiarly. At first he spoke little, then stopped speaking entirely. The prisoners in his cell block signed a petition complaining of the unsanitary condition of his cell. For hours he'd stare off into space, then inexplicably hurl himself against his cell wall. Placed in restraints, he stopped eating, and even though force-fed, his weight dropped to 110 pounds. Though there was evidence that he was faking at least part of his symptoms, his attorney, Sam Bubrick, asked the court to appoint three psychiatrists to examine him. Their conclusions differed, but they agreed on one point. Watson was rapidly reverting to a fetal state, which, unless immediately treated, could be fatal. Acting on the basis of their examination, on October 29th, Judge Dell ruled Watson was at present incompetent to stand trial and ordered him committed to Atascadero State Hospital. Manson asked to see me during the recess. Vince, Manson pleaded through the lockup door, give me just half an hour with Tex. I'm positive I can cure him. I'm sorry, Charlie, I told him. I can't afford to take that chance. If you cured him, then everyone would believe you were Jesus Christ. November 1st to 19th, 1970. The day before Watson was committed to Atascadero, two court-appointed psychiatrists found 17-year-old Diane Lake competent to testify. Following her release from Patton, Diane had received some good news. Inyo County investigator Jack Gardner and his wife, who had befriended Diane after her arrest in the Barker raid, had been appointed her foster parents. She would live with them and their children until she finished high school. Because of Aranda, there were some things the jury never heard. For example, that Tex had told Leslie to stab Rosemary LaBianca and, later, to wipe fingerprints off everything they had touched. Since Katie had related these things to Diane, and any reference by Katie to her co-defendants had to be excised. Diane could testify to what Leslie had told her she had done. However, the problem here was that Leslie never told Diane whom she had stabbed. She said she had stabbed someone who was already dead, that this occurred near Griffith Park, and that there was a boat outside. From these facts, I hoped the jury would conclude that she was talking about the LaBiancas. Diane also testified that one morning in August, Leslie had come into the back house at Spawn and proceeded to burn a purse, a credit card, and her own clothing, keeping only a sack of coins, which the girls divided and spent on food. Diane, however, was unable to pinpoint the exact date, and though I hoped the jury would surmise this had occurred the morning after the LaBiancas were killed, there was no proof that this was so. Since this was the only evidence, independent of Linda Kasabian's testimony, which I had linking Leslie Van Houten to the LaBianca homicides, it hurt, and badly, when Hughes on Cross brought out that Diane wasn't sure whether Leslie had told her about the boat or whether she had read about it in the newspapers. Hughes also focused on a number of minor discrepancies in her previous statements. She told Sartucci the coins were in the purse, while she told me they were in a plastic bag, and what could have been one very big bombshell. On direct, Diane had said that she, Little Patty, and Sandra Good, I believe, had divided the money. If Sandy was present, this couldn't have been August 10th, the morning after the LaBianca murders, since Sandra Good, along with Mary Bruner, was still in custody. However, questioned further, Diane said Sandy might not have been there.
In his cross-examination, Canarek brought out that Sergeant Gutierrez had threatened Diane with the gas chamber. Fitzgerald also came up with a prior inconsistent statement. Diane had told the grand jury that she was in Inyo County rather than at Spahn Ranch on August 8th and 9th. On redirect, I asked Diane, why did you lie to the grand jury? Answer, because I was afraid that I would be killed by members of the family if I told the truth. And Charlie asked me not to. He told me not to say anything to anybody who had the power of authority. On November 4th, Sergeant Gutierrez, in search of a cup of coffee, had wandered into the jury room where the female defendant stayed during recesses. He found a yellow legal pad with the name Patricia Krenwinkel on it. Among the notes and doodlings, Katie had written the words, Helter Skelter, three times, misspelling that first word exactly the same way it had been misspelled on the LaBianca refrigerator door. Older would not permit me to introduce it in evidence, however. I felt he was 100% wrong about this. It was unquestionably circumstantial evidence. It had relevance, and it was admissible. But Older ruled otherwise. Older also gave me a scare when I attempted to introduce Krenwinkel's refusal to make a printing exemplar. Older agreed it was admissible, but he felt Krenwinkel should be given another chance to comply, and ordered her to do so. The problem here was that this time Krenwinkel just might, on the advice of counsel, make the exemplar, and if she did, I knew there would be real problems. Katie refused, on the instructions of Paul Fitzgerald. What Fitzgerald apparently did not realize was that it would be extremely difficult, if not impossible, for LAPD to match the two printing samples. And had LAPD failed to do so, by law, Patricia Krenwinkel would have to be acquitted of the LaBianca murders. Her refusal to give an exemplar was the only speck of independent evidence I had supporting Kasabian's testimony regarding Krenwinkel's involvement in these crimes. Krenwinkel had been given an excellent chance to beat the rap. To this day, I still don't understand why her attorney instructed her as he did, and so lost her that chance. The people's last two witnesses, Drs. Blake Skirdla and Harold Deering, were the psychiatrists who had examined Diane. On both direct and redirect examination, I elicited testimony from them to the effect that, although a powerful drug, LSD does not impair memory, nor is there any demonstrable medical evidence that it causes brain damage. This was important since the defense attorneys had contended that the minds of various prosecution witnesses, in particular Linda and Diane, had been so blown by LSD that they could not distinguish fantasy from reality. Skirdla testified that people on LSD can tell the difference between the real and the unreal. In fact, they often have a heightened awareness. Skirdla further stated that LSD causes illusions rather than hallucinations. In other words, that which is seen is actually there, only the perception of it is changed. This surprised a lot of people, since LSD is called a hallucinogenic drug. When Watkins was on the stand, I personally brought out that although he was only 20, Paul had taken LSD between 150 and 200 times. Yet, as the jury undoubtedly observed, he was one of the brightest and most articulate of the prosecution witnesses. Skirdla also testified, I have seen individuals who have taken it several hundred times and show no outward sign of any emotional disturbance while they are not on the drug. Fitzgerald asked Skirdla, Would LSD in large doses over a period of time make someone sort of a zombie, or would it destroy rational thought processes? If, as I suspected, 
Fitzgerald was trying to lay the foundation for a defense based on this premise, that foundation collapsed when Skirdler replied, I have not seen this counsel. Dr. Deering was the people's last witness. He finished testifying on Friday, November 13th. Most of Monday, the 16th, was spent introducing the people's exhibits into evidence. There were 320 of these, and Kanarek objected to every one, from the gun to the scale map of the Tate premises. His strongest objections were to the color death photos. Responding, I argued, I grant the court that these photographs are gruesome. There is no question about it. But if, in fact, the defendants are the ones who committed these murders, which the prosecution, of course, is alleging, they are the ones who are responsible for the gruesomeness and the ghastliness. It is their handiwork. The jury is entitled to look at that handiwork. Judge Older agreed, and they were admitted into evidence. One exhibit never made it into evidence. As mentioned earlier, a number of white dog hairs had been found on the discarded clothing the killers wore the night of the Tate murders. Shown them, Winifred Chapman told me they looked like the hair of Sharon's dog. When I requested that they be brought over from LAPD, however, I got only excuses. Finally, I learned that while walking across the street to the Hall of Justice, one of the Tate detectives had dropped and broken the vial containing the hairs. He had been able to recover only one. Realizing that the expression, grasping at hairs, would be all too appropriate in this case, I decided against introducing that single hair into evidence. At 4.27 p.m. that Monday, exactly 22 weeks after the start of the trial, and two days short of a year after my assignment to the case, I told the court, Your Honor, the people of the state of California rest. The court was recessed until Thursday, November 19th, at which time each of the defense attorneys argued the standard motions to dismiss. Back in December 1969, a great many attorneys predicted that when we reached this point, Manson would have to be acquitted because of insufficiency of evidence. I doubted if any lawyer in the country felt that way now, including the attorneys for the defense. Older denied all the motions. The court. Are you ready to proceed with the defense? Fitzgerald. Yes, Your Honor. The court. You may call your first witness, Mr. Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald. Thank you, Your Honor. The defendants rest. Nearly everyone in the courtroom was caught completely off guard. For several minutes, even Judge Older seemed too stunned to speak. The ultimate legal issue at a criminal trial is not the defendant's guilt or innocence, as most people believe. The issue is whether or not the prosecution has met its legal burden of proving the guilt of the defendant beyond a reasonable doubt and to a moral certainty. Note. In American criminal jurisprudence, the term not guilty is not totally synonymous with innocence. Not guilty is a legal finding by the jury that the prosecution hasn't proven its case. A not-guilty verdict based on the insufficiency of the evidence can result from either of two states of mind on the part of the jury, that they believe the defendant is innocent and did not commit the crime charged, or, although they tend to believe he did commit the crime, the prosecution's case was not sufficiently strong to convince them of his guilt beyond a reasonable doubt and to a moral certainty. End of note. The defense obviously, but unexpectedly, had decided to avoid cross-examination, and to rely on the argument that we hadn't proved the guilt of Manson and his co-defendants beyond a reasonable doubt, and, hence, they were entitled to not guilty verdicts. The biggest surprise, however, was still to come. Part 7. Murder in the Wind You could feel something in the air, you know. You could feel something in the air. 
Juan Flynn. Snitches and other enemies will be taken care of. Sandra Good. Before his disappearance, Ronald Hughes, the missing defense attorney in the Tate-LaBianca murder trial, confided to close friends that he was in fear of Manson. Los Angeles Times. November 19th to December 20th, 1970. Fitzgerald said the defense had rested, but the three female defendants now shouted that they wanted to testify. Calling counsel into chambers, Judge Older demanded to know exactly what was going on. There had been a split between the defense attorneys and their clients, Fitzgerald said. The girls wanted to testify. Their attorneys opposed this and wanted to rest their case. Only after an hour of intense discussion did the real reason for the split come out, in an off-the-record admission by Fitzgerald. Sadie, Katie, and Leslie wanted to take the stand and testify that they had planned and committed the murders, and that Manson was not involved. Charlie had tried to explode his bombshell, but the attorneys for the girls had managed to defuse it, at least temporarily. Standing up against Manson for the first time, Ronald Hughes observed, I refuse to take part in any proceeding where I am forced to push a client out the window. The legal problems thus created were immense, but basically they came down to the question of which took precedence, the right to effective counsel or the right to testify. Worried that whichever course Older took might be reversible error on appeal, I suggested he take the matter to the state Supreme Court for a decision. Older, however, decided that even though the attorneys had rested and had advised their clients not to take the stand, the right to testify supersedes any and all other rights. The girls would be permitted to take the stand. Older asked Manson if he also wished to testify. No, he replied. Then, after a moment's hesitation, added, That is, not at this time, anyway. On returning to open court, Canarac made a motion to sever Manson so he could be tried separately. Charlie was now attempting to abandon ship while letting the girls sink. After denying the motion, Older had the jury brought in, and Susan Atkins took the stand and was sworn. Day Shin, however, refused to question her, stating that if he asked the questions she'd prepared, they would incriminate her. Note, Shin's remarks, in themselves incriminating, were later stricken from the record. End of note. This created a whole new problem. Returning to Chambers, Older remarked, It is becoming perfectly clear that this entire maneuver by the defense is simply one to wreck the trial. I do not intend to permit this to happen. Still in chambers and outside the presence of the jury, Susan Atkins told Judge Older that she wanted to testify to the way it happened, the way I saw it happen. The court. You are subjecting yourself to the extreme risk of convicting yourself out of your own mouth. Do you understand that? Atkins. I understand that. She added that if she was convicted, let them convict me on the truth. I do not wish to be convicted on a pack of lies taken out of context and just scattered every which way. Because, Mr. Bugliosi, your foundation is just crumbling. I have watched it crumble. You have been a sly, sneaky fox. Bugliosi, why do you want to put it back together for me, Sadie, if it is crumbling? You should be happy. You can go back to Barker Ranch if it is crumbling. Why do you want to take the stand to help me? Shin said he would ask to be relieved as counsel if Older ordered him to question his client. Fitzgerald replied similarly, adding, As far as I am concerned, it would be sort of aiding and abetting a suicide. The matter was unresolved when court recessed for the day. The following day, 
Manson surprised everyone by saying that he too wanted to testify. In fact, he wanted to go on the stand before the others. Because of possible Aranda problems, however, it was decided that Manson should first testify outside the presence of the jury. Manson was sworn. Rather than have Canarek question him, he requested and received permission to make a statement. He spoke for over an hour. He began almost apologetically, at first speaking so low that the spectators in the crowded courtroom had to lean forward to hear. But after a few minutes, the voice changed, grew stronger, more animated. And as I'd already discovered in my conversations with him, when this happened, his face seemed to change too. Manson the nobody, Manson the martyr, Manson the teacher, Manson the prophet. He became all these and more, the metamorphosis often occurring in mid-sentence, his face a light show of shifting emotions until it was not one face but a kaleidoscope of different faces, each real but only for the moment. He rambled, he digressed, he repeated himself. But there was something hypnotic about the whole performance. In his own strange way, he was trying to weave a spell, not unlike the ones he had cast over his impressionable followers. Manson. There has been a lot of charges and a lot of things said about me and brought against the co-defendants in this case, of which a lot could be cleared up and clarified. I never went to school, so I never growed up to read and write too good. So I have stayed in jail and I have stayed stupid. And I have stayed a child while I have watched your world grow up. And then I look at the things that you do and I don't understand. You eat meat and you kill things that are better than you are. And then you say how bad and even killers your children are. You made your children what they are. These children that come at you with knives, they are your children. You taught them. I didn't teach them. I just tried to help them stand up. Most of the people at the ranch that you call the family were just people that you did not want. People that were alongside the road, that their parents had kicked out, that did not want to go to juvenile hall. So I did the best I could, and I took them up on my garbage dump, and I told them this, that in love there is no wrong. I told them that anything they do for their brothers and sisters is good, if they do it with a good thought. I was working at cleaning up my house, something that Nixon should have been doing. He should have been on the side of the road picking up his children, but he wasn't. He was in the White House sending them off to war. I don't understand you, but I don't try. I don't try to judge nobody. I know that the only person I can judge is me. But I know this, that in your hearts and your own souls, you are as much responsible for the Vietnam War as I am for killing these people. I can't judge any of you. I have no malice against you and no ribbons for you. But I think that it is high time that you all start looking at yourselves and judging the lie that you live in. I can't dislike you, but I will say this to you. You haven't got long before you are all going to kill yourselves because you are all crazy. And you can project it back at me but I am only what lives inside each and every one of you. My father is the jailhouse. My father is your system. I am only what you made me. I am only a reflection of you. I have ate out of your garbage cans to stay out of jail. I have wore your second-hand clothes. I have done my best to get along in your world, and now you want to kill me, 
and I look at you and then I say to myself, you want to kill me? Ha! I'm already dead. Have been all my life. I've spent 23 years in tombs that you built. Sometimes I think about giving it back to you. Sometimes I think about just jumping on you and letting you shoot me. If I could, I would jerk this microphone off and beat your brains out with it, because that is what you deserve. That is what you deserve. If I could get angry at you, I would try to kill every one of you. If that's guilt, I accept it. These children, everything they done, they done for the love of their brother. If I showed them that I would do anything for my brother, including giving my life for my brother on the battlefield, and then they pick up their banner and they go off and do what they do, that is not my responsibility. I don't tell people what to do. These children, indicating the female defendants, were finding themselves. What they did, if they did whatever they did, is up to them. They will have to explain that to you. It's all your fear. You look for something to project it on, and you pick out a little old scroungy nobody that eats out of a garbage can and that nobody wants, that was kicked out of the penitentiary, that has been dragged through every hell hole that you can think of, and you drag him and put him in a courtroom. You expect to break me? Impossible. You broke me years ago. You killed me years ago. Older asked Manson if he had anything further to say. Manson, I have killed no one, and I have ordered no one to be killed. I may have implied on several different occasions to several different people that I may have been Jesus Christ, but I haven't decided yet what I am or who I am. Some called him Christ, Manson said. In prison his name was a number. Some now want a sadistic fiend, and so they see him as that. So be it. Guilty, not guilty. They are only words. You can do anything you want with me, but you cannot touch me because I am only my love. If you put me in the penitentiary, that means nothing, because you kicked me out of the last one. I didn't ask to get released. I liked it in there because I liked myself. Telling Manson, you seem to be getting far afield, Older asked him to stick to the issues. Manson. The issues? Mr. Bugliosi is a hard-driving prosecutor, polished education, a master of words, semantics. He is a genius. He has got everything that every lawyer would want to have except one thing. A case. He doesn't have a case. Were I allowed to defend myself, I could have proven this to you. The evidence in this case is a gun. There was a gun that laid around the ranch. It belonged to everybody. Anybody could have picked that gun up and done anything they wanted to do with it. I don't deny having that gun. That gun has been in my possession many times. Like the rope was there. Sure, he'd bought the rope, Manson admitted, 150 feet of it, because you need rope on a ranch. The clothes? It is really convenient that Mr. Baggett found those clothes. I imagine he got a little taste of money for that. The bloodstains? Well, they are not exactly bloodstains. They are benzidine reaction. The leather thong? How many people have ever worn moccasins with leather thongs? The photos of the seven bodies, 169 stab wounds? 
They put the hideous bodies on display and they imply, if he gets out, see what will happen to you. Helter Skelter. It means confusion, literally. It doesn't mean any war with anyone. It doesn't mean that some people are going to kill other people. Helter Skelter is confusion. Confusion is coming down around you fast. If you can't see the confusion coming down around you fast, you can call it what you wish. Conspiracy? Is it a conspiracy that the music is telling the youth to rise up against the establishment because the establishment is rapidly destroying things? Is that a conspiracy? The music speaks to you every day, but you are too deaf, dumb, and blind to even listen to the music. It is not my conspiracy. It is not my music. I hear what it relates. It says rise. It says kill. Why blame it on me? I didn't write the music. About the witnesses. For example, Danny DiCarlo. He said that I hate black men, and he said that we thought alike. But actually, all I ever did with Danny DiCarlo, or any other human being, was reflect him back at himself. If he said he did not like the black man, I would say okay. So consequently, he would drink another beer and walk off and say, Charlie thinks like I do. But actually, he does not know how Charlie thinks because Charlie has never projected himself. I don't think like you people. You people put importance on your lives. Well, my life has never been important to anyone. Linda Kasabian. She only testified against him because she saw him as her father, and she never liked her father. So she gets on the stand, and she says when she looked in that man's eyes that was dying, she knew that it was my fault. She knew it was my fault because she couldn't face death. And if she can't face death, that is not my fault. I can face death. I have all the time. In the penitentiary, you live with it, with constant fear of death, because it is a violent world in there, and you have to be on your toes constantly. Diane Lake. She wanted attention. She would make trouble, cause accidents to get it. She wanted a father to punish her. So as any father would do, I conditioned her mind with pain to keep her from burning the ranch down. Yes, he was a father to the young girls and boys in the family, but a father only in the sense that he taught them not to be weak and not to lean on me. Paul Watkins wanted a father. I told him, to be a man, boy, you have to stand up and be your own father. So he goes off to the desert and finds a father image in Paul Crockett. Yes, he put a knife to Juan Flynn's throat. Yes, he told him he felt responsible for all of these killings. I do feel some responsibility. I feel a responsibility for the pollution. I feel a responsibility for the whole thing. He didn't deny that he had told Brooks Poston to get a knife and go kill the sheriff of Shoshone. I don't know the sheriff of Shoshone. I am not saying that I didn't say it, but if I said it, at the time I may have thought it was a good idea. To be honest with you, I don't recall ever saying, get a knife and a change of clothes and go do what Tex says. Or I don't recall saying, get a knife and go kill the sheriff. In fact, it makes me mad when someone kills snakes or dogs or cats or horses. I don't even like to eat meat. That is how much I am against killing. I haven't got any guilt about anything because I have never been able to see any wrong.
I have always said, do what your love tells you, and I do what my love tells me. Is it my fault that your children do what you do? What about your children? Manson asked angrily, rising slightly in the witness chair, as if he were about to spring forward and attack everyone in the courtroom. You say there are just a few? There are many, many more coming in the same direction. They are running in the streets, and they are coming right at you. I had only a few questions for Manson, none of which came from the notebooks I'd kept. Question. You say you were already dead, is that right, Charlie? Answer. Dead in your mind or dead in my mind? Question. Define it any way you want to. Answer. As any child will tell you, dead is when you are no more. It is just when you are not there. If you weren't there, you would be dead. Question. How long have you been dead? Manson evaded a direct reply. Question. To be precise about it, you think you have been dead for close to 2,000 years, don't you? Answer. Mr. Bugliosi, 2,000 years is relative to the second we live in. Question. Suffice it to say, Department 104 is a long way from Calvary. Isn't that true? Manson had testified that all he wanted was to take his children and return to the desert. After I reminded him that the only people who can set you free so that you can go back to the desert are the twelve jurors in this case, and noting that, though he had testified for over an hour, the jury in this case never heard a single solitary word you said, I posed one final question. Mr. Manson, are you willing to testify in front of the jury and tell them the same things that you have testified to here in open court today? Canarek objected. Older sustained the objection, and I concluded my cross. To my surprise, Older later asked me why I hadn't seriously cross-examined Manson. I thought the reason was obvious. I had nothing to gain since the jury wasn't present. I had lots and lots of questions for Charlie, several notebooks full, if he took the stand in the presence of the jury. But in the meantime, I had no intention of giving him a dry run. However, when Older asked Manson if he now wished to testify before the jury, Charlie replied, I have already relieved all the pressure I had. As Manson left the stand and passed the council table, I overheard him tell the three girls, You don't have to testify now. The big question, what did he mean by now? I strongly suspected that Manson hadn't given up, but was only biding his time. After the defense had introduced their exhibits, Judge Older recessed court for ten days to give the attorneys time to prepare their jury instructions and arguments. This being his first trial, Ron Hughes had never argued before a jury before, or participated in drawing up the instructions which the judge would give the jury just before they began their deliberations. He was obviously looking forward to it, however. He confided to TV newscaster Stan Atkinson that he was convinced he could win an acquittal for Leslie Van Houten. He wouldn't even get the chance to try. When court resumed on Monday, November 30th, Ronald Hughes was absent. Quizzed by Older, none of the other defense attorneys knew where he was. Fitzgerald said that he had last talked to Ron on Thursday or Friday, and that he sounded okay at that time. Hughes often spent his weekends camping at Sespe Hot Springs, a rugged terrain some 130 miles northwest of Los Angeles. 
There had been floods in the area the past weekend. It was possible that Hughes had been stranded there. The next day we learned that Hughes had gone to Sespe on Friday with two teenagers, James Forsher and Lauren Elder, in Miss Elder's Volkswagen. The pair, who were questioned but not held, said that when it began raining they had decided to return to L.A., but Hughes had decided to stay over until Sunday. When the two tried to leave, however, their auto became mired down and they were forced to abandon it and hike out. Three other youths had seen Hughes on the morning of the following day, Saturday the 28th. He was alone at the time and on high ground, well away from the flood area. Chatting with them briefly, he appeared neither ill nor in any danger. Polygraphed, the three were found to have no additional knowledge and they were not held. Since Forsher and Elder had last seen Hughes a day earlier, they apparently were not polygraphed and their story was taken at face value. Owing to the continued bad weather, it was two days before the Ventura Sheriff's Office could get up a helicopter to search the area. In the meantime, rumors abounded. One was to the effect that Hughes had deliberately skipped, either to avoid argument or to sabotage the trial. Knowing Ron, I seriously doubted if this was true. I became convinced it wasn't when reporters visited the place where Hughes lived. He slept on a mattress in a garage behind the home of a friend. According to reporters, the place was a mess. One remarked that he wouldn't even let his dog sleep there. But on the wall of the garage, neatly framed and carefully hung, was Ronald Hughes's bar certificate. Although there were numerous reports that a man fitting Hughes's description had been seen in various places, boarding a bus in Reno, driving on the San Bernardino Freeway, drinking at a bar in Baja, none checked out. On December 2nd, Judge Older told Leslie Van Houten that he felt a co-counsel should be brought in to represent her during Hughes's absence. Leslie said she would refuse any other attorney. On December 3rd, after consulting with Paul Fitzgerald, Older appointed Maxwell Keith co-counsel for Leslie. A quiet, somewhat shy man in his mid-forties, whose conservative clothing and courtroom manner were in sharp contrast to those of Hughes, Keith had an excellent reputation in the legal community. Those who knew him well described him as conscientious, totally ethical, and completely professional. And it was clear from the start that he would be representing his client and not Manson. Sensing this, Manson asked to have all the defense attorneys dismissed. They aren't our lawyers. They won't listen to us. So he and the girls could represent themselves. He also demanded that the case be reopened so they could put on a defense. They had 21 witnesses waiting to testify, he said. Both requests were denied. Keith had his work laid out for him. Before he could prepare his argument, he had to familiarize himself with 152 volumes of transcript, over 18,000 pages. Though Older granted a delay until he could do so, he told all counsel, we will continue to meet every day at 9 a.m. until further notice. Older obviously wanted to count heads. Several days earlier, Steve Kay had overheard Manson tell the girls, watch Paul, I think he's up to something. I made sure Fitzgerald learned of the conversation. One missing attorney was one more than enough. Neither the air search nor a subsequent ground search of the Sespe area yielded any trace of Hughes. The abandoned Volkswagen was found, with a batch of court transcripts inside, but other papers Hughes was known to have had, including a secret psychiatric report on Leslie Van Houten, were missing. On December 6th, Paul Fitzgerald told reporters, I think Ron is dead. On December 7th, 
an all-points bulletin was issued for Hughes, LASO admitting, this is something you do when you have no other leads. On December 8th, Judge Older went to the Ambassador Hotel to inform the jury of the reason for the delay. He also told them, it appears fairly certain that you will be sequestered over the Christmas holidays. They took it much better than expected. On December 12th, the search for Ronald Hughes was suspended. The most persistent rumor was that Hughes had been murdered by the family. There was, at this time, no evidence of this, but there was more than ample cause for speculation. Though once little more than an errand boy for Manson, during the course of the trial, Hughes had grown increasingly independent until the two had finally split over whether there should be a defense, Hughes strongly opposing his clients taking the stand to absolve Charlie. I also heard from several sources, including Paul Fitzgerald, that Hughes was afraid of Manson. It was possible that he showed this fear, which in Manson's case was like waving a red flag before a bull. Fear turned Charlie on. There could have been several reasons for his murder, if it was that. It may have been done to intimidate the other defense attorneys into letting Manson put on a defense during the penalty trial. One was so shaken by Hughes's disappearance that he went on a bender which ended in his arrest for drunken driving. Equally likely, it could have been a tactic to delay the trial, with the hope that it would result in a mistrial or set the stage for a reversal on appeal. Speculation, nothing more. Except for one odd, perhaps unrelated, incident. On December 2nd, four days after Hughes was last seen alive, fugitives Bruce Davis and Nancy Pittman, a.k.a. Brenda McCann, voluntarily surrendered to the police. Two of the family's most hardcore members, Pittman had been missing for several weeks after failing to appear for sentencing on a forgery charge, while Davis, who had been involved in both the Hinman and Shea murders, who had picked up the gun with which Zero had committed suicide, but had somehow left no prints, and who was the chief suspect in the slaying of two young Scientology students, had evaded capture for over seven months. Note, these murders will be discussed in a later chapter. End of note. Maybe it was just the proximity and time that linked the two events in my mind. Hughes's disappearance, Davis's and Pittman's surprise surrender. But I couldn't shake the feeling that in some way the two incidents might be related. On December 18th, three days before the Tate-LaBianca trial reconvened, the Los Angeles County Grand Jury indicted Steve Grogan, a.k.a. Clem, Lynette Fromm, a.k.a. Squeaky, Ruth Ann Morehouse, a.k.a. Weish, Catherine Scher, a.k.a. Gypsy, and Dennis Rice on charges of conspiracy to prevent and dissuade a witness, Barbara Hoyt, from attending a trial. Three other charges, including conspiracy to commit murder, were dismissed by Judge Choate on a 995 motion by the defense. Although we had presumed, as I suspected the involved family members had also, that an overdose of LSD could be fatal, we learned from medical experts that there was no known case of anyone's dying from this cause. There were many cases, however, where LSD had resulted in death from misperception of surroundings. For example, a person, convinced he could fly, stepping out the window of a tall building. I thought of Barbara, running through the traffic in downtown Honolulu. That she hadn't been killed was no fault of the family. The result, however, was that, despite the best efforts of the LaBianca detectives, the DA's office had a very weak case. Pending trial, four of the five were released on bail. They immediately returned to the corner outside the Hall of Justice, where they would remain, on and off, during most of the remainder of the trial. Since Weish, who had given Barbara the LSD-laden hamburger, 
was nearly nine months pregnant, Judge Choate released her on her own recognizance. She promptly fled the state. Nancy Pittman, who had been arrested with Davis, was freed on the forgery charge. She was rearrested a few weeks later while trying to pass Manson a tab of LSD in the visitor's room at the county jail. After serving 30 days, she was again freed to rejoin the group on the corner and subsequently to become involved in still another murder. December 21, 1970 to January 25, 1971. When court reconvened, the four defendants created a disturbance. Manson throwing a paperclip at the judge, the girls accusing him of doing away with Hughes, all obviously planned actions to garner the day's headlines. Older ordered the four removed. As Sadie was being escorted out, she passed behind me. Though I didn't see what happened, I felt it. She knocked over an exhibit board, hitting me on the back of the head. Those who witnessed the incident said it appeared she was lunging for the buck knife, which was on a nearby table. Thereafter, the knife was kept well out of the reach of the defendants. Maxwell Keith then told the court that though he now felt himself familiar with the evidence from having read the transcripts and other documents, he was not at all sure he could effectively represent his client, since he had not been present when the witnesses testified and therefore could not judge their demeanor or credibility. On this basis, he requested a mistrial. Though Keith argued persuasively, Judge Older denied the motion, observing that every day attorneys argue cases in appellate courts without having been present during the actual trials. Once this and several other motions were out of the way, it was time for the people's opening argument. Note, this is entirely separate from the opening statement, which is delivered at the start of the trial. End of note. During the guilt phase of a trial in California, the prosecution delivers an opening argument, which is followed by the opening argument of the defense, and last, a closing argument, or final summation, by the prosecution. Thus, the people have the last word during the guilt trial. During the penalty trial, if there is one, each side gives two arguments, with the defense being allowed to argue last. I had spent several hundred hours preparing my opening argument for the guilt trial, starting even before the beginning of the trial itself. The result was contained in some 400 handwritten pages. But by this time, I knew their contents so well I didn't even need to read them, but only glanced at them periodically. I began by discussing in depth, with charts and other aids, the points of law the jury would have to consider murder, conspiracy, and so on. The instructions which the judge would give the jury are printed formal statements of law that use nebulous, abstract terms that often even lawyers don't understand. Moreover, the judge does not tell the jury how these rules of law apply to the facts of the case. Thus, in the jury's mind, the rules are floating lazily in the air with no thread connecting them to anything tangible. In each case I try, I make it a point to supply that link, by the liberal use of common-sense examples, by translating legalese into words and thoughts the jury will understand, and by literally tying those rules to the evidence. After I had done this, I got into the principal part of my opening argument, summarizing the testimony of each witness, often quoting verbatim the words he had used on the stand, interrelating this testimony with the other evidence and drawing inferences from it. Though the presentation took three days, it was a tight, cohesive package, and by the time I had finished, I felt confident that I had established beyond all doubt Manson's control, his motives, his involvement, and the involvement of Watson, Atkins, Krenwinkel, and Van Houten. Apparently it got to Charlie. 
At the end of my opening statement, he had tried to bribe Deputy Maupin to free him. The night after I completed the first day of my opening argument, he tried to break out of jail. Though the incident was officially denied by LASO, one of the deputies told me the details. Despite daily searches of both his person and his cell, Manson had managed to obtain an incredibly long piece of string, at the end of which he had attached a small weight. By some unknown means or manner, for the area was supposedly under constant surveillance, he had got the string across the walkway in front of his cell and out a window, where it reached a full ten stories to the ground. One or more Confederates then attached the contraband. However, something must have happened which prevented Manson from pulling it up, for when a deputy came around the corner of the Hall of Justice the next morning, he spotted the string and its cargo, a lid of marijuana and a hacksaw blade. Accepting a promise that they would behave, Judge Older permitted the three female defendants to return to court the next afternoon. Manson, who said he had no desire to return, remained in the lockup, listening to the proceedings from there. I had just resumed my argument when Leslie created a disturbance. Sadie and Katie followed suit, and each of the three was again ordered removed. This time, Sadie was led in front of the lectern where I was standing. Suddenly, without warning, she kicked one of the female deputies in the leg, then grabbed some of my notes, tearing them in half. Grabbing them back, I involuntarily muttered beneath my breath, You little bitch. Though provoked, I regretted losing my cool. The next day, the Long Beach Independent bore the following front-page headline. Manson Prosecutor Takes Swing at Susan. According to reporter Mary Nieswender, the chaos was capped by the chief prosecutor swearing at and attempting to slug one of the defendants. Bugliosi slapped the girl's hand, grabbed his notes, and then swung at her, shouting, You little bitch! In common with everyone else in the courtroom, Judge Older saw the incident somewhat differently. Describing it for the record, he branded the charge that I was struggling with Susan absolutely false. There was no struggle between Mr. Bugliosi and anybody. What happened was she walked by the rostrum and grabbed the notes off the rostrum. While I'd like to say this was the only inaccurate press coverage during the trial, unfortunately the accounts of several reporters, including a representative of one of the wire services, whose reports appeared in papers all over the country, were often so error-filled that reading them gave one the feeling that the reporters had been attending another trial. On the other hand, such reporters as John Kendall of the Los Angeles Times and Bill Farr of the Los Angeles Herald Examiner did an excellent job, often catching little nuances even the attorneys missed. After Krenwinkel had been removed, Judge Older called counsel to the bench and said that he had had it. It is perfectly obvious to the court that after low these many months, the defendants are operating in concert with each other. I don't think any American court is required to subject itself to this kind of nonsense day after day, when it is perfectly obvious that the defendants are using it as a stage for some kind of performance. Older then stated that the defendants would not be permitted to return to court during the remainder of the guilt trial. I had hoped to finish my argument before court recessed for the Christmas holiday, but Canarex's multitudinous objections prevented my doing so. The feelings of the jurors at being sequestered over Christmas were exemplified by one who hung up the hotel menu and wrote Bah Humbug across it. Though they were permitted family visits, and special parties had been arranged at the ambassador, it was for most a miserable time. None had anticipated being away from home this long. Many were worried whether they would still have their jobs when the trial ended. 
and no one, including the judge, would even venture a guess when that might be. On weekends, both jurors and alternates, always accompanied by two male and two female deputies, had taken trips to such places as Disneyland, the movie studios, the San Diego Zoo, many probably seeing more of Southern California than they had in the whole of their lives. They had dinner at restaurants all over Los Angeles. They went bowling, swimming, even nightclubbing. But this was only partial compensation for their long ordeal. To keep up morale, the bailiffs exhibited considerable ingenuity. For example, though the trial was perhaps the most widely publicized in history, there were days when most of the action took place in chambers and newsmen could find little to report. At such times, bailiff Bill Murray often cut huge sections out of the newspapers just to make the jurors think they were still in the headlines. But the strain was getting to them. Older people, for the most part, they were set in their ways. Inevitably, arguments broke out. Factions developed. One temperamental male juror slapped bailiff Ann Orr one night when, against his wishes, she changed channels on the communal TV. Often, Murray and Orr sat up to 4 or 5 a.m. listening to a juror's complaints. As we neared the end of the guilt trial, I began worrying not about the evidence, but about the personal disagreements the jurors might be carrying into the jury room with them when they began their deliberations. It only takes one person to hang up a jury. I concluded my opening argument on Monday, December 28th, by telling the jury what I thought the defense's case would be, thereby lessening the psychological impact of the defense attorney's arguments. The defense will probably argue that there is no conspiracy. They will tell you that the helter-skelter motive is absurd, ridiculous, unbelievable. They will tell you that the interpretation of the Beatles' songs by Manson was normal. They will tell you that Linda is insane with LSD, that she made up her story to be granted immunity, that Linda's testimony as an accomplice has not been corroborated. Probably they will tell you the reason why they never put on a defense is because the prosecution never proved their case. They will tell you that Charles Manson is not a killer. He wouldn't harm a flea. They will tell you that Charlie was not the leader of the family. He never ordered these murders. They will tell you that this has been a case of circumstantial evidence, as if there is something wrong with circumstantial evidence, completely disregarding the direct evidence by the way of Linda's testimony. Out of 18,000 pages of transcript, they will come up here and there with a slight discrepancy between the testimony of one witness and another witness, which of course has to be expected, but they will tell you this means that the people's witnesses are liars. I then asked the jury, as intelligent men and women, to conscientiously evaluate the evidence in this case, applying common sense and reason, and thereby reach a just and fair verdict. Under the law of this state and nation, these defendants are entitled to have their day in court. They got that. They are also entitled to have a fair trial by an impartial jury. They also got that. That is all that they are entitled to. Since they committed these seven senseless murders, the people of the state of California are entitled to a guilty verdict. Toward the opening of his argument for Patricia Krenwinkel, Paul Fitzgerald said, If we set out to rebut every witness the prosecution put on that stand, we would be here until 1974, unthinkingly emphasizing the strength of the people's case as well as the defense's inability to answer it. Fitzgerald's argument was very disappointing. Not only were there many things he could have argued but didn't, he repeatedly misstated the evidence. He said that Sebring was hanged, that all the victims had been stabbed to death, 
that Tim Ireland heard parents scream. He referred to Sharon as Mary Polanski. He had the killers entering the Tate residence through a bedroom window. He confused how many times Frykowski had been stabbed and struck. He said Linda testified to five knives rather than three. He had Linda driving on the second night when Manson was, and vice versa. He had a deputy who wasn't even present arresting Manson during the spawn raid, and so on. The prosecution stressed, murder, 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 Fitzgerald said. Actually, you have to decide whether it is a murder. The first thing the jury should decide, he continued, is what crimes, if any, were committed. Now, a 22 caliber pistol, it strikes me, is a classically inefficient way to kill somebody. It obviously does not make sense to hang anybody. If you were a mastermind criminal, if you had absolute power over the minds and bodies of boot-licking slaves, as they were referred to, would you send women out to do a man's job? Women, ladies and gentlemen, are life-givers. They make love, they get pregnant, they deliver babies. They are life-givers, not takers away. Women are adverse to violence. Only a small portion of Fitzgerald's argument was devoted to the evidence against his client, and rebuttal it was not. He said that there is doubt as to whether or not that fingerprint found at the Tate residence belongs to Patricia Krenwinkle. Even presuming it did, he said, it is entirely conceivable, possible, and reasonable that Patricia Krenwinkle was at that house as an invited guest or a friend. Some friend. As for Krenwinkle's so-called confession to Diane Lake that she dragged Abigail Folger from the bedroom to the living room, that wasn't a confession at all, Fitzgerald said. She didn't say when this occurred or where. Maybe it took place in San Francisco in 1967. Fitzgerald did spend a great deal of time trying to destroy the credibility of Linda Kasabian. In my argument, I had remarked, Linda Kasabian was on that witness stand, ladies and gentlemen, for 18 days, an extraordinarily long period of time for any witness to testify in any case. I think you will agree with me that during those 18 days, Linda Kasabian and the truth were companions. Fitzgerald challenged this, but he was unable to cite a single discrepancy in her account. However, the greater portion of his argument dealt with the case against Charles Manson. All the testimony regarding Manson's philosophy proved, Fitzgerald said, was that he is some sort of right-wing hippie. Manson, Manson, Manson. Fitzgerald ended his argument with a long, impassioned plea, not for his client, Patricia Krenwinkel, but for Charles Manson. There was, he concluded, insufficient evidence against Manson. Not once did he say that there was insufficient evidence against Patricia Krenwinkel, nor did he even ask the jury to come back with a not guilty verdict for his client. Day Shin had prepared a chart listing all the witnesses who testified against his client, Susan Atkins. He said he would rebut each. The first one on the list is Linda Kasabian, and I believe Mr. Fitzgerald has adequately covered Miss Kasabian's testimony. He then skimmed over the criminal records of DiCarlo, Howard, Graham, and Walker. On Danny DiCarlo, how would you like to have him for your son-in-law? How would you like to have him meet your daughters? On Virginia Graham, how would you like to invite her to your house for Christmas? You would have to hide the silverware. Mr. Bugliosi is laughing. At least I did not put him to sleep. Shin's entire argument took only 38 pages of transcript. Irving Canarac, who followed Shin, consumed 1,182. 
for the most part, Canarek ignored my argument against Manson. Remaining on the offense rather than taking the defense, he pounded home two names, Tex, Linda. Who was it Linda Kasabian first slept with at Spawn Ranch? Stole the $5,000 for Accompanied to the Tate residence. Charles Tex Watson. The most logical explanation for these murders was the simplest, Canarek said. Love of a girl for a boy. As for his client, Canarek portrayed him as a peaceful man whose only sin, if he had one, was that he preached and practiced love. Now the people who brought these charges, they want to get Charles Manson for some ungodly reason, which I think is related to Manson's lifestyle. Though many of his statements seemed to me to be too ridiculous for comment, I took many notes during Canarek's argument. For he also planted little doubts, which unless rebutted could grow into bigger ones when the jury began its deliberations. If the purpose was to start a black-white war, why did it stop the second night? Why wasn't there a third night and a fourth? Why didn't the prosecution bring in Notter and the policeman on the beach and the man whose life Linda claimed to have saved? Are we to believe that by means of a wallet found in a toilet tank Mr. Manson intended to start a race war? If Tex pushed Perrin's car up the driveway, why weren't his prints found on it? Several times Canarek referred to the trial as a circus, a remark to which Judge Older reacted very strongly. He also reacted, this time without my prompting, to Canarek's charge that the prosecution had suppressed evidence. There is no evidence in this case that anyone has suppressed anything, Older said. At the end of Canarek's second day of argument, Judge Older told him that he was putting the jury to sleep. Now I am not going to tell you how to make an argument, Older said at the bench but I would suggest to you that you may not be doing your client the utmost amount of good by prolonging it unduly. He went on for a third day, and a fourth. On the fifth day, the jury sent a note to the bailiff requesting no-dose for themselves and sleeping pills for Mr. Canarak. On the sixth day, Older warned Canarak, you are abusing your right to argue just as you have abused practically every other right you have in this case. There is a point, Mr. Canarak, at which argument is no longer argument but a filibuster. Yours is reaching that point. Canarek went on another full day before bringing his argument to an end with the statement, Charles Manson is not guilty of any crime. Several times during Canarek's argument, Manson had interrupted with remarks from the lockup. Once he shouted, loud enough for the jury to hear, Why don't you sit down? You're just making things worse. During one of the noon recesses, Manson asked to see me. I turned down several earlier requests with the comment that I talked to him when he took the stand, but this time I decided to see what he wanted. I was glad I did, as it was one of the most informative conversations we had, Manson telling me exactly how he felt about his three female co-defendants. Manson wanted to clear up a couple of wrong impressions. One was Fitzgerald's reference to him as a right-wing hippie. Though I personally thought the description had some validity, Manson felt otherwise. He'd never thought of himself as a hippie, he said. Hippies don't like the establishment, so they back off and form their own establishment. They're no better than the others. He also didn't want me to think that Sadie, Katie, and Leslie were the best he could do. I've screwed girls that would make these three look like boys, he said. For some reason, it was important to Manson that I believe this, and he re-emphasized it, adding, 
I'm a very selfish guy. I don't give a fuck for these girls. I'm only out for myself. Have you ever told them that, Charlie? I asked. Sure, ask them. Then why would they do what they're doing for you? Why would they be willing to follow you anywhere, even to the gas chamber at San Quentin? Because I tell them the truth, Manson replied. Other guys bullshit them and say, I love you and only you and all that baloney. I'm honest with them. I tell them I'm the most selfish guy in the world, and I am. Yet he was always saying that he would die for his brother, I reminded him. Wasn't that a contradiction? No, because that's selfish too, he responded. He's not going to die for me unless I'm willing to die for him. I had the strong feeling that Manson was leveling with me. Sadie, Katie, and Leslie were willing to murder, even give their own lives for Charlie. And Charlie personally couldn't have cared less about them. Though he wasn't even present when the witnesses testified, Maxwell Keith, arguing for Leslie Van Houten, delivered the best of the four defense arguments. He also did what no other defense attorney had dared do during the entire trial. He put the hat on Charles Manson, albeit with a ten-foot pole. The record discloses over and over again that all of these girls at the ranch believed Manson was God, really believed it. The record discloses that the girls obeyed his commands without any conscious questioning at all. If you believe the prosecution theory that these female defendants and Mr. Watson were extensions of Mr. Manson, his additional arms and legs, as it were, if you believe that they were mindless robots, they cannot be guilty of premeditated murder. To commit first-degree murder, Keith argued, you must have malice aforethought, and you must think and plan. And these people did not have minds to make up. Each of the minds of these girls and Mr. Watson were totally controlled by someone else. As for Leslie herself, Keith argued that even if she did all the things the prosecution contended, she still had committed no crime. At best, if you want to believe Diane Lake, the evidence shows that she was there. At best, it shows that she did something after the commission of these homicides that wasn't very nice. And at best, it showed that she wiped some fingerprints off after the commission of these homicides, which does not make her an aider and a better. As repugnant as you may feel this is, nobody in the world can be guilty of murder or conspiracy to commit murder who stabs somebody after they are already dead. I'm sure that desecrating somebody that is dead is a crime in this state, but she is not charged with that. This case, Keith concluded, must be decided on the basis of the evidence, and on the basis of the evidence, ladies and gentlemen, I say to you, you must acquit Leslie Van Houten. I began my final summation, closing argument, on January 13th. In my opinion, final summation is very often the most important part of the trial, since it's the last, final word to the jury. Again, several hundred hours had gone into the preparation. I began by meeting head-on each of the defense contentions. In this way, I hoped to dispose of any questions or lingering doubts that otherwise might distract the jury during the last phase of my argument, during which I summarize, as affirmatively as I can, the highlights and strengths of my case. Taking on each of the defense attorneys in turn, I cited 24 misstatements of either the law or the testimony in Fitzgerald's presentation. As for his suggestion that if Manson ordered these murders, he would have sent men rather than women, I asked, Is Mr. Fitzgerald suggesting that Katie, Sadie, and Leslie were inadequate to do the job?
Isn't Mr. Fitzgerald satisfied with their handiwork? Fitzgerald had also contended that perhaps Linda planted the bloody clothing a few days before it was found. I reminded the jury that Linda was returned to California on December 2nd, in custody, and that the clothing was found on December 15th. Apparently, Mr. Fitzgerald wants you to believe that one night between these dates, Linda snuck out of her room at Sybil Brand, rounded up some clothing, put some blood on them, hitchhiked out to Benedict Canyon Road, threw the clothing over the side of the hill, then hitchhiked back to the jail and snuck back into her room. Fitzgerald had likened the circumstantial evidence in this case to a chain, saying that if one link were missing, the chain was broken. I, instead, likened it to a rope, each strand of which is a fact, and as we add strands, we add strength to that rope, until it is strong enough to bind these defendants to justice. Shin had raised very few points that needed rebutting. Canarac had raised a great many, and I took them on one by one. A few samples. Canarac had asked why the prosecution didn't have the defendants try on the seven articles of clothing to see if they fitted. I reversed this, asking why, if they didn't fit, the defense didn't illustrate this to the jury. As for the absence of Watson's prints on Parent's vehicle, I reminded them of Dolan's testimony that 70% of the times LAPD goes to a crime scene, no readable prints are found. I also noted that in moving his hand, it was very likely Watson had created an unreadable smudge. When I lacked the answer to a question, I frankly admitted it. But usually I offered at least one and often several possibilities. Whom did the glasses belong to? Frankly, we didn't know. But we did know, from Sadie's statement to Roseanne Walker, that they did not belong to the killers. Why was there no blood on the buck knife found in the chair? Canarac had raised this point. It was a good one. We had no answer. We could speculate, however, that Sadie had lost the knife before she stabbed Wojciech and Sharon, possibly while she was in the process of tying up Wojciech, and that at some later point she borrowed another knife from Katie or Tex. Much more important than what knife she used was the fact that she confessed stabbing both of the victims to Virginia Graham and Ronnie Howard. The whole thrust of Irving Canarek's seven-day argument, I told the jury, was that the prosecution had framed its case against his client, Charles Manson. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, I observed, there are seven brutal murders, so the police and the district attorney got together and said, let's prosecute some hippie for these murders, someone whose lifestyle we don't like. Just about any hippie will do. And we just arbitrarily picked on poor Charles Manson. Charles Manson is not a defendant in this trial because he is some long-haired vagabond who made love to young girls and was a virulent dissenter. He is on trial because he is a vicious, diabolical murderer who gave the order that caused seven human beings to end up in the cold earth. That is why he is on trial. I also hit, and hard, Canarac's claim that the prosecution was responsible for the excessive length of the trial. The jury had missed both Christmas and New Year's at home, and I didn't want them entering the jury chambers resenting the prosecution for this. Irving Canarac, the Toscanini of tedium, is accusing the prosecution of tying up this court for over six months. You folks are the best witnesses. Every single solitary witness that the prosecution called to the stand was asked brief questions, directly to the point. The witnesses were on that stand day after day after day on cross-examination, not on direct examination. As for Maxwell Keith, he did everything possible for his client, Leslie Van Houten, I observed. He gave his best. 
Unfortunately for Mr. Keith, he had no facts and no law to support him. Mr. Keith, if you look at his argument very closely, never really disputed that Linda Kasabian and Diane Lake told the truth. Basically, his position was that even if Leslie did the things Linda and Diane said she did, she is still not guilty of anything. I wonder if Max would concede that she is at least guilty of trespassing. Keith, I will. Max's response surprised me. He was, in effect, admitting that Leslie had been in the LaBianca residence. Even if Rosemary LaBianca was dead when Leslie stabbed her, I told the jury, she was guilty of first-degree murder as both a co-conspirator and an aider and a better. If a person is present at the scene of a crime, offering moral support, that constitutes aiding and abetting. But Leslie went far beyond this, stabbing, wiping prints, and so forth. Also, we had only Leslie's word for it that Rosemary was dead when she stabbed her. Only 13 of Rosemary's 41 stab wounds were post-mortem. What about the other 28? Yes, Tex, Sadie, Katie, and Leslie were robots, zombies, automatons. No question about it. But only in the sense that they were totally subservient and obsequious and servile to Charles Manson. Only in that sense. This does not mean that they did not want to do what Charles Manson told them to do and weren't very willing participants in these murders. To the contrary, all the evidence goes the other way. There is no evidence that any of these defendants objected to Charles Manson about these two horrendous nights of murder. Only Linda Kasabian, down in Venice, said, Charlie, I am not you. I can't kill. The others not only didn't complain, I noted, they laughed when the Tate murders were described on TV. Leslie told Diane that stabbing was fun, that the more she stabbed, the more she enjoyed it while Sadie told Virginia and Ronnie that it was better than a sexual climax. The fact that these three female defendants obeyed Charles Manson and did whatever he told them to do does not immunize them from a conviction of first-degree murder. It offers no insulation, no protection whatsoever. If it did, then hired killers or trigger men for the mafia would have a built-in defense for murder. All they would have to say is, well, I did what my boss told me to do. Mr. Keith also suggested that Watson and the three girls had some type of mental disability which prevented them from deliberating and premeditating, even prevented them from having malice aforethought. The problem with this, I told the jury, was that the defense never introduced any evidence of insanity or diminished capacity. On the contrary, I reminded the jury, Fitzgerald described the girls as bright, intuitive, perceptive, well-educated, while the evidence itself showed these defendants were thinking very, very clearly on these two nights of murder. Cutting telephone wires, instructing Linda to listen for sounds, hosing blood off their bodies, disposing of their clothing and weapons, wiping prints. Their conduct clearly and unequivocally shows that on both nights they knew exactly what they were doing, that they intended to kill, they did kill, and they did everything possible to avoid detection. They were not suffering, ladies and gentlemen, from any diminished mental capacity. They were suffering from a diminished heart, a diminished soul. Still up to his old tricks, Kanarek had constantly interrupted my argument with frivolous objections. Even after another contempt citation and a $100 fine, Kanarek persisted. Calling counsel to the bench, Judge Older stated, 
I have come to the regretful conclusion during the course of the trial that Mr. Kanarak appears to be totally without scruples, ethics, and professional responsibility so far as the trial of this lawsuit is concerned, and I want the record to clearly reflect that. Kanarak, may I be sworn? The court. Mr. Kanarak, I wouldn't believe you if you were. With the defense arguments out of the way, I spent an entire afternoon reviewing the eyewitness testimony of Linda Kasabian. Among the instructions Judge Older was going to give the jury was one regarding the testimony of an accomplice. Both Fitzgerald and Kanarek had read the start of it. The testimony of an accomplice ought to be viewed with distrust. They stopped there, however. I read the jury the rest. This does not mean that you may arbitrarily disregard such testimony, but you should give it the weight to which you find it to be entitled after examining it with care and caution in the light of all the evidence in this case. I then took the evidence of other witnesses, totally independent of Linda Kasabian, and showed how it confirmed or supported her testimony. Linda testified that Watson shot Parent four times. Dr. Noguchi testified that Parent was shot four times. Linda testified that Parent slumped over toward the passenger side. The police photographs show Parent slumped over toward the passenger side. Linda testified that Watson slit the screen horizontally. Officer Wisenhunt testified that the screen was slit horizontally. For the night of the Tate murders alone, I noted 45 instances where other evidence confirmed Linda's account. I concluded, ladies and gentlemen, the fingerprint evidence, the firearms evidence, the confessions, and all of the other evidence would convince the world's leading skeptic that Linda Kasabian was telling the truth. I then cited every single piece of evidence against each of the defendants, starting with the girls and ending with Manson himself. I also noted that there were 238 references in the transcript to Manson's domination over the daily lives of his family and his co-defendants. The inference that he must have also been dominating and directing them on the two nights of murder was unmistakable, I pointed out. Thinking back over those many months, I remembered how difficult it had been to come up with even a few. Helter Skelter. During the trial, the evidence of this had come in piece by piece from the mouths of many witnesses. I assembled those pieces now in one devastating package. Very forcefully, and I felt convincingly, I proved that Helter Skelter was the motive for these murders and that the motive belonged to Charles Manson and Charles Manson alone. I argued that when the words Helter Skelter were found printed in blood, it was like finding Manson's fingerprints at the scene. We were nearly finished now. Within a few hours, the jury would begin its deliberations. I ended my summation on a very powerful note. Charles Manson, ladies and gentlemen, said that he had the power to give life. On the nights of the Tate-LaBianca murders, he thought he had the concomitant right to take human life. He never had the right, but he did it anyway. On the hot summer night of August the 8th, 1969, Charles Manson, the Mephistophelian guru who raped and bastardized the minds of all those who gave themselves so totally to him, sent out from the fires of hell at Spawn Ranch three heartless, bloodthirsty robots, and, unfortunately for him, one human being, the little hippie girl, Linda Kasabian. The photographs of the victims show how very well Watson, Atkins, and Krenwinkel carried out their master Charles Manson's mission of murder. What resulted was perhaps the most inhuman, nightmarish, 
horror-filled hour of savage murder and human slaughter in the recorded annals of crime. As the helpless, defenseless victims begged and screamed out into the night for their lives, their lifeblood gushed out of their bodies, forming rivers of gore. If they could have, I am sure that Watson, Atkins, and Krenwinkel would gladly have swum in that river of blood, and with orgasmic ecstasy on their faces. Susan Atkins, the vampira, actually tasted Sharon Tate's blood. The very next night, Leslie Van Houten joined the group of murderers, and it was poor Lino and Rosemary LaBianca who were brutally butchered to death to satisfy Charles Manson's homicidal madness. The prosecution put on a monumental amount of evidence against these defendants, much of it scientific, all of it conclusively proving that these defendants committed these murders. Based on the evidence that came from that witness stand, not only isn't there any reasonable doubt of their guilt, which is our only burden, there is absolutely no doubt whatsoever of their guilt. Ladies and gentlemen, the prosecution did its job in gathering and presenting the evidence. The witnesses did their job by taking that witness stand and testifying under oath. Now you are the last link in the chain of justice. I respectfully ask that after your deliberations you come back into this courtroom with the following verdict. I then read in full the verdict the people wished. I came now to the end of my argument, what the newspapers would call the roll call of the dead. After each name I paused so the jurors could recall the person. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I quietly began, Sharon Tate, Abigail Folger, Wojciech Frykowski, Jay Sebring, Stephen Parent, Lino LaBianca, Rosemary LaBianca, are not here with us now in this courtroom, but from their graves they cry out for justice. Justice can only be served by coming back to this courtroom with a verdict of guilty. Gathering up my notes, I thanked the jury for the patience and attention they had shown throughout the proceedings. It had been a very, very long trial, I noted, and an immense imposition on their personal and private lives. You have been an exemplary jury. The plaintiff at this trial is the people of the state of California. I have all the confidence in the world that you will not let them down. After the noon recess, Judge Older instructed the jury. At 3.20 p.m. on Friday, January 15, 1971, exactly seven months after the start of the trial, the jury filed out to begin their deliberations. The jury deliberated all day Saturday, then took Sunday off. On Monday, they sent out two requests, that they be given a phonograph so they could play the Beatles' White Album, which, though introduced in evidence and much discussed, had never been played in court, and that they be permitted to visit the Tate and LaBianca residences. After lengthy conferences with counsel, Older granted the first request, but denied the second. Though admitting that, not having been to either of the death scenes, he too was naturally curious, the judge decided such visits would be tantamount to reopening the case, complete to the recalling of witnesses, cross-examination, and so on. On Tuesday, the jury asked to have Susan Atkins' letters to her former cellmates re-read to them, this was done. Probably unprecedented in a case of this magnitude and complexity, at no time did the jury request that any of the actual testimony be reread. 
I could only surmise they were relying on the extensive notes each had taken throughout the trial. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. No further messages were received from the jury. Long before the end of the week, the New York Times was reporting that the jury had been out too long, that it appeared they were deadlocked. I wasn't bothered by this. I'd already told the press that I didn't expect them to come back for four or five days at the very minimum, and I wouldn't have been surprised had they stayed out a week and a half. Nor did I worry about our having proven our case. What did worry me was human nature. Twelve individuals from completely different backgrounds had been locked up together longer than any jury in history. I thought a great deal about those twelve persons. One juror had let it be known that he intended to write a book about his experiences, and some of the other jurors were apprehensive about how they might be portrayed. The same juror also wanted to be elected foreman, and when he wasn't even in the running, was so piqued that for a day or two he wouldn't eat with the others. Note. Alva Dawson, the ex-deputy sheriff, and Herman Tubick, the mortician, had tied. A coin was tossed, and Tubick was made foreman. A deeply religious man, who began and ended each day of deliberations with silent prayer, Tubick had been a stabilizing influence during the long sequestration. End of note. Would he, or any of the other eleven, hang up the jury because of some personal animosity or slight? I didn't know. Both Tubick and Rosalind had daughters about the same age as Sadie, Katie, and Leslie. Would this affect their decision? And if so, how? Again, I didn't know. It was rumored, largely on the basis of glances they had exchanged in court, that the youngest member of the jury, William McBride II, had become slightly enamored of defendant Leslie Van Houten. It was unsubstantiated gossip, yet in the long hours the press waited for some word from the jury room, Reporters made bets on whether McBride would vote second degree for Leslie, or perhaps even acquittal. Immediately after my assignment to the case, I'd requested as much information as was available on the background of Charles Manson. Like much of the evidence, it came in piecemeal. Not until after the people had rested their case did I finally receive the records covering the seven months Manson spent at the National Training School for Boys in Washington, D.C., I found most of the information already familiar, with one startling exception. If true, it could very well be the seed which, nurtured with hate, fear, and love, flowered into Manson's monstrous, grotesque obsession with the black-white revolution. Manson had been sent to the institution in March 1951, when he was 16 years old. In his admission summary, which was drawn up after he had been interviewed, there was a section on family background. The first two sentences read, Father unknown. He is alleged to have been a colored cook by the name of Scott, with whom the boy's mother had been promiscuous at the time of pregnancy. Was Manson's father black? Reading through the rest of the records, I found two similar statements, though no additional details. There were several possible explanations for the inclusion of this statement in Manson's records. The first was that it was totally erroneous, some bureaucratic snafu of which Manson himself may even have been unaware. Another possibility was that Manson had lied about this in his interviews, though I couldn't imagine any conceivable benefit he would derive, particularly in a reform school located in the South. It was also possible that it was true. There was one further possibility, and in a sense it was even more important than whether the information was true or false. Did young Charles Manson believe it to be true? 
If so, this would go a long way toward explaining the genesis of his bizarre philosophy, in which the blacks finally triumph over the whites, but eventually have to hand over the reins of power to Manson himself. I knew only one thing for sure. Even had I received this information earlier, I wouldn't have used it. It was much too inflammatory. I did decide, however, to ask Manson himself about it, if I got the chance. I was in bed with the flu when, at 10.15 a.m. on Monday, January 25th, court clerk Gene Darrow telephoned and said, Just got the word. The jury has reached a verdict. Judge Older wants to see all the attorneys in his chambers as soon as they can get here. The Hall of Justice resembled a fortress, as it had since the jury went out. A secret court order had been issued that same day, which began, due to intelligence reports indicating a possible attempt to disrupt proceedings on what has been described as Judgment Day, additional security measures will be implemented. There followed 27 pages of detailed instructions. The entire Hall of Justice had been sealed, anyone entering the building for whatever reason being given a personal effects and body search. I now had three bodyguards, the judge a like number. The reason for this intensive security was never made public. From a source close to the family, LASO had heard what they initially believed to be an incredible tale. While working at Camp Pendleton Marine Base, one of Manson's followers had stolen a case of hand grenades. These were to be smuggled into court on Judgment Day and used to free Manson. Again, we didn't know precisely what the family meant by Judgment Day, but by this time we did know that at least a part of the story was true. A family member had been working in the arms depot at Pendleton, and after he quit, a case of hand grenades was missing. By 11.15, all counsel were in chambers. Before bringing the jury in, Judge Older said he wanted to discuss the penalty trial. California has a bifurcated trial system. The first phase, which we had just completed, was the guilt trial. If any of the defendants were convicted, a penalty trial would follow, in which the same jury would determine the penalty for the offense. In this case, we had requested first-degree murder verdicts against all the defendants. If the jury returned such verdicts, there were only two possible penalties, life imprisonment or death. The penalty trial is, in most cases, very short. After conferring with counsel, Judge Older decided that if there was a penalty phase, it would commence in three days. Older also said he had decided to seal the courtroom until after the verdicts were read and all the jurors polled. Once the jurors and the defendants had been removed, the press would be allowed out, and then the spectators. The girls were brought in first. Though they had usually worn fairly colorful clothing during the trial, apparently there hadn't been time for them to change, as all were wearing drab jail dresses. They seemed in good spirits, however, and were giggling and whispering. On being brought in, Manson winked at them, and they winked back. Charlie was wearing a white shirt and blue scarf, and sporting a new, neatly trimmed goatee. Another face for Judgment Day. Single file, the jurors entered the jury box, taking their assigned seats, just as they had hundreds of times before. Only this time was different, and the spectators searched the twelve faces for clues. Perhaps the most common of all courtroom myths is that a jury won't look at the accused if they have reached a guilty verdict. This is rarely true. None held Manson's gaze when he stared at them, but then neither did they quickly look away. All you could really read in their faces was a tired tenseness. The court. All jurors and alternates are present. All counsel but Mr. Hughes are present. The defendants are present. 
Mr. Tubick, has the jury reached a verdict? Tubick. Yes, Your Honor, we have. The court. Will you hand the verdict forms to the bailiff? Foreman Tubick handed them to Bill Murray, who in turn gave them to Judge Older. As he scanned them, saying nothing, Sadie, Leslie, and Katie fell silent, and Manson nervously fingered his goatee. The court. The clerk will read the verdicts. Clerk. In the Superior Court of the State of California, in and for the County of Los Angeles, the people of the State of California versus Charles Manson, Patricia Krenwinkel, Susan Atkins, and Leslie Van Houten. Case number A-253156, Department 104. Darrow paused before reading the first of the 27 separate verdicts. It seemed minutes, but it was probably only seconds. Everyone sat as if frozen, waiting. We, the jury in the above entitled action, find the defendant, Charles Manson, guilty of the crime of murder of Abigail Folger in violation of Section 187, Penal Code of California, a felony as charged in Count 1 of the indictment, and we further find it to be murder of the first degree. Glancing at Manson, I noticed that, though his face was impassive, his hands were shaking. The girls displayed no emotion whatsoever. The jury had deliberated for 42 hours and 40 minutes, over a nine-day period, a remarkably short time for such a long and complicated trial. The reading of the verdicts took 38 minutes. The people had obtained the verdicts they had requested against Charles Manson, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Susan Atkins. Each had been found guilty of one count of conspiracy to commit murder and seven counts of murder in the first degree. The people had also obtained the verdicts requested against Leslie Van Houten. She had been found guilty of one count of conspiracy to commit murder and two counts of murder in the first degree. I later learned that although McBride had suggested the possibility of a lesser finding against Leslie Van Houten, when it came time to vote, there was only one ballot, and it was unanimous. While the individual jurors were being polled, Leslie turned to Katie and said, Look at the jury. Don't they look sad? She was right. They did. Obviously, it had been a very rough ordeal. As the jury was being taken out, Manson suddenly yelled at Older, We are still not allowed to put on a defense. You won't outlive that, old man. Canarek seemed strangely unmoved by the verdict. Though Fitzgerald told the press, we expected the worst from the start, he appeared thoroughly shaken. Outside court, he told reporters, we felt we lost the case when we lost our change of venue motion. We had a hostile and antagonistic jury. The defendants had the same chance Sam Shepard had in Cleveland. None. Fitzgerald further stated that had the trial been held anywhere but in Los Angeles, he was sure they would have won acquittals for all the defendants. I don't believe that for one minute, I told the press. It is just weeping on the part of the defense. The jury was not only fair, they based their verdict solely and exclusively on the evidence that came from that witness stand. Yes, I responded to the most frequently asked question. We will seek the death penalty against all four defendants. The Manson girls on the corner outside the Hall of Justice first heard the news over the radio. They, too, were strangely calm. Though Brenda told newsmen, there's a revolution coming very soon. And Sandy said, you are next, all of you. These were Manson's words, delivered in court months before, which they had been mouthing ever since. There were no tears, no outward display of emotion. It was as if they really didn't care. 
yet I knew this wasn't true. Watching the interview later on TV, I surmised that perhaps they had conditioned themselves to expect the worst. In retrospect, another possibility emerges. Once the lowest of the low in the Manson hierarchy, good only for sex, procreation, and serving men, the girls had now become his chief apostles, the keepers of the faith. Now Charlie was dependent on them. It appears quite likely that they were undisturbed by the verdict because they were already formulating a plan which, if all went well, could set not only Manson, but all the other family members free. Part 8. Fires in your cities. Mr. and Mrs. America, you are wrong. I am not the king of the Jews, nor am I a hippie cult leader. I am what you have made of me, and the mad dog devil killer fiend leper is a reflection of your society. Whatever the outcome of this madness that you call a fair trial or Christian justice, you can know this. In my mind's eye, my thoughts light fires in your cities. Statement issued by Charles Manson after his conviction for the Tate-LaBianca murders. January 26th to March 17, 1971. During the penalty trial, the sole issue for the jury to decide was whether the defendants should receive life imprisonment or the death penalty. Considerations like mitigating circumstances, background, remorse, and the possibility of rehabilitation were therefore now relevant. To avoid prolonging the trial and risk alienating the jury, I called only two witnesses, Officer Thomas Drynan and Bernard Lotsapapa Crow. Drynan testified that when he arrested Susan Atkins outside Staten, Oregon in 1966, she was carrying a 25 caliber pistol. I asked Miss Atkins what she intended to do with the gun, Drynan recalled, and she told me that if she had the opportunity, she would have shot and killed me. Drynan's testimony proved that even before Susan Atkins met Charles Manson, she had murder in her heart. On cross-examination, Shin asked Drynan about the 25 caliber pistol. Question. The size is very small. It looks like a toy gun. Is that correct? Answer. Well, not to me. Crow described how, on the night of July 1, 1969, Manson had shot him in the stomach and left him for dead. The importance of Crow's testimony was that it proved that Manson was quite capable of committing murder on his own. On February 1st, I arrested the people's case. That afternoon, the defense called their first witnesses, Katie's parents, Joseph and Dorothy Krenwinkel. Joseph Krenwinkel described his daughter as an exceedingly normal child, very obedient. She was a bluebird, campfire girl, and Job's daughter, and belonged to the Ottoman Society. Fitzgerald. Was she gentle with animals? Mr. Cranwinkle. Very much so. Patricia had sung in the church choir, Mr. Cranwinkle testified. Though she was not an exceptional student, she received good grades in the classes she liked. She had attended one semester of college at Spring Hill College, a Jesuit school in Mobile, Alabama, before returning to Los Angeles, where she shared an apartment with her half-sister. The Krenwinkels had divorced when Patricia was 17. According to Joseph Krenwinkel, there was no bitterness. He and his wife had parted and remained friends. Yet just a year later, when Patricia was 18, she had abandoned her family and job to join Manson. Dorothy Krenwinkel said of her daughter, 
she would rather hurt herself than harm any living thing. Fitzgerald, did you love your daughter? Answer, I did love my daughter. I will always love my daughter, and no one will ever convince me she did anything terrible or horrible. Fitzgerald, thank you. Bugliosi, no questions, Your Honor. Fitzgerald wanted to introduce into evidence a number of letters Patricia Krenwinkel had written to various persons, including her father and a favorite priest at Spring Hill. All were hearsay and clearly inadmissible. All I would have needed to do was object, but I didn't. Though aware that they would appeal to the sympathies of the jury, I felt that justice should prevail over technicalities. The issue now was whether this girl should be sentenced to death. And this was an issue for the jury to decide, not me. I felt that in reaching that extremely serious decision, they should have any information even remotely relevant. Fitzgerald was both relieved and very grateful when I let them come in. Keith handled the direct examination of Jane Van Houten, Leslie's mother. Keith later told me that although Leslie's father didn't want to testify, he was behind Leslie 100%. Although, like the Krenwinkels, the Van Houtens were divorced, they too had stuck by their daughter. According to Mrs. Van Houten, Leslie was what you would call a feisty little child, fun to be with. She had a wonderful sense of humor. Born in the Los Angeles suburb of Altadena, she had an older brother and a younger brother and sister, the latter Korean orphans, whom the Van Houtens had adopted. When Leslie was 14, her parents separated and divorced. I think it hurt her very much, Mrs. Van Houten testified. That same year, Leslie fell in love with an older youth, Bobby Mackey, became pregnant, had an abortion, and took LSD for the first time. After that, she dropped acid at least once and often two or three times a week. Note, Patricia Krenwinkel had also taken LSD before meeting Manson. Very obese in her early teens, she began using diet pills at 14 or 15, then tried reds, mescaline, and LSD, provided by her half-sister Charlene, now deceased, who was a heroin addict. End of note. During her freshman and sophomore years at Monrovia High School, Leslie was one of the homecoming princesses. She tried out again her junior year, but this time she didn't make it. Bitter over the rejection, she ran away with Mackey to hate Ashbury. The scene there frightened her, however, and she returned home to finish high school and to complete a year of secretarial training. Mackey, in the meantime, had begun studying with a yoga group. In an attempt to continue their relationship, Leslie joined also giving up both drugs and sex. Her good intentions were short-lived. Within a few months, she broke with both Mackey and the group. Mrs. Van Houten did not testify to the period which followed. Possibly she knew little, if anything, about it. From interviews, I'd learned that Leslie went full spectrum. The one-time yoga renunciate was now anxious to try anything, be it drugs or answering sex partner ads in the Los Angeles Free Press. A long-time friend stopped dating her because she had become too kinky. For a few months, Leslie lived in a commune in Northern California. During this period, she met Bobby Beausoleil, who had his own wandering family, consisting of Gypsy and a girl named Gail. Leslie became a part of the menage à quatre. Gail, however, was jealous, and the arguments became near constant. First, Gypsy split, moving to Spawn Ranch. Then, shortly after, Leslie followed also joining Manson. She was 19. About this time, Leslie called her mother and told her that she had decided to drop out 
and that she wouldn't be hearing from her again. She didn't until Leslie's arrest. Keith asked Mrs. Van Houten, How do you feel about your daughter now? Answer, I love Leslie very much. Question, As much as you always have? Answer, More. As the parents testified, one realized that they too were victims, just as were the relatives of the deceased. Calling the defendant's parents first was a bad tactical error on the part of the defense. Their testimony and plight evoked sympathy from everyone in the courtroom. They should have been called at the very end of the defense's case, just before the jury went out to deliberate. As it was, by the time the other witnesses had testified, they were almost forgotten. Shin called no witnesses on behalf of Susan Atkins. Her father, Shin told me, had refused to have anything more to do with her. All he wanted, he said, was to get his hands on Manson. A reporter from the Los Angeles Times had located Charles Manson's mother in a city in the Pacific Northwest. Remarried and living under another name, she claimed Charles's tales of childhood deprivation were fictions, adding, he was a spoiled, pampered child. Canarek did not use her as a witness. Instead, he called Samuel Barrett, Manson's parole officer. Barrett was a most unimpressive witness. He thought he first met Manson about 1956, around that. He couldn't remember whether Manson was on probation or parole. He stated that since he was responsible for 150 persons, he couldn't be expected to recall everything about each one. Repeatedly, Barrett minimized the seriousness of the various charges against Manson prior to the murders. The reason he did this was obvious. Otherwise, one might wonder why he hadn't revoked Manson's parole. One still did wonder. Manson associated with ex-cons, known narcotics users, and minor girls. He failed to report his whereabouts, made few attempts to obtain employment, repeatedly lied regarding his activities. During the first six months of 1969 alone, he had been charged, among other things, with grand theft auto, narcotics possession, rape, contributing to the delinquency of a minor. There was more than ample reason for parole revocation. During a recess, one of the reporters approached me in the hall. God, Vince, he exclaimed, did it ever occur to you that if Barrett had revoked Manson's parole in, say, April of 1969, Sharon and the others would probably still be alive today? I declined to comment, citing the gag order as an excuse. But it had occurred to me. I had thought about it a great deal. On direct, Barrett had testified that there was nothing in Manson's prison records to indicate that he was a behavioral risk. Over Canarac's objections, on cross-examination, I had him examine the folder on Manson's attempted escape from federal custody in 1957. The parade of perjurers began with Little Squeaky. Lynette Alice Fromm, 22, testified that she was from an upper-middle-class background, her father an aeronautical engineer. When she was 17, she said, her father kicked her out of the house. And I was in Venice, sitting down on a curb crying, when a man walked up and said, Your father kicked you out of the house, did he? And that was Charlie. Squeaky placed great importance on the fact that she had met Manson before any of the other girls, excepting only Mary Bruner. In questioning her about the family, Fitzgerald asked, Did you have a leader? Answer, No, we were riding on the wind. No leader, but Charlie is our father in that he would, he would point out things to us, 
Charlie was just like everyone else, but I would crawl off in a corner and be reading a book, and he would pass me and tell me what it said in the book. And also he knew our thoughts. He was always happy, always. He would go into the bathroom sometimes to comb his hair, and there would be a whole crowd of people in there watching him because he had so much fun. Squeaky had trouble denying the teachings of her lord and master. When Fitzgerald tried to minimize the importance of the Beatles' white album, she replied, There is a lot in that album. There is a lot. Although she claimed, I never heard Charlie utter the words helter-skelter. She went on to say that it is a matter of evolution and balance, and the black people are coming to the top as it should be. Obviously, these were not the answers Fitzgerald wanted, and apparently he betrayed his reaction. From How come you're making those faces? Fitzgerald I'm sorry. Continue. Calling counsel to the bench, Judge Older said, She can only harm the defendants doing what she is doing. I explained to Older, If the court is wondering why I am not objecting, it is because I feel that her testimony is helpful to the prosecution. So helpful, in fact, that there was little need for cross-examination. Among the questions I had intended to ask her, for example, was one Canarac now asked, Did you think that Charles Manson was Jesus Christ? Squeaky hesitated a moment before answering. Would she be the apostle who denied Jesus? Apparently she decided she would not, for she replied, I think that the Christians in the caves and in the woods were a lot of kids just living and being without guilt, without shame, being able to take off their clothes and lay in the sun. And I see Jesus Christ as a man who came from a woman who did not know who the father of her baby was. Squeaky was the least untruthful of the family members who testified. Yet she was so damaging to the defense that thereafter Fitzgerald let the other defense attorneys call the witnesses. Keith called Brenda McCann, true name Nancy Laura Pittman, 19. Though not unattractive, Brenda came across as a tough, vicious little girl, filled with hostility that was just waiting to erupt. Her father designed the guidance controls of missiles over in the Pentagon, she said. He also kicked her out of the house when she was 16, she claimed. The dropout from Hollywood High School asserted there was no such thing as a family, and Charlie was not a leader at all. It was more like Charlie followed us around and took care of us. But as with Squeaky and the girls who would follow her, it was obvious that Brenda's world revolved around a single axis. He was nobody special, but Charlie would sit down and all the animals would gather around him, donkeys and coyotes and things, and one time he reached down and petted a rattlesnake. Questioned by Canarac, Brenda testified that Linda would take LSD every day, took speed. Linda loved Tex very much. Linda followed Tex everywhere. On cross-examination, I asked Brenda, would you give up your life for Charles Manson if he asked you to? Answer. Many times he has given you his life. Question. Just answer the question, Brenda. Answer. Yes, I would. Question. Would you lie on the stand for Charles Manson? Answer. No, I would tell the truth on the stand. Question. So you would die for him, but not lie for him? Answer. That's right. Question. 
Do you feel that lying under oath is a more serious matter than dying, Brenda? Answer. I don't take dying all that seriously myself. All these witnesses were extremely antagonistic toward their real families. Sandra Good, for example, claimed that her father, a San Diego stockbroker, had disowned her, neglecting to mention that this was only after he had sent her thousands of dollars and was threatened by Manson if he didn't give her more. Manson had severed their umbilical cords while fastening one of his own. And throughout their testimony, it showed. Even more than Squeaky and Brenda, Sandy rhapsodized on Manson's magical powers. She told the story of how Charlie had breathed on a dead bird and brought it back to life. I believe his voice could shatter this building if he so desired. Once he yelled and a window broke. It was not until the penalty trial that the jury learned of the vigil of the family members on the corner of Temple and Broadway. Rather movingly, Sandy testified to life there. You can hardly see the sky most of the time for the smog. They are always digging. Every day there is a new project going. Something is always under construction. They are always ripping out something and putting something in, usually of a concrete nature. It is insane out there. It's madness, and the more I am out there, the more I feel this X. I am X'd out of it. After I'd declined to cross-examine Sandy, she very angrily asked, Why didn't you ask me any questions? Because you said nothing which hurt the people's case, Sandy, I replied. In fact, you helped it. I had anticipated that Sandy would testify that Manson wasn't even at Spahn Ranch at the time the murders had occurred. When she didn't, I knew the defense had decided to abandon the idea of using an alibi defense, which meant they had something else in mind. But what? Manson and the three female defendants had been allowed to return to court during the penalty phase. They were much quieter now, far more subdued, as if it had finally got through to them that this play, as Krenwinkel had characterized it, might cost them their lives. While Squeaky and the other Manson girls testified, their mentor looked thoughtful and pulled on his goatee, as if to say, they're telling it like it is. The female witnesses wore their best clothes for the occasion. It was obvious that they were both proud and happy to be up there helping Charlie. The jurors shared a common expression, incredulity. Few even bothered to take notes. I suspected that all of them were mulling over the astonishing contrast. On the stand, the girls talked of love, music, and babies. Yet while the love and the music and the babies were going on, this same group was going out and butchering human beings. And to them, amazingly enough, there was no inconsistency, no conflict between love and murder. By February 4th, I was fairly sure, from the questions Canarac had been asking the witnesses, that Manson was not going to take the stand. This was my biggest disappointment during the entire trial, that I wouldn't have the chance to break Charlie on cross-examination. That same day, our office learned that Charles Tex Watson had been returned to Los Angeles and ruled competent to stand trial. Only three days after his transfer to Atascadero, Watson had begun eating regular meals. Within a month, one of the psychiatrists who examined him wrote, there is no evidence of abnormal behavior at the present time except his silence, which is purposeful and with reason. Another later noted, psychological testing gave a scatter pattern of responses inconsistent with any recognized form of mental illness. In short, Tex was faking it. All this information would be useful, I knew, if Tex tried to plead insanity during his trial, 
which was now scheduled to follow the current proceedings. Catherine Scher, a.k.a. Gypsy, was the defense's most effective liar. She was also, at 28, the oldest female member of the family. And of all its members, she had the most unusual background. She was born in Paris in 1942, her father a Hungarian violinist, her mother a German-Jewish refugee. Both parents, members of the French underground, committed suicide during the war. At eight, she was adopted and brought to the United States by an American family. Her adoptive mother, who was suffering from cancer, committed suicide when Catherine was 16. Her adoptive father, a psychologist, was blind. She cared for him until he remarried, at which time she left home. A graduate of Hollywood High School, she had attended college for three years, married, divorced a year later. A violin virtuoso since childhood, with an unusually beautiful singing voice, she had obtained work in a number of movies. It was on the set of one, in Topanga Canyon, that she became involved with Bobby Beausoleil, who had a minor role. About two months later, Beausoleil introduced her to Charles Manson. Though it was, on her part, love at first sight, she continued traveling with the Beausoleil menage for another six months, before splitting for Spahn Ranch. Although she was an avowed communist when she joined the family, Manson soon convinced her that his dogma was ordained. Of all the girls, Paul Watkins had told me, Gypsy was most in love with Charlie. She was also the most eloquent in his defense. But, though brighter and more articulate than most of the others, she too occasionally slipped up. We are all facing the same sentence, she told the jury. We are all in a gas chamber right here in L.A., a slow-acting one. The air is going away from us in every city. There is going to be no more air and no more water, and the food is dying. They are poisoning you. The food you are eating is poisoning you. There is going to be no more earth, no more trees. Man, especially white man, is killing this earth. But those aren't Charles Manson's thoughts. Those are my thoughts, she quickly added. During her first day on the stand, Gypsy dropped no bombshells. She did try to rebut various parts of the trial testimony. She said that Leslie often went out and stole things to explain away the backhouse incident. She claimed that it was Linda who suggested stealing the $5,000. She also said that Linda didn't want Tanya and had dumped her on the family. It was not until her second day on the stand, on redirect by Canarac, and immediately after Canarac had asked to approach the witness and speak to her privately, that Gypsy suddenly came up with an alternative motive, one that was designed to clear Manson of any involvement in the murders. Gypsy claimed that it was Linda Kasabian, not Charles Manson, who had masterminded the Tate-LaBianca murders. Linda was in love with Bobby Beausoleil, Gypsy said. When Bobby was arrested for the Hinman murder, Linda proposed that the girls commit other murders which were similar to the Hinman slaying, in the belief that the police would connect the crimes, and, realizing that Beausoleil was in custody when these other murders occurred, set him free. The copycat motive was in itself not a surprise. In fact, Aaron Stovitz had suggested it as one of several possible motives in his interview with the reporters from Rolling Stone. There was only one thing wrong with it. It wasn't true. But in an attempt to clear Manson and to cast doubt on the helter-skelter motive, the defense witnesses, starting with Gypsy, now began manufacturing their own bogus evidence. The scenario they had so belatedly fashioned was as transparent as it was self-serving. 
Gypsy claimed that on the afternoon of August 8, 1969, Linda explained the plan to her and asked her if she wanted to go along. Horrified, Gypsy instead fled to the mountains. When she returned, the murders had already occurred, and Linda was gone. Gypsy further testified that Bobby Beausoleil was innocent of the Hinman murder. All he had done was drive a car belonging to Hinman. And Manson wasn't involved either. The Hinman murder had been committed by Linda, Sadie, and Leslie. Maxwell Keith quickly objected. At the bench, he told Judge Older, It sounds to me like this girl is leading up to testimony of an admission by my client to her participation in the Hinman, Tate, and LaBianca murders. This is outrageous. The court. I don't know if Mr. Kanarek has the faintest idea of what he wants to do. Fitzgerald. I am afraid so. Kanarek. I know exactly. Keith observed, I talked to this witness yesterday at the county jail about her testimony. It was sort of innocuous testimony regarding Leslie. And all of a sudden, boom, we are being bombed out of the courtroom. On cross-examination, I asked, Isn't it true, Gypsy, that what you are trying to do is clear Charles Manson at the expense of Leslie and Sadie? Answer, I wouldn't say that. No, it isn't true. To destroy her credibility, I then impeached Gypsy with a number of inconsistent statements she had previously made. Only then did I return to the bogus motive. Gypsy had testified that immediately after hearing of the Tate-LaBianca murders, she was sure that Linda, Leslie, and Sadie were involved. I asked her, If in your mind Linda, Sadie, and Leslie were somehow involved in the Tate-LaBianca murders, and Mr. Manson was innocent and had nothing to do with it, why haven't you come forward before today to tell the authorities about this conversation you had with Linda? Answer. I didn't want anything to do with it. I don't believe in coming to you at all. Earlier on cross-examination, Gypsy had admitted that she loved Manson, that she would willingly die for him. After reminding her of these statements, I said, All right. And you believe he had nothing to do with these murders, right? Answer. Right. Question. And yet you let him stay in jail all these months without coming forward with this valuable information? Gypsy evaded a straight reply. Question. When was the first time that you told anyone about this infamous conversation that you had with Linda when she asked you to go out and murder someone? Answer. Right here. Question. Today? Answer. Uh-huh. Question. So today, on the witness stand, was the first time that you decided to release all this valuable information, is that right? Answer. That's right. I had her. I could now argue to the jury that here's Manson being tried for seven counts of murder, and there's Gypsy out on the corner of Temple and Broadway 24 hours a day since the start of the trial, a girl who loves Manson and would give her life for him, but who waits until well into the penalty trial, and on redirect at that, before she decides to tell anyone what she knows. At 6.01 a.m. on February 9, 1971, a monster earthquake shook most of Southern California. Measuring 6.5 on the Richter scale, it claimed 65 lives and caused millions of dollars worth of damage. I awoke thinking the family was trying to break into our house. The jurors awoke to find water cascading on them from broken pipes above their rooms. The girls on the corner told reporters Charlie had caused the quake. Despite the disaster, court resumed at the usual time that morning, with Susan Atkins taking the stand to trigger an earthquake of her own.
Day Shin's first question of his client was, Susan, were you personally involved in the Tate and LaBianca homicides? Susan, who was wearing a dark jumper and a white blouse and looking very little girlish, calmly replied, Yes. Although by this time all counsel knew that the three girls intended to take the stand and confess, Fitzgerald having mentioned it in chambers nearly a week before, the jury and spectators were stunned. They looked at each other as if disbelieving what they had heard. Shin then took Susan through her background. Her early religious years, I sang in the church choir. The death of her mother from cancer, I couldn't understand why she died, and it hurt me. Her loss of faith, her problems with her father. My father kept telling me, you're going downhill, so I just went downhill. Her experiences as a topless dancer in San Francisco. Her explanation for why she was carrying a gun when arrested in Oregon. I was afraid of snakes. And her introduction to drugs, hate ashbury and her first fateful meeting with Charles Manson. Returning to the crimes, she testified, This whole thing started when I killed Gary Hinman because he was going to hurt my love. Judge Older called the noon recess. Before leaving the stand, Susan turned toward me and said, Look at it, Mr. Bugliosi. Your whole thing, man, is just gone. Your whole motive. It is so silly, so dumb. That afternoon, Sadie recited the newly revised version of how the Hinman murder went down. According to Susan, when Manson arrived at the Hinman residence to persuade Gary to sign over the pink slip on a car they had already purchased, Gary drew a gun on him. As Manson fled, Gary tried to shoot him in the back. I had no choice. He was going to hurt my love. I had my knife on me, and I ran at him, and I killed him. Bobby was taken to jail for something that I did. The holes in her story were a mile wide. I noted them for my cross-examination. After the arrest of Beausoleil, Susan testified, Linda proposed committing copycat murders, and she told me to get a knife and a change of clothes. She said these people in Beverly Hills had burned her for $1,000 for some new drug, MDA. Before leaving Spawn Ranch, Susan said, Linda gave me some LSD, and she gave Tech some STP. Linda issued all the directions that night. No one told Charlie where we were going or what we were going to do. Linda had been there before, so she knew where to go. Tex went crazy, shot parent. Linda went inside the house. Linda gave me her knife. At this point in her narrative, Day Shin opened the blade of the buck knife and started to hand the knife to Susan. The court put that knife back the way it was. Shin I only wanted to get the dimensions, Your Honor. Susan skipped ahead in her narrative. She was holding Sharon Tate, and Tex came back, and he looked at her, and he said, Kill her. And I killed her. And I just stabbed her, and she fell. And I stabbed her again. I don't know how many times I stabbed her. Sharon begged for the life of her baby, and I told her, Shut up. I don't want to hear it. Though Susan's words were horrifyingly chilling, her expression for the most part remained simple, even childlike. There was only one way to describe the contrast. It was incredibly obscene. In discussing the Hinman murder, Susan had placed Leslie Van Houten at the murder scene. 
there had never been any evidence whatsoever that Leslie was involved in the Hinman murder. In discussing the night the LaBiancas were killed, Susan made some additional changes in the cast of characters. Manson didn't go along, she said. Linda drove. Tex creepy-crawled the LaBianca residence. Linda instructed Tex, Katie, and Leslie what to do. Linda suggested killing the actor in Venice. And when they returned to Spawn Ranch, Charlie was there sleeping. Just as improbable was another of her fictional embellishments. She had implicated Manson in her conversation with me and in her testimony before the grand jury, she claimed, because I had promised her that if she did so, I would personally see that none of the defendants, including Manson, would receive the death penalty. The best reputation of this was that she had implicated Manson on the tape she made with Caballero, days before our first meeting. Describing that meeting, Sadie said, Buliosi walked in. I think he was dressed similar to the way he is dressed now. Gray suit, vest. Question. This was way back in 1969, right? Answer. Right. He looked a lot younger then. We'd all gone through a lot in the last 14 months. Shin then began questioning Susan about Shorty. I asked to approach the bench. Buliosi. Your Honor, I can't believe what is going on here. He is talking about Shorty Shea now. Turning today, I said, You are hurting yourself if you bring in other murders, and you are hurting the co-defendants. Older agreed, and cautioned Shin to be extremely careful. I was worried that if Shin continued, the case might be reversed on appeal. What conceivable rationale could there be for having your client take the stand and confess to a murder with which she isn't even charged? Fitzgerald took over the direct. He asked Susan why the Tate victims were killed. Answer. Because I believed it was right to get my brother out of jail. And I still believe it was right. Question. Miss Atkins. Were any of these people killed as a result of any personal hate or animosity that you had toward them? Answer, no. Question, did you have any feeling toward them at all? Any emotional feeling toward any of these people? Sharon Tate, Wojciech Vrykowski, Abigail Folger, Jay Sebring, Stephen Parent? I didn't know any of them. How could I have felt any emotion without knowing them? Fitzgerald asked Susan if she considered these mercy killings. Answer, no. As a matter of fact, I believe I told Sharon Tate I didn't have any mercy for her. Susan went on to explain that she knew what she was doing was right when I was doing it. She knew this because when you do the right thing, it feels good. Question, how could it be right to kill somebody? Answer, how could it not be right when it is done with love? Question. Did you ever feel any remorse? Answer. Remorse? For doing what was right to me? Question. Did you ever feel sorry? Answer. Sorry for doing what was right to me? I have no guilt in me. Fitzgerald looked beaten. By bringing out her total lack of remorse, he had made it impossible for the defense to persuasively argue that she was capable of rehabilitation. We had reached a strange situation. Suddenly, in the penalty phase, long after the jury had found the four defendants guilty, I was, in a sense, having to prove Manson's guilt all over again. 
If I cross-examined too strenuously, it would appear that I did not feel that we had proven our case. If I eschewed cross-examination, there was the possibility of leaving a lingering doubt as to guilt, which, when it came time for their deliberations, could influence the jury's vote on penalty. Therefore, I had to proceed very carefully, as if trying to walk between raindrops. The defense, and specifically Irving Canarak, had tried to plant such a doubt by providing an alternative to helter-skelter, the copycat motive. Though I felt the testimony on this was thoroughly unconvincing, this didn't mean I could sit back and presume the jury would feel as I did. As an explanation for why she was lying to save him, it was important that I conclusively prove to the jury Susan Atkins's total commitment to Manson. At the start of my cross-examination, I asked her, Sadie, do you believe Charles Manson is the second coming of Christ? Answer, Vince, I have seen Christ in so many people in the last four or five years, it is hard for me to say which one exactly is the second coming of Christ. I repeated the question. Answer. I have thought about it. I have thought about it quite a bit. I have entertained the thought that he was Christ, yes. I don't know. Could be. If he is, wow, my goodness. After confronting her with her letter to Ronnie Howard, in which she stated... If you can believe in the second coming of Christ, M is he who has come to save. I asked her, Even now on the witness stand, Sadie, you think that maybe Charles Manson, the man over there who is playing with his hair, might be Jesus Christ? Answer, Maybe. I will leave it at that. Maybe yes. Maybe no. I persisted until Susan admitted, he represented a God to me that was so beautiful that I'd do anything for him. Question. Even commit murder? I asked instantly. Answer. I'd do anything for God. Question. Including murder? I pressed. Answer. That's right. If I believed it was right. Question. And you murdered the five people at the Tate residence for your God, Manson, didn't you? Susan paused, then said, I murdered them for my god, Bobby Beausoleil. Question. Oh, so you have two gods? Evasively, she replied, There is only one god, and god is in all. Since Susan had now testified to these matters, the prosecution was able to use her prior inconsistent statements, including her grand jury testimony, for impeachment purposes. On cross-examination, I had Susan repeat the alleged reasons why they went to the Tate residence. Once she'd restated the copycat nonsense, I hit her with her statements regarding Helter Skelter's being the motive, made to me, to the grand jury, and in the Howard letter. I also brought out that she had told me, and the grand jury, that Manson had ordered the seven Tate-LaBianca murders, that Charlie had directed all their activities the second night, and that none of them had been on drugs either night. I then led her back through her scenario of the Hinman, Tate, and LaBianca murders, step by step, knowing she would slip up, which she did repeatedly. For example, I asked, Where was Charles Manson when you stabbed Gary Hinman to death? Answer, He left. He left right after he cut Gary's ear. Having inadvertently admitted this, she quickly added that she had tried to sew up Hinman's ear. I then took her back again. Hinman drew a gun on Manson. Manson ran. Hinman started to shoot Manson. To protect her love, she stabbed Hinman to death. 
Just when, I asked, did she have time to play Florence Nightingale? Susan further claimed that she didn't tell Manson that she had killed Hinman until after their arrest in the Barker raid. In other words, though she had lived with Manson from July to October 1969, she hadn't got around to mentioning this? That's right. Why? Because he never asked. She hadn't even told him she committed the Tate and LaBianca murders, she claimed. Nor, until two days ago, had she told anyone that Linda Kasabian masterminded the murders. Question. Between August 9, 1969 and February 9, 1971, how come you never told anyone that Linda was behind these murders? Answer. Because I didn't. It's that simple. Question. Did you tell anyone in the family that you committed all these murders? Answer. No. Question. If you told outsiders like Ronnie Howard and Virginia Graham, how come you didn't tell members of your own family, Sadie? Answer. Nothing needed to be said. What I did was what I did with those people, and that is what I did. Question. Just one of those things? Seven dead bodies? Answer. No big thing. I paused to let this incredible statement sink in before asking, So, killing seven people is just business as usual. No big deal. Is that right, Sadie? Answer. It wasn't at the time. It was just there to do. I asked her how she felt about the victims. She responded, They didn't even look like people. I didn't relate to Sharon Tate as being anything but a store mannequin. Question. You have never heard a store mannequin talk, have you, Sadie? Answer. No, sir. But she just sounded like an IBM machine. She kept begging and pleading and pleading and begging, and I got sick of listening to her, so I stabbed her. Question. And the more she screamed, the more you stabbed, Sadie? Answer, yes. So? Question. And you looked at her and you said, Look, bitch, I have no mercy for you. Is that right, Sadie? Answer. That's right. That's what I said then. Bugliosi. No further questions. On Tuesday, February 16th, after lengthy discussions in chambers, Judge Older told the jury that he had decided to end the sequestration. Their surprise and elation were obvious. They had been locked up for over eight months, the longest sequestration of any jury in American history. Though I remained worried about possible harassment from the family, most of the other reasons for the sequestration, such as mention of the Hinman murder, Susan Atkins's confession in the Los Angeles Times, her grand jury testimony, and so on, no longer existed since the jury heard this evidence when Sadie and the others took the stand. It was almost as if we had a new jury. When the twelve entered the box the next day, there were smiles on all their faces. I couldn't remember when I'd last seen them smiling. The smiles would not remain there long. Patricia Krenwinkel now took the stand to confess her part in the Tate and LaBianca homicides. An even more improbable witness than Susan Atkins her testimony regarding the copycat motive was vague, nebulous, and almost devoid of supporting detail. The point in her taking the stand was to take the focus off Manson. 
Instead, like the other family members who had preceded her, she repeatedly highlighted his importance. For example, describing life at Spawn Ranch, she said, We were just like wood nymphs and wood creatures. We would run through the woods with flowers in our hair, and Charlie would have a small flute. On the murder of Abigail Folger. And I had a knife in my hands, and she took off running, and she ran. She ran out through the back door, one I never even touched. I mean, nobody got fingerprints because I never touched that door. And I stabbed her and kept stabbing her. Question. What did you feel after you stabbed her? Answer. Nothing. I mean, like, what is there to describe? It was just there, and it's like it was right. On the murder of Rosemary LaBianca, According to Katie, she and Leslie took Rosemary LaBianca into the bedroom and were looking through the dresses in her closet, when, hearing Lino scream, Rosemary grabbed a lamp and swung at them. On the mutilation of Lino LaBianca. After murdering Rosemary, Katie remembered seeing Lino lying on the floor in the living room. She flashed, You won't be sending your son off to war. And, I guess I put war on the man's chest. And then I guess I had a fork in my hands, and I put it in his stomach. And I went and wrote on the walls. On cross-examination, I asked her, When you were on top of Abigail Folger, plunging your knife into her body, was she screaming? Answer, yes. Question, and the more she screamed, the more you stabbed? Answer, I guess. Question, did it bother you when she screamed for her life? Answer, no. Katie testified that when she stabbed Abigail, she was really stabbing herself. My next question was rhetorical. But you didn't bleed at all, did you, Katie? Just Abigail did. Isn't that right? The defense was contending, through these witnesses, that the words political piggy, Hinman, pig, Tate, and death to pigs, La Bianca, were the clues which the killers felt would cause the police to link the three crimes. But when I'd asked Sadie why she'd written political piggy on the wall of the Hinman residence in the first place, she had no satisfactory answer. Nor could she tell me why, if these were to be copycat murders, she'd only written pig and not political piggy at Tate. Nor was Katie now able to give a convincing explanation as to why she'd written helter-skelter on the La Bianca's refrigerator door. It was obvious that Maxwell Keith wasn't buying the copycat motive either. On redirect, he asked Katie, The homicides at the Tate residence and the La Bianca residence had nothing to do, did they, with trying to get Bobby Beausoleil out of jail? Answer, Well, it's hard to explain. It was just a thought, and the thought came to be. Judge Older was becoming increasingly irritated with Canarac. Repeatedly, he warned him that if he persisted in asking inadmissible questions, he would find him in contempt for the fifth time. Nor was he very happy with Day Shin. Shin had been observed passing a note from a spectator to Susan Atkins. The week before, the girls on the corner had been seen reading court transcripts which had Shin's name on them. Confronted with this by Older, Shin explained, they borrowed them to look at them. The court. I beg your pardon? Are you familiar with the publicity order in this case? Shin admitted that he was. The court. 
It appears to me, Mr. Shin, that you are not paying the slightest attention to the publicity order, and you haven't been for some time. I have felt in my own mind for a long, long time that the leak, and there is a leak, is you. Maxwell Keith very reluctantly called his client, Leslie Van Houten, to the stand. After taking her through her background, Keith asked to approach the bench. He told Older that his client was going to involve herself in the Hinman murder. He had discussed this with her for hours and hours, but to no avail. Once she began reciting her tale, the transparency of her fictions became obvious. According to Leslie, Mary Bruner was never at the Hinman residence, while both Charles Manson and Bobby Beausoleil left before the actual killing took place. It was Sadie, she said, who killed Gary. Though implicating herself in the Hinman murder, at least by her presence, Leslie did try to provide some mitigating circumstances for her involvement in the LaBianca murders. She claimed she knew nothing about the Tate murders, and that when she went along the next night, she had no idea where they were going or what they were going to do. The murder of Rosemary LaBianca was made to seem almost like self-defense. Only after Rosemary swung at her with the lamp did she take one of the knives, and Patricia had a knife, and we started stabbing and cutting up the lady. Question. Up to that time, did you have any intention of hurting anybody? Answer. No. Question. Did you stab her after she appeared to be dead, Les? Answer. I don't know if it was before or after she was dead, but I stabbed her. I don't know if she was dead. She was lying there on the floor. Question. Had you stabbed her at all before you saw her lying on the floor? Answer. I don't remember. Leslie's forgetting such things was almost as improbable as her claim that she hadn't mentioned the murders to Manson until they were in the desert. Very carefully, Keith tried to establish that Leslie had remorse for her act. Question. Leslie, do you feel sorrow or shame or a sense of guilt for having participated in the death of Mrs. LaBianca? Answer. Pause. Question. Let me go one by one. Do you feel sorrowful about it? Sorry? Unhappy? You could almost feel the chill in the courtroom when Leslie answered, Sorry is only a five-letter word. It can't bring back anything. Question. I am trying, Leslie, to discover how you feel about it. Answer. What can I feel? It has happened. She is gone. Question. Do you wish that it hadn't happened? Answer. I never wish anything to be done over another way. That is a foolish thought. It never will happen that way. You can't undo something that is done. Question. Do you feel as if you wanted to cry for what happened? Answer. Cry? For her death? If I cry for death, it is for death itself. She is not the only person who has died. Question. Do you think about it from time to time? Answer. Only when I am in the courtroom. Through most of the trial, Leslie Van Houten had maintained her innocent little girl act. She dropped it now, the jury seeing for the first time how cold and unfeeling she really was. Another aspect of her real nature surfaced when Canarac examined her. Angry and impatient at some of his questions, she snapped back hostile, sarcastic replies. With each spurt of venom, you could see the jurors drawing back, 
looking at her as if anew. Whatever sympathy she may have generated earlier was gone now. Even McBride no longer met her eyes. Leslie Van Houten had been found guilty of two homicides. I felt she deserved the death penalty for her very willing participation in those acts. But I didn't want the jury to vote death on the basis of a crime she didn't even commit. I told her attorney, Maxwell Keith, that I was willing to stipulate that Leslie was not at the Hinman residence. I mean, the jury is apt to think she was and hold it against your client, and I don't think that is right. Also, during cross-examination, I asked, Did you tell anyone, prior to your testimony on the witness stand, that it was you who was along with Sadie and Bobby Beausoleil at Gary Hinman's house? Answer, I told Patricia about it. Question, actually, it was Mary Bruner who was inside the residence, not you, isn't that correct? Answer, that is what you say. Although I was attempting to exonerate Leslie of any complicity in the Gary Hinman murder, I did the opposite when it came to the murder of Rosemary LaBianca. By the time I'd finished my cross-examination on this, Leslie had admitted that Rosemary might still have been alive when she stabbed her, and that she not only stabbed her in the buttocks and possibly the neck, but I could have done a couple on the back. As I'd later remind the jury, many of the back wounds were not post-mortem, while one, which severed Rosemary LaBianca's spine, would have been in and of itself fatal. As with Sadie and Katie, I emphasized the improbabilities in her copycat tale. For example, though she had testified that she was hopelessly in love with Bobby Beausoleil and became aware that these murders had been committed in an attempt to free him, I brought out that she hadn't even offered to testify in either of his trials when her story, had it been true, could have resulted in his release. At this point, I decided to go on a fishing expedition. Though I had no definite knowledge that this was so, I strongly suspected that Leslie had told her first attorney, Marvin Part, the true story of these murders. I did know that Part had recorded her story, and though I never heard the tape, I recalled Part almost begging the judge to listen to it. Bugliosi. Isn't it true, Leslie, that before the trial started, you told someone that Charles Manson ordered these murders? Answer. I had a court-appointed attorney, Marvin Part, who was insistent on the fact that I was... Keith interrupted her, objecting that we were getting into the area of privileged communications. I noted to Judge Older that Leslie herself had mentioned Part by name, and that she had the right to waive the privilege. Canarek also objected, well aware of what I was hoping to bring out. Van Houten. Mr. Canarek, will you shut up so I can answer his question? I had a court-appointed attorney by the name of Marvin Part. He had a lot of different thoughts, which were all his own, on how to get me off. He said he was going to make some tape recordings, and he told me the gist of what he wanted me to say. And I said it. Question. What did you tell Mr. Part? Answer. I don't remember. It was a long time ago. I asked her if she told Part that Manson had ordered these murders. Answer. Sure, I told him that. Did she tell Part that Manson was along the second night, and that when they stopped on Waverly Drive, Manson got out and entered the LaBianca house? After a number of evasive replies, Leslie angrily answered, Sure, I told him that. The court. We will take our recess at this time. Van Houten. Mr. Bugliosi, you are an evil man. Each of the family witnesses denied that Manson hated blacks. 
but in the light of what I'd recently learned, several put it in a very curious way. When Fitzgerald asked Squeaky, did he love the black man or did he hate him? She had replied, he loved them. He is his father. The black man is Charlie's father. Gypsy had testified, first of all, Charlie spent nearly all of his life in jail, so he got to know the black people very, very well. In fact, I mean, they were like his father, you know. Leslie had said something very similar, adding, if Charlie hated black people, he would hate himself. During a recess, I asked Manson, Charlie, was your father black? What? He seemed startled by the question, yet whether because it was such a crazy idea or because I'd found out something he didn't want known, I couldn't tell. There was nothing evasive about his eventual response, however. He emphatically denied it. He seemed to be telling the truth, yet I wondered. I still do. The next witness was no stranger to the stand. Brought back from New Hampshire at the request of Irving Canarak, Linda Kasabian was again sworn. Fitzgerald, Keith, and Shin had opposed calling her. Canarak should have listened to their advice, as Linda again came over so well that I didn't even cross-examine her. None of her previous testimony was shaken in the slightest. Linda, her husband, and their two children were living together on a small farm in New Hampshire. The footloose Bob Kasabian had turned out to be a pillar of strength, and I was pleased to hear that their marriage now seemed to be working. Ruth Ann Morehouse, a.k.a. Weesh, age 20, who'd once told Danny DiCarlo she couldn't wait to get her first pig, repeated the now familiar refrain, Charlie was no leader, but the rattlesnakes liked him, he could play with them, and he could change old men into young men. Adding a few more fictional touches to the copycat motive, Weesh claimed that Bobby Beausoleil was the father of Linda Kasabian's second child. I asked her, you would do anything to help Charles Manson and these three female defendants, wouldn't you, Weesh? When she evaded a direct reply, I asked, You would even murder for them, wouldn't you? Answer, I could not take a life. Question, All right, let's talk about that, Weesh. Do you know a girl by the name of Barbara Hoyt? On the advice of her attorney, Weesh refused to answer any questions about the Hoyt murder attempt. By law, when a witness refuses to be cross-examined, that witness's entire testimony can be stricken. This was done in Weish's case. Easily the weirdest of all the witnesses was Steve Grogan, a.k.a. Clem, age 19. He spoke of the engrams on his brain, answered questions about his father by talking about his mother, and claimed that the real leader of the family was not Manson, but Pooh Bear, Mary Bruner's child by Manson. Canarek complained at the bench that Older was smiling at Grogan's replies. Older responded, I find nothing whatsoever funny about this witness, I can assure you. Why you would want to call him is beyond my comprehension, but that is up to you. No jury will ever believe this witness, I promise you that. The youth who beheaded Shorty Shea appeared to be a complete idiot. He grinned incessantly, made funny faces, and played with his beard even more than Manson. Yet it was more than partly role-playing, as several of his very careful replies indicated. Clem recalled accompanying Linda, Leslie, Sadie, Tex, and Katie one night in a car. He claimed that Linda had given them all LSD first, and he insisted that Manson was not along, 
but he was very careful not to say that this was the night of the LaBianca murders, to avoid implicating himself. Many of his responses were almost exact quotations from Manson. For example, when I asked him, When did you join the family, Clem? He replied, When I was born of white skin. I also asked him, since it had been brought out on the direct examination, about his arrest in the Barker raid. What had he been charged with, I inquired. Answer. I was arrested on a breach of promise. Question. Breach of promise? Some girl you made a promise to, Clem, or what? Answer. It was a promise to return a truck on a certain date. Question. Oh, I get it. Sometimes that is called Grand Theft Auto, too, isn't it, Clem? The defense called their next witness, Vincent T. Bugliosi. At the bench, Fitzgerald admitted that this was an unusual situation. On the other hand, in this case, Mr. Bugliosi has been an investigator as well as a prosecutor. Day Shin questioned me about my interview with Susan Atkins and her testimony before the grand jury. Why did I feel Susan hadn't told the grand jury the whole truth, he asked. I enumerated the reasons, noting, among other things, my belief that she had stabbed Sharon Tate. Question. How did you come to that conclusion? Answer. She admitted it on the witness stand, Mr. Shin, for one thing. Also, she told Ronnie Howard and Virginia Graham that she stabbed Sharon Tate. Shin was trying to reinstate the deal in which the DA's office agreed not to seek the death penalty against Susan if she testified truthfully. As Older told him at the bench, Susan Atkins took the stand in this case under oath and testified that she was lying at the grand jury. If there'd been any agreement, that in itself would have been enough to negate it. Keith asked me if I had either heard the tape Leslie made with part or discussed its contents with him. I replied that I had not. Canarac's cross-examination went so far afield that Judge Older finally terminated it. Others who took the stand in succeeding days included Aaron Stovitz, Evel Younger, former Los Angeles District Attorney and now California State Attorney General, attorneys Paul Caruso and Richard Caballero, and promoter Lawrence Schiller. Every aspect of the December 4, 1969 agreement, the taping of Atkins's account, the selling of her story, her grand jury testimony, and her firing of Caballero the day after her meeting with Manson was discussed. Shin's most strenuous cross-examination of the entire trial took place when he had Schiller on the stand. Shin wanted to know exactly how much Susan's story had earned, and in which bank accounts every penny was. Shin was to receive Susan's share for representing her. During my cross-examination of these witnesses, I scored a number of significant points. I brought out through Caruso, for example, that during the December 4, 1969 meeting, he had stated that Susan Atkins probably wouldn't testify at the trial because of her fear of Manson. Canarac, however, scored one of the biggest points for the prosecution. In questioning Caballero, Atkins's former attorney, he asked, What did Susan Atkins tell you about the language written in blood at these three homes? Caballero. I told you not to ask me that question, Irving. Apparently convinced that Caballero was hiding something favorable to his client, Canarac repeated the question. Caballero sighed and said, She told me that Charles Manson had wanted to bring on Helter Skelter, and it wasn't happening fast enough, 
and the use of the word pig was for the purpose of making them think that Negroes were committing these crimes, because the Panthers and people like that are the ones that use the name pig to mean the establishment, and that was the whole purpose of it. That Helter Skelter wasn't happening fast enough, and Charlie was going to bring on the ruination of the world. And this is why all the murders were committed. I asked you not to ask me these questions, Mr. Canarak. Having failed abysmally in their attempt to sell the copycat motive, the defense now switched to a new tactic. They called a number of psychiatrists to the stand, hoping to establish that LSD had affected the minds of the three female defendants to the extent that they were not responsible for their acts. It was not a real defense, but it could be made to seem a mitigating circumstance which, unless thoroughly rebutted, might tip the scales in favor of life imprisonment. Their first witness, Dr. Andre Tweed, professed to be an expert on LSD, but almost all of his testimony was contrary to that of acknowledged experts in the field. Tweed claimed he knew of one case where a youth while under LSD heard voices which told him to kill his mother and his grandmother, and he did just that. On the basis of this single, unidentified case, Tweed concluded that people may perform homicidal acts while under the influence of LSD. It was also his opinion, he said, that LSD probably caused brain damage. On cross-examination, I brought out that Dr. Tweed had only talked to Patricia Krenwinkel for two hours. He had not read the trial transcripts or interviewed any of her friends or relatives. He had never done any controlled research in the field of LSD had only lectured once on the subject, and had written no papers on it. When I asked him why he considered himself an expert, he rather loftily replied, What is an expert but what the beholder thinks he is from his experience? Many people consider me an expert, so I have accustomed myself to assuming that I am. Question. Do you consider Dr. Thomas Ungerleiter of UCLA an expert in LSD? Answer. Yes, I do. Question. More than yourself? Answer. I am not in a position to judge that. I will leave that to others. Question. Do you consider Dr. Duke Fisher of UCLA an expert in the field of LSD? Answer. Yes. I then brought out that the two men had written a paper entitled The Problems of LSD in Emotional Disorders, in which they concluded that there is no scientific demonstrable evidence of organic brain damage caused by LSD. Tweed now had to admit that was correct, as far as present evidence went. On December 24, 1969, Patricia Krenwinkel had been examined by a Mobile, Alabama psychiatrist, a Dr. Claude Brown. Since Tweed had based his conclusions in part on Brown's report, I was given a copy of it just prior to my cross-examination. It was a bombshell as my next question to Dr. Tweed indicated. Question. In forming your opinions with respect to Patricia Krenwinkel, did you take into consideration that she told Dr. Brown that on the night of the Tate murders, Charles Manson told her to go along with Tex Watson? After numerous objections and lengthy conferences at the bench, Dr. Tweed admitted that he had considered this. Still later, Patricia Krenwinkel was recalled to the stand, where, though she denied the truth of the statement, she admitted that she had told Dr. Brown that this was so. We now had a perfect score. Manson had called Sadie, Katie, and Leslie to the stand in an attempt to exonerate him. Instead, I had now proven that each of the three had previously told others that Manson was behind these murders.
There were other surprises in the Brown report. Krenwinkel also told the doctor that she had fled to Mobile because she was afraid of Manson finding her and killing her. That on the day of the Tate murders, she was coming off an acid trip and wasn't on any drugs that night. And that following the murders, she was always fearful that they would be arrested for what they had done. But Charlie said nobody could touch us. Note. Although harmful to Manson, this could only be helpful to Fitzgerald's client, Patricia Krenwinkel. However, it was not Fitzgerald who brought this out, but Keith, after Fitzgerald had concluded his examination. End of note. This latter statement proved that Katie was well aware of the consequences of her act. This was important, since it was obvious from their questions that the defense attorneys were trying to imply that the three female defendants were insane at the time they committed these murders. Under California law, an insanity plea must be entered before the start of the trial. A separate sanity phase is then held after the guilt trial. The defense, however, had not entered such a plea at the proper time. Therefore, in one sense, the question of whether the defendants were sane or insane was irrelevant, since this was not an issue which the jury would have to decide. In another sense, however, it was crucial. If the defense could cause the jury to doubt the sanity of the defendants, this could strongly influence their vote on the penalty they were to pay. Suddenly, I was not only having to prove Manson's guilt all over again, I was also having to prove that the girls were legally sane. In most states, including California, the legal test of insanity is the McNaughton Rule. Among other things, McNaughton provides that if a defendant, as a result of mental disease or defect, does not realize that what he did was wrong, then he is legally insane. It is not enough, however, that he personally believe his acts were not wrong. Were this so, every man would be a law unto himself. For instance, a man could rape a dozen women, say, I don't think it's wrong to rape, and therefore evade criminal punishment. The clincher is whether he knows that society thinks his actions are wrong. If he does, then he cannot be legally insane. And deliberate acts to avoid detection, such as cutting telephone wires, eradicating prints, changing identities, disposing of incriminating evidence, constitute circumstantial evidence that the defendant knows society views his acts as wrong. Earlier, Dr. Tweed had testified that Patricia Krenwinkel didn't believe these murders were wrong. I now asked him on cross, in your opinion, when Patricia Krenwinkel was committing these murders, did she believe that society thought it was wrong to do what she was doing? Answer, I believe so. Bugliosi, no further questions. On March 4th, Manson trimmed his beard to a neat fork and completely shaved his head, because, he told newsmen, I am the devil, and the devil always has a bald head. Interestingly enough, this time the three female defendants did not follow Manson's example. Nor, when he occasionally acted up in court, did they parrot him, as they had in the guilt trial. Obviously, it had got across to them, albeit belatedly, that such antics only proved Manson's domination. While denying that LSD can cause brain damage, the next witness, psychiatrist Keith Dittman, testified that the drug can have a detrimental effect on a person's personality. He also stated that a person using LSD is more susceptible to the influence of a second party, and that Leslie's use of the drug, plus Manson's influence over her, could have been significant factors in causing her to participate in a homicide. Van Houten, this is all such a big lie. I was influenced by the war in Vietnam and TV. 
On cross-examination, I got Dittman to concede that not all people react the same to LSD, that it depends upon the personality structure of the person ingesting the drug. I then brought out that Dittman had never examined Leslie. Therefore, not knowing what her personality structure was, he couldn't say what effect, if any, LSD had on her mental state. Nor, turning this around, not having examined her, could he say for certain whether she did or did not have inherent homicidal tendencies. Keith, on redirect, asked Dittman, what is meant by inherent homicidal tendencies? Answer, that a person has, let's say, more than the average human being, a killer instinct. Question, psychiatrically speaking, do some people have greater killer instincts than others, in your opinion? Answer, well, some people have a more covert and overt hostility and aggression. In that sense, they are more capable of committing crimes of violence, such as murder. Dr. Dittman had just articulated one of the chief points of the final argument I was preparing to give at the close of the penalty phase. Dr. Joel Fort, the almost legendary hippie doctor of the hate, didn't look the part. The founder of the National Center for Solving Social and Health Problems was 40-ish, dressed conservatively, talked quietly, didn't have long hair, in fact he was bald. Angered by his testimony, Manson shouted, if he ever seen a hippie, it was in the street while he was driving by in his car. Manson's anger had good cause. Even on direct, Dr. Fort was more helpful to the prosecution than the defense. The author of one book on drugs and co-author of 11 others, Dr. Fort stated that a drug by itself does not perform a magical transformation. There are many other factors. On cross-examination, I brought out one. Fort said, it was my feeling, after examining Leslie Van Houten, that Mr. Manson's influence played a very significant role in the commission of the murders. Another very crucial point came out on cross. To negate the defense's new argument that the girls were on LSD during the murders, and therefore less responsible for their acts, I asked for it. Isn't it true, doctor, that people under the influence of LSD do not tend to be violent? Answer, that is true. Still attacking the prosecution's theory of Manson's domination, Kanarek asked Fort, Now, do you know of any cases where someone has, I mean other than in the Frankenstein type of picture, do you know where someone has sat down and programmed people to go out, let's say, and commit armed robberies, burglaries, assaults? Do you know of any such instances? Answer, yes. In one sense, that is what we do when we program soldiers in a war. The Army uses a peer group technique and the patriotic ideals that are instilled in citizens of a particular country to bring about this pattern of behavior. Dr. Fort was typical of many persons who, though opposed to capital punishment in principle, felt that these murders were so savage and senseless, so totally lacking in mitigating circumstances, that justice demanded that these persons be sentenced to death. I learned this in a conversation with him in the hall outside court in which he stated that he was extremely unhappy that he had been called to testify for the defense in this case. Greatly concerned about the stain the Manson family had cast on all young people, Dr. Fort offered to testify for the prosecution when I brought Charles Tex Watson to trial, an offer which I later accepted. It was in just such a hallway interview that I discovered how potentially damaging to the defense their next witness could be. Learning that Keith intended to call Dr. Joel Simon Hockman during the afternoon session, I cut my lunch hour short so I could spend a half hour interviewing the psychiatrist.
To my amazement, I learned that Maxwell Keith hadn't even interviewed his own witness. He was calling him to the stand cold. Had he talked to him for just five minutes, Keith would never have called Hockman. For the doctor, who had interviewed Leslie, felt that the use of LSD wasn't an important influence on her. Rather, he felt there was something very seriously wrong with Leslie Van Houten. In his testimony and the psychiatric report he wrote following the examination, Dr. Hockman called Leslie Van Houten a spoiled little princess who was unable to suffer frustration and delay of gratification. From childhood on, she'd had extreme difficulties with impulse control. When she didn't get her way, she went into rages. For example, beating her adopted sister with a shoe. From a position of overall perspective, Hockman noted, it is quite clear that Leslie Van Houten was a psychologically loaded gun, which went off as a consequence of the complex intermeshing of highly unlikely and bizarre circumstances. Hockman confirmed something I had long suspected. Of the three female defendants, Leslie Van Houten was the least committed to Charles Manson. She listened to Manson's talk of philosophy, but it wasn't her trip. Nor could she get that into Charlie sexually, and that bothered her a lot. I couldn't get it on with Charlie like I could with Bobby, she said. According to Hockman, Leslie was obsessed with beauty. Bobby was beautiful. Charles was not physically. Charles was short. That is something that always turned me off. Yet she killed at his command. Keith asked Hockman, Doctor, did you ask her whether or not Mr. Manson, during her association with him, had any influence over her in her thought process and in her conduct and activity? Answer, she denies it, but I don't buy that. Question, why don't you buy that? Answer, well, I don't understand why she would stay on the scene that long if there was nothing there for her on some unconscious basis. As I'd observe in my final argument, many came to Spawn Ranch, but only a few stayed. Those who did did so because they found the black-hearted medicine Manson was peddling very palatable. According to Hockman, in talking to him, Leslie professed a kind of primitive Christianity, love for the world, acceptance of all things. And I asked her, well, professing that, how can it be you would murder someone? She said, well, that was something inside of me, too. Maxwell Keith should have stopped right there. Instead, he asked Hockman, how do you interpret that? Answer, I think it's rather realistic. I think that in reality it was something inside of her, despite her chronic denial of the emotional aspects of herself, that a rage was there. Nor did Keith leave it at that. He now asked, When you say a rage was there, what do you mean by that? Answer, In my opinion, it would take a rage, an emotional reaction to kill someone. I think it is unquestionable that that feeling was inside of her. Question. Bearing in mind that she had never seen or heard of Mrs. LaBianca, in your opinion, there was some hate in her when this occurred? Answer. Well, I think it would make it easier for her not to know Mrs. LaBianca. It is hard to kill someone that you have good feelings towards. I don't think there was anything specific about Mrs. LaBianca. Let me make myself clear. Mrs. LaBianca was an object, a blank screen upon which Leslie projected her feelings, much as a patient projects his feelings on an analyst whom he doesn't know. Feelings towards her mother, her father, toward the establishment. I think she was a very angry girl for a long time, a very alienated girl for a long time, 
and the anger and rage was associated with that. Hockman was articulating one of the main points of my final summation, namely that Leslie, Sadie, Katie, and Tex had a hostility and rage within them that pre-existed Charles Manson. They were different from Linda Kasabian, Paul Watkins, Brooks Poston, Juan Flynn, and T.J. When Manson asked them to kill for him, each said no. Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Leslie Van Houten said yes. So there had to be something special about these people that caused them to kill. Some kind of inner flaw, apart from Charlie. Though he had badly damaged his own case, Keith had tried to put the hat on Manson. Fitzgerald, in his examination of Hockman, did just the opposite. He sought to minimize the importance of Manson's influence over Leslie. Asking Hockman what Manson's influence actually was, he received this reply. His ideas, his presence, the role he played in his relationship to her, served to reinforce a lot of her feelings and attitudes. It served to reinforce and give her a way of continuing her general social alienation, her alienation from the establishment. Question. So really, all you are saying is that A. Manson could possibly have had some influence, and B. If he did have some influence, it would only contribute to the lowering of her restraints on her impulsiveness. Is that correct? Answer. Yes. Question. So any influence Manson had on Leslie Van Houten, in terms of your professional opinion, is tenuous at best. Is that correct? Note. There was no meaningful dichotomy between Leslie Van Houten and Fitzgerald's client, Patricia Krenwinkel. Both young girls had joined the family, submitted to Manson's domination, and ultimately murdered for him. In trying to establish that Manson was not responsible for causing Leslie to kill, Fitzgerald was at the same time establishing that Manson wasn't responsible for Katie's killing either. Hockman's reply badly hurt not only Leslie, but Katie and Sadie as well. End of note. Answer. Let me give you another example that may make it clearer. Suppose someone comes in and says, let's eat the whole apple pie. Obviously, your temptation is stimulated by the suggestion, but your final decision on whether or not to eat the whole pie or just one piece comes out of you. So the other person is influential, but is not a final arbiter or decider of that situation. Someone can tell you to shoot someone, but your decision to do that comes from inside you. Canarek, when his turn came, picked up the scent. And so you are telling us then, in layman's language, that when someone takes a knife and stabs, the decision to do that is a personal decision? Answer. In the ultimate analysis, it is. Question. It is a personal decision of the person who does the stabbing? Answer. Yes. Ironically, Canarek and I were now on the same side. Both of us were seeking to prove that even independent of Manson, these girls had murder within them. Manson was very impressed by Hockman, and at first wanted to be interviewed by him. I was relieved, however, when he later abandoned the idea. I wasn't greatly worried about Manson conning Hockman, but even if Hockman didn't buy Manson's story, Canarek would make sure he repeated it on the stand. Thus, using Hockman as a conduit, Manson could get almost everything he wanted before the jury without being subject to my cross-examination. Hockman found in all three girls much evidence in their history of early alienation 
of early antisocial or deviant behavior. Even before joining the family, Leslie had more emotional problems than the average person. Sadie actively sought to be everything her father warned her not to be. She thinks now, in retrospect, Hockman noted, that even without Charles Manson, she would have ended up in jail for manslaughter or assault with a deadly weapon. Katie first had sex at 15. She never saw the boy again, and she suffered tremendous guilt because of the experience. Manson eradicated that guilt. He also, in letting her join the family, gave her the acceptance she desperately craved. Of the three, Hockman felt Sadie had a little more remorse than the other two. She often talked of wishing her life were over. Yet he also noted, one is struck by the absence of a conventional sense of morality or conscience in this girl. And he testified, she does not seem to manifest any evidence of discomfort or anxiety about her present circumstances or her conviction and possible death sentence. On the contrary, she seemed to manifest a remarkable peacefulness and self-acceptance in her present state. According to Hockman, all three girls denied any sense of guilt whatever about anything, and he felt that intellectually they actually believed there is no right or wrong, that morality is a relative thing. However, I, as a psychiatrist, know that you cannot rationally do away with the feelings that exist on the irrational, unconscious level. You cannot tell yourself that killing is okay, intellectually, when you have grown up all your life feeling that killing is wrong. In short, Hockman believed that as human beings, the girls felt some guilt deep down inside, even though they consciously suppressed it. Keith asked Hockman, In your opinion, doctor, would Leslie be susceptible or respond to intensive therapy? Answer? Possibly. Question. In other words, you don't feel that she is such a lost soul that she could never be rehabilitated? Answer. No, I don't think she is that lost a soul, no. To a psychiatrist, no one is beyond redemption. This is essential standard testimony. Yet only one of the defense attorneys, Maxwell Keith, asked the question, and then only on redirect. Earlier, I'd brought out that Hockman had only the word of the girls that they were on LSD either night. I now asked him, Have you ever read a reported case in the literature of LSD of any individual who committed murder while under the influence of LSD? Answer, No. Suicide, but not murder. As I'd later asked the jury, could Watson, Atkins, Krenwinkel, and Van Houten, all four, be exceptions? A large portion of Hockman's testimony had dealt with the mental states of the three girls. Susan Atkins was suffering from a diagnosable condition, he said, an early childhood deprivation syndrome, which had resulted in a hysterical personality type. This was not legal insanity as defined by McNaughton. Leslie Van Houten was an immature, unusually impulsive person who tended to act spontaneously without reflection. Nor was this legal insanity as defined by McNaughton. In his report on Krenwinkel, Dr. Claude Brown, the mobile psychiatrist, had stated that, at the time I saw Miss Krenwinkel, she showed a schizophrenic reaction. He added, however, that I do not state with any certainty that this psychosis existed at the time of the alleged murders. Schizophrenia may be legal insanity as defined by McNaughton, but Dr. Brown's opinion was qualified, and when Fitzgerald asked Dr. Hockman if, on the basis of his examination of Krenwinkel, he agreed that she was, or had been, schizophrenic, Hockman replied, I would say no. 
It remained to bring these points across to the jury in terms they could easily understand. On recross examination, I had Hockman define the word psychotic. He replied that it meant a loss of contact with reality. I then asked him, at the present time, doctor, do you feel any of these three female defendants are psychotic? Answer, no. Question, in your opinion, do you feel that any of these three female defendants have ever been psychotic? Answer, no. Bugliosi, may I approach the witness, your honor? I want to ask the witness a question privately. The court, yes, you may. I had already questioned Dr. Hockman once about this, but I wanted to be absolutely certain of his reply. Once I had received it, I returned to the counsel table and asked him a number of unrelated questions so the jury wouldn't know what we had been talking about. I then gradually worked up to the big one. Question. The term insanity, doctor, you are familiar with that term, of course? Answer. Yes. Question. Basically, you define the word insanity to be the layman synonym for psychotic? Answer. I would say that the word insanity is used generally to mean psychotic. Question. Then from a psychiatric standpoint, I take it that in your opinion, none of these three female defendants are presently insane, nor have they ever been insane. Is that correct? Answer. That is correct. As far as the psychiatric testimony was concerned, with Hockman's reply, the ball game was over. The defense called only three more witnesses during the penalty trial, all hardcore family members. Each was on the stand only a short time, but their testimony, particularly that of the first witness, was as shocking as anything that had gone before. Catherine Gillies, whose grandmother owned Myers Ranch, parroted the family line. Charlie never led anyone. There was never any talk of a race war. These murders were committed to free Bobby Beausoleil. Coldly, matter-of-factly, the 21-year-old girl testified that on the night of the LaBianca murders, I followed Katie to the car, and I asked if I could go with her. Linda, Leslie, and Sadie were all in the car, and they said that they had plenty of people to do what they were going to do, and that I didn't need to go. On direct examination by Canarac, Kathy stated, You know, I am willing to kill for a brother. We all are. Question. What do you mean by that? Answer. In other words, to get a brother out of jail, I would kill. I would have killed that night, except I did not go. Question. What prevented you from going with them, if anything? Answer. Just the fact that they didn't need me. Apparently, Fitzgerald hoped to soften the harshness of her reply when he asked her, Have you killed anybody to get someone out of jail? With a strange little smile, Kathy turned her head and, looking directly at the jury, replied, not yet. Kathy had testified on direct examination that Katie had told her about the Tate-LaBianca murders. On cross-examination, I asked her, when Katie told you that they had murdered these people, did this disturb you at all? Answer, actually it had very little effect on me because I knew why they had done it. Question, so it didn't upset you? Answer, no, it definitely didn't upset me. Question. You didn't decide that you would rather not continue living with murderers? Answer. Obviously not. Question. Were you upset that you didn't get to go along with them? Answer. 
I wanted to go. Mary Bruner, first member of the Manson family, claimed that the police had told her that she would be charged with murder if she did not implicate Manson in the Hinman slaying. She now repudiated this testimony and further denied even being at the Hinman residence. Keith brought out that Mary Bruner had testified both in the second trial of Bobby Beausoleil and before the Hinman grand jury, and neither time did she say anything about Leslie Van Houten being present when Hinman was killed. I had no questions for her. The point was made. Brenda McCann was recalled to the stand to testify that on the nights of the Tate and LaBianca murders, she had seen Manson sleeping with Stephanie Schramm in Devil's Canyon. The groundwork for my cross-examination of Brenda had been laid 15 months before. I impeached her with her testimony before the grand jury when she stated that she couldn't remember where she or Manson was on either night. Brenda was the last witness. She completed her testimony on Tuesday, March 16, 1971. That afternoon, after a number of delays, Canarac, for example, refused to stipulate that Gary Hinman was dead, the defense rested. Wednesday, we worked on the jury instructions, and on Thursday, the trial entered its final stage. All that now remained were the arguments, the deliberations, and the verdict. March 18th to 29th, 1971. My opening argument in the penalty trial was brief, lasting less than 10 minutes. As with all my arguments during the trial, Manson decided to sit this one out in the lockup. The psychology behind this was obvious. He didn't want the jury focusing on him when I discussed him. I began by saying, I am not going to address myself to the frantic effort by the three female defendants and the defense witnesses to make it look like Charles Manson wasn't involved in these murders. I am sure all of you clearly saw that they were lying on that witness stand to do what they could for their God, Charles Manson. Well, Charles Manson has already been convicted. He has already been convicted of seven counts of first-degree murder and one count of conspiracy to commit murder. The difficulty in your decision, as I see it, is not whether these defendants deserve the death penalty, ladies and gentlemen. In view of the incredibly savage, barbaric, and inhuman murders they committed, the death penalty is the only proper verdict. I then stated the very heart of my argument. If this case were not a proper case for the imposition of the death penalty, no case ever would be. In view of what they did, life imprisonment would be the greatest gift, the greatest charity, the greatest handout, as it were, ever given. The difficulty in your decision, as I see it, is whether you will have the fortitude to return verdicts of death against all four defendants. The defense attorneys, I anticipated, would beg for their clients' lives. This was not only commendable, I told the jury, it was also understandable, just as it was understandable that they argued during the guilt phase that their clients were not involved in these murders, even though during the penalty phase the three female defendants took the stand and said, yes, we were involved. There was absolutely no reason for these defendants to viciously and inhumanly snuff out the lives of these seven human beings, I noted. There were no mitigating circumstances. These defendants are not human beings, ladies and gentlemen. Human beings have a heart and a soul. No one with a heart and a soul could have done what these defendants did to these seven victims. These defendants are human monsters, human mutations. There is only one proper ending to the Tate-LaBianca murder trial, I concluded. Verdicts of death for all four defendants.
Kanarek stipulated, at the start of his argument, that Mr. Manson is not all good. However, he continued, Mr. Manson is innocent of these matters that are before us. Why was he on trial then? Kanarek returned to his two favorite themes. Mr. Manson has had quite a share of troubles because of the fact that he likes girls. And he was only brought to trial so someone in the district attorney's office can have a gold star and say, I got Charles Manson. Kanarek's argument stretched over three days. It was occasionally ridiculous, as when he said, we can perform a public service for the United States of America by giving these people life, because if there is a revolution, this is the kind of thing that could spark it. It was sometimes unintentionally funny, as when he stated that, unlike Patricia Krenwinkel and Leslie Van Houten, Charles Manson has no family to come here to testify. But mostly he tried to plant little seeds of doubt. Why, if Susan Atkins lied on the stand to absolve Manson, would she have implicated him in the Hinman murder? Wasn't the fact that Manson himself shot Crow to protect the people at Spawn Ranch evidence that he didn't need to order others to act for him? If these girls were lying about Manson's non-involvement in the murders, wouldn't they have also lied and said they had sorrow and remorse? Kanarak only briefly mentioned the copycat motive. He didn't even try to argue it. Instead, he suggested still another alternative motive. But for the fact that at least some of these people, supposedly referring to the Tate victims, were engaged in a narcotic episode of some type, these events would not have taken place. Dae Shin, who argued next, fastened on Dr. Hockman's statement that he believed these girls had subconscious, if not conscious, remorse. As for Susan, she is still young, Shin argued. She is only 22 years old. I believe there is still a hope of rehabilitating her. Maybe someday she may be rehabilitated, to the extent that she may finally realize what she has done was not right. I believe that she deserves the chance, an opportunity, so that maybe someday she may be released and live the rest of her life out of prison. This was very bad strategy on Shin's part, implying that if Susan Atkins was given life imprisonment, she might someday be released on parole. By law, the prosecution can't argue this. It is so prejudicial to the defendant. Of the four defense attorneys, Maxwell Keith gave the best opening argument. He was also the only one who really attempted to rebut my contentions. Mr. Bugliosi tells you that if the death penalty is not appropriate in this case, it would never be appropriate. Well, I wonder if it ever is appropriate. Mr. Bugliosi read to you at the close of his argument on the guilt phase the roll call of the dead. Let me read to you now, ladies and gentlemen, the roll call of the living dead. Leslie, Sadie, Katie, Squeaky, Brenda, Weesh, Sandy, Kathy, Gypsy, Tex, Clem, Mary, Snake, and no doubt many more. These lives, and the lives of these three young girls in particular, have been so damaged that it is possible, in some cases, their destruction is beyond repair. I hope not, but it is possible. Leslie Van Houten, he strongly argued, was capable of rehabilitation. She should be studied, not killed. I am not asking you to forgive her, although to forgive is divine. I am asking you to give her the chance to redeem herself. She deserves to live. What she did was not done by the real Leslie. Let the Leslie of today die. She will, slowly and maybe painfully. 
and let the Leslie as she once was live again. Nowhere in Paul Fitzgerald's argument, which followed, did he state, or even imply, that Manson was responsible for what had happened to Patricia Krenwinkel. Patricia Krenwinkel is 23 years old, Fitzgerald observed. With 365 days in the year, there are approximately 8,400 days in 23 years, and approximately 200,000 hours in her lifetime. The perpetration of these offenses took at best approximately three hours. Is she to be judged solely on what occurred during three of 200,000 hours? Just before court commenced on March 23rd, I walked over to the water cooler. Manson, in the nearby lockup, called out to me rather loudly, If I get the death penalty, there is going to be a lot of bloodletting, because I am not going to take it. Both the court clerk and Steve Kay overheard the remark. Kay intemperately rushed out of the courtroom and repeated it to the press. Learning of this, I asked the reporters not to print it. The Herald Examiner wouldn't agree, and it broke the story with a banner headline. Manson Death Threat. Warns of Terror if Doomed to Die. Before this, however, Judge Older, made aware of what had happened, decided that rather than wait to the close of arguments, he would sequester the jury immediately. In my final argument, I rebutted point by point the earlier defense contentions. For example, the defense had claimed that Linda got her story from listening to the Susan Atkins tapes. Why would Linda need to listen to the tapes, I asked, when she was present both nights? Kanarek had told the jury that if they returned death penalty verdicts, they would be killers. This was a very heavy argument. As support, he cited the fifth commandment, Thou shalt not kill. In answer, I told the jury that most biblical scholars and theologians interpret the original language to mean, Thou shalt not commit murder, which is exactly how it appears in the New English Bible, dated 1970. The Ten Commandments appear in Exodus, chapter 20, I noted. What Canarac did not mention, I observed, is that the very next chapter authorizes the death penalty. Exodus 21, verse 12 reads, Whoever strikes a man a mortal blow must be put to death while verse 14 of the same chapter reads, When a man kills another, after maliciously scheming to do so, you must take him even from my altar and put him to death. Kanarek argued that there was no domination. In addition to all the evidence during the guilt trial, I observed, during the penalty trial, when Atkins, Krenwinkel, and Van Houten played the part of the sacrificial lamb and admitted their participation in these murders, and then lied on that witness stand and said that Manson wasn't involved, the fact that they were willing to lie on that witness stand just proves all the more Manson's domination over them. As for the other family witnesses, Squeaky, Sandy, and the others, all of them sounded like a broken record on that witness stand. They all have the same thought. They use the same language. Each one was a carbon copy of the other. They are all still totally subservient and subject to Charles Manson. They are his exed-out slaves. I came now to the copycat motive. My objective was to completely demolish it, yet not dwell on it so long that it would seem that I was giving it credence. It is really laughable, ladies and gentlemen, I began, the way the three female defendants and the defense witnesses sought to take the hat off Charles Manson. They had to come up with a motive for these murders other than helter-skelter. Why? Because no less than ten witnesses during the guilt trial had irrevocably connected Manson with helter-skelter 
So they certainly could not say from that witness stand that the motive for these murders was helter-skelter. If they said that, they would be saying, yes, Charles Manson masterminded these murders. So they came up with a copycat motive. I could give you between 20 and 30 reasons why it's obvious that this nonsensical story of the defense was fabricated out of whole cloth, but I won't take up your time with it, and I am not going to insult your intelligence. I did point out a few. Linda Kasabian testified during the penalty trial that she had never heard anyone discuss committing these murders to free Bobby Beausoleil. Gary Hinman was stabbed not more than four times. Wojciech Frykowski was stabbed 51 times. Rosemary LaBianca, 41 times. Lino LaBianca, 26 times. Rather a great difference if these were copycat slayings. And if these murders were to be carbon copies, why weren't the words political piggy used at the Tate and LaBianca residences? And why no bloody paw print at the latter two houses? The most powerful evidence demolishing this ridiculous motive, I noted, was that as early as February 1969, long before there was any Hinman murder to copy, long before there were any words political piggy to copy, Manson told Brooks Poston and other family members, including all of his co-defendants, that, quoting Poston, he said a group of real blacks would come out of the ghettos and do an atrocious crime in the richer sections of Los Angeles and other cities. They would do an atrocious murder with stabbing, killing, cutting bodies to pieces, smearing blood on the walls, Riding pigs on the walls. Riding pigs on the walls, I repeated. So, riding pig at the Tate and LaBianca residences was simply a part of Manson's blueprint for starting Helter Skelter. Not an effort to copy the Hinman murder. Incidentally, I observed, Mr. Kanarek never did try to explain to you why the words Helter Skelter were printed in blood on the refrigerator door at the LaBianca residence. What does Helter Skelter have to do with freeing Bobby Beausoleil or an alleged $1,000 MDA burn at the Tate residence? Absolutely nothing, that's what. The words Helter Skelter were found printed in blood on the LaBianca refrigerator door because all of the evidence at this trial shows beyond all doubt that Helter Skelter was the principal reason for these savage murders. Yes, I admitted, there is a connection between the Hinman murder and the Tate-LaBianca murders. But it was not this silly Bobby Beausoleil nonsense. Here is the connection. Mr. Manson not only ordered the Tate-LaBianca murders, he also ordered the Hinman murder. That is the connection. As for Susan Atkins's claim that Linda Kasabian masterminded these murders, I noted that not until the penalty phase did she say anything about this. And then, all of a sudden, Linda Kasabian is Charles Manson. I noted some of the reasons why this was preposterous, among them the ridiculousness of the docile, subservient Linda taking over the leadership of the family in just one month. Only one person ordered these murders, ladies and gentlemen, and his initials are C.M. He also has an A.K.A., J.C., and he is in that lockup right now listening to me. The most preposterous thing about all this was that supposedly for one and a half years, both Sadie and Gypsy kept this secret in their perjurous bosoms. They not only didn't tell the other members of the family, they didn't even tell Manson's attorney, though both testified they loved and would willingly die for Charlie. And why didn't they tell him about this motive? Because it didn't exist. It was recently fabricated. As for Manson's alibi, that he was with Stephanie Schramm in Devil's Canyon on both of these nights, 
Isn't it strange that all of Mr. Manson's exed-out slaves have testified to this during the penalty trial? And the very person, Stephanie Schramm, whom they claim Manson was with, testified that Manson was not with her? I then addressed myself to the issue of whether the four defendants should receive the death penalty. The strongest argument that can be made in support of capital punishment is, I feel, deterrence, that it may save additional lives. Unfortunately, under California law, the prosecution could not argue deterrence, only retribution. These weren't typical murders, ladies and gentlemen. This was a one-sided war where unspeakable atrocities were committed. If all of these defendants don't receive the death penalty, the typical first-degree murderer only deserves 10 days in the county jail. As for Fitzgerald's contention that killing these defendants would not bring the seven victims back to life, if we were to accept that line of reasoning, no one would ever be punished for any crime, since punishing a person does not remove the fact that the crime was committed. For example, don't punish a man for arson because the punishment is not going to rebuild the building. In California, if a defendant is 17 years of age or younger, he or she cannot be sentenced to death. Though Fitzgerald repeatedly called the three female defendants children, I reminded the jury that Leslie was 21, Susan 22, Katie 23. They are adults by any standard and completely responsible for their acts. In regard to the defense contention that the three female defendants were insane, I reminded the jury that Dr. Hockman, the only psychiatrist to examine all three, said they are not and have never been insane. Dr. Hockman testified that we are all capable of killing, I noted. He did not say that we are all capable of murder. There is a vast difference between killing, as in justifiable homicide, self-defense or defense of others, and murder. And no one can convince me, ladies and gentlemen, that all of us are capable of murdering strangers for no reason whatsoever, like these three female defendants did. It takes a special type of person to do what they did. It takes a person who places no value on the life of a fellow human being. True, Watson, Atkins, Krenwinkel, and Van Houten committed these murders because Charles Manson told them to. But they would never have committed these murders in a million years if they did not already have murder in their guts, in their system. Manson merely told them to do what they were already capable of doing. Moreover, there was no evidence that Manson forced Watson and the girls to murder for him. In fact, the inference is that they wanted to go along. That seemed to be the general feeling in the family. Witness the statement of Kathy Gillies. Witness Susan Atkins's telling Juan Flynn, we're going to get some fucking pigs. Does that sound like someone who is being forced to go out? Manson ordered the murders, but Watson and the three girls personally committed them because they wanted to. Make no mistake about that. If they did not want to murder these victims, all they had to do was not do it. I examine now the backgrounds of the three girls. Like the other female members of the family, they had one common denominator among them. It was obvious that each of them had a revulsion, an antipathy, a seething feeling of disgust for society, for their own parents. Each of the three girls had dropped out of society before even meeting Charles Manson. Each had taken LSD and other drugs before meeting Manson, and each had rejected her real family before meeting Manson. Looking right at juror Jean Roseland, who had two teenage daughters, I said, don't confuse them with the girl next door type. 
These three female defendants had repudiated and renounced their very families and society before they ever met Charles Manson. In fact, it was precisely because they had contemptuously disavowed and rejected their families and society that they ended up with Charles Manson. That is the very reason. Manson was simply the catalyst, the moving force that translated their pre-existing disgust and hatred for society and human beings into violence. I anticipated an argument that I felt Maxwell Keith might give. The thought certainly may enter your mind that as wicked and as vicious as these three female defendants are, by comparison to Charles Manson, they are nowhere as wicked and vicious as he is. Therefore, let's give Manson the death penalty and these three female defendants life imprisonment. The only problem with that type of approach is that these female defendants are given credit, as it were, because of Manson's extreme wickedness and viciousness. Under that type of reasoning, if Adolf Hitler were Charles Manson's co-defendant, Manson should receive life imprisonment because of the indescribably evil Adolf Hitler. Rather than compare the three female defendants with Manson, I told the jury, they should evaluate the conduct of each of the defendants and determine whether it warranted the imposition of the death penalty. I then went into the acts of each, starting with Manson, enumerating one by one the reasons they deserved death rather than life. One question the jury would surely ask, I noted, was, why no remorse? The answer was simple. Manson and his co-defendants like to kill human beings. That is why they have no remorse. As Paul Watkins testified, death is Charlie's trip. I came to the end of my argument. Now, the defense attorneys want you to give these defendants a break. Did these defendants give the seven victims in this case a break? Now the defense attorneys want you to give their clients another chance. Did these defendants give the seven victims in this case any chance at all? Now the defense attorneys want you to have mercy on their clients. Did these defendants have any mercy at all on the seven victims in this case when they begged and pleaded for their lives? I then reminded the jurors that nine months earlier, during voir dire, each had told me he would be willing to vote death if he felt this was a proper case. I reiterated, if the death penalty is to mean anything in the state of California, other than two empty words, this is a proper case. I concluded, on behalf of the people of the state of California, I can't thank you enough for the enormous public service you have rendered as jurors in this very long historic trial. That night, after dinner, I said to Gail, there must be something I have to do tonight. But there wasn't. For a year and a half, seven days a week, I had been totally immersed in the case. Now, all I could do was listen to the closing arguments of the defense attorneys and wait until the jury reached its verdict. Canarek began by implying that perhaps I had poisoned the glass of water on the lectern and ended, more than a day later, by reading chapter after chapter from the New Testament. Now, this being the Easter season, there is an analogy here between Mr. Manson. This may sound at first blush to be ridiculous, and we are not suggesting that Mr. Manson is the deity or Christ-like or anything like that. But how can we know? Judge Older, who had several times warned Canterac that he had exhausted all relevant rebuttal, finally brought his sermon to an end at the point of resurrection. Shin spent his time attacking the DA's office, and in particular me. 
Miss Atkins was drowning without friends, and she saw Mr. Bugliosi with an oar. She said, oh, here comes help now. Miss Atkins reached out for that oar, and what do you think Mr. Bugliosi did? He hit her over the head with the oar. Keith delivered a strong argument against the death penalty itself. Before this, however, he said, Now, strangely, or perhaps not so strangely, I accepted wholeheartedly certain areas of Mr. Bugliosi's argument. I accept his exposition to you that Mr. Manson dominated these girls and ordered the homicides. I accept that the free Bobby Beausoleil motive is nonsense. I accept his telling you that you shouldn't hold the Hinman murder against Leslie. I accept his argument that Leslie's testimony, and the testimony of the other girls in this case, shows Mr. Manson's domination and influence still persists, and is all-pervasive. To deny these things, Keith said, would be to deny the evidence. Thus, Keith became the first and only defense attorney to accuse Manson of these murders. Keith, however, said that he did not agree that any of the defendants should receive the death penalty, not even Charles Manson. For in his opinion, Keith said, Mr. Manson is insane, and in instilling his thoughts into the minds of the three female defendants, he had also infected them with his madness. Keith concluded, Give Leslie the chance for redemption to which she is entitled. Remember, Linda Kasabian cut the umbilical cord, in Mr. Bugliosi's words, that tied her to Manson and his family. Give Leslie the chance to do the same. Give her life. I thank you. Fitzgerald read a short argument, at the end of which he began describing in detail how the three female defendants would be executed in the gas chamber at San Quentin Prison if the jury returned verdicts of death. This was improper argument, and I objected. When we approached the bench, Paul literally begged Judge Older to let him proceed. This is extremely important. I can't impress on the court how important it is. Because he was so desperate, I decided to back off, agreeing not to object if he would describe this as a hypothetical situation. Imagine that this is happening, and not as fact. He did so, after which Judge Older instructed the jury. They left the courtroom at 5.25 p.m. on Friday, March 26, 1971. While I felt confident that the jury would return a death penalty verdict against Charles Manson, I was less sure when it came to the girls. Only four females had been executed in California history, none of them as young as the defendants. I had anticipated that the jury would be out at least four days. When I received the call Monday afternoon, after only two days, I knew there could be only one verdict. It was too fast for anything else. Their actual deliberations, I later learned, had taken only ten hours. Again, under extraordinary security precautions, the jury was brought back into the courtroom at 4.24 p.m. on Monday, March 29th, with their verdict. Manson and the girls had been brought into the courtroom earlier, the three female defendants now, when it was too late to influence the jury, having shaved their heads also. But before the clerk could read the first verdict, Manson yelled, I don't see how you can get by with this without letting me put on some kind of defense. You people have no authority over me. Half of you in here ain't as good as I am. And Older ordered him removed. Manson's no defense claim was nonsense. It was obvious that the defense he intended to put on during the guilt phase had been delivered in toto during the penalty phase. The jury's reaction to it was now being delivered, in a courtroom jammed with spectators and press. The clerk read the first verdict. 
We, the jury, in the above entitled action, having found the defendant Charles Manson guilty of murder in the first degree, as charged in count one of the indictment, do now fix the penalty as death. Krenwinkel, you have just judged yourselves. Atkins, better lock your doors and watch your own kids. Van Houten, your whole system is a game, you blind, stupid people. Your children will turn against you. Judge Older had the three girls removed. They, too, listened over the loudspeaker as the clerk fixed the penalty for all four defendants as death on all counts. Judge Older left the bench to shake hands with each juror. If it were within the power of a trial judge to award a Medal of Honor to jurors, he told them, believe me, I would bestow an award on each of you. For the first time, the jurors could speak to the press about their ordeal. Jury foreman Herman Tubick told reporters that the jury was convinced the motive was helter-skelter. Mrs. Thelma McKenzie said the jury had certainly tried to find point upon which they could sentence the female defendants to a verdict less severe, but we couldn't. William McBride remarked, I felt sympathy for the women, but sympathy can't interfere with justice. What they did deserves the death penalty. Marie Mesmer said she felt more pity for Susan Atkins than for the other two girls because of her background, but that she was shocked when all three showed no signs of remorse. As for Manson, she said, I wanted to protect society. I think Manson is a very dangerous influence. Jean Roseland, mother of three teenagers, two of them girls, said the most terrible part of the whole trial was Leslie Van Houten looking at me with those big brown eyes. Mrs. Roseland was convinced Manson's power to manipulate others came not from within himself, but from the voids within the minds and souls of his followers. Later, Life ran an article entitled, The Manson Jury, End of a Long Ordeal. Ironically, there appeared in the same issue an article entitled, Paul McCartney on the Beatles' Breakup. That there had been irreconcilable troubles within the group became apparent, McCartney said, while they were making the White Album. Colonel Paul Tate was reported to have said, regarding the death sentence verdicts, that's what we wanted, that's what we expected. But there's no jubilation in something like this, no sense of satisfaction. It's more a feeling that justice has been done. Naturally, I wanted the death penalty. They took my daughter and my grandchild. Mrs. Tate told reporters that she didn't believe any human being should have the power to take a life, that that was up to God. Roman Polanski declined comment as did the other relatives of the victims whom the media contacted. Sandy, Kathy, and the other girls on the corner had threatened to burn themselves to death with gasoline if any of the four were given death sentences. They didn't carry out their threat, though all did later shave their heads. On learning of the decision, Sandy looked into the TV cameras and screamed, Death? That's what you're all going to get. With the exception of the sentencing, the trial was over. It had been the longest murder trial in American history, lasting nine and a half months, the most expensive, costing approximately one million dollars, and the most highly publicized, while the jury had been sequestered 225 days, longer than any jury before it. The trial transcript alone ran to 209 volumes, 31,716 pages, approximately eight million words, a mini-library. For almost everyone, the ordeal was not only long, but expensive. A number of the jurors, anticipating that they would be paid by their employers, now found themselves either unpaid or without jobs. 
Mrs. Roseland, for example, claimed that TWA did not honor a verbal agreement to keep her on salary until the end of the trial, and estimated she lost about $2,700 in back pay. TWA denied there was any such agreement. There were several such denials. The financial sacrifice on the part of the defense attorneys was enormous. Fitzgerald said, It's just really wiped me out. He told a reporter that he had lost about $30,000 in income and incurred $10,000 in trial expenses. He had been forced to sell his stereo and other possessions, and had spent $5,000 which he didn't have. Six times married Day Shin said, I'm behind in my house payments and child support and my alimonies. Shin had received $19,000 in royalties from the Atkins book, he said, but he claimed that about $16,000 of it went back to the Manson family. Canarac refused to discuss his financial situation. Another of the defense attorneys did tell me, however, that at one point during the trial, Manson had ordered Shin to give Canarac $5,000 from the Atkins account to help defray his expenses, but how much more he received, if any, is unknown. Keith, who received a fee from the county since he was court-appointed, admitted his private practice had gone downhill and that he didn't expect to gain any new clients as a result of the publicity. The trial cost another attorney his life. In the avalanche of stories on the Manson verdict, one small item which appeared that same day went almost unnoticed. The Ventura County Sheriff's Office reported that they had found a body believed to be that of the missing defense attorney, Ronald Hughes. The badly decomposed corpse had been found face down, wedged between two boulders in Sespe Creek, miles from where Hughes had last been seen alive. Two fishermen had discovered the body early Saturday, but didn't report it until Sunday night because we didn't want to spoil our fishing trip. The cause of death was at this time unknown. Through our office, I ordered an immediate autopsy. April 19, 1971. Judge Older had set Monday, April 19, 1971, as the date of sentencing. There was speculation that Older might decide on his own to reduce at least some of the verdicts from death to life. In a previous case, Older had done this for a defendant who had poured gasoline on two beds where four children were sleeping, killing one of them. However, I personally felt that since Older had complimented the jurors, he wouldn't turn right around and set aside their verdict. On the 19th, the court heard, and rejected, a number of defense motions, including those for a new trial. Judge Older then asked the defendants if they had anything to say. Only Manson did. Charlie's left hand was trembling, and he seemed near tears. Very meekly, with a quivering voice, he said, I accept this court as my father. I've always done my best in my life to uphold the laws of my father, and I accept my father's judgment. The court. After nine and a half months of trial, all of these superlatives had been used, all of the hyperbole has been indulged in, and all that remains are the bare, stark facts of seven senseless murders, seven people whose lives were snuffed out by total strangers. I have carefully looked in considering this action for mitigating circumstances, and I have been unable to find any. It is my considered judgment that not only is the death penalty appropriate, but it is almost compelled by the circumstances. I must agree with the prosecutor that if this is not a proper case for the death penalty, what would be? Speaking to Manson, Judge Older said, The Department of Corrections is ordered to deliver you to the custody of the warden of the state prison of the state of California at San Quentin 
to be by him put to death in the manner prescribed by law of the state of California. There was at this time no death row for women. A special isolation wing was being constructed at the California Institute for Women at Frontera, and Atkins, Krenwinkel, and Van Houten were sent there to await execution. It was anticipated that the appeals would take at least two, and possibly as long as five years. In actuality, their fate would be decided in less than one. After the sentencing, I didn't anticipate ever seeing Charles Manson again, but I'd see him twice more, the last time under very peculiar circumstances. Epilogue A Shared Madness A more comprehensive description of her condition will necessitate further study, but at this time we might suggest the possibility that she may be suffering from a condition of folia familia, a kind of shared madness within a group situation. Dr. Joel Hockman in his psychiatric report on Susan Atkins. I lived with Charlie for one year straight and on and off for two years. I know Charlie. I know him inside and out. I became Charlie. Everything I once was was Charlie. There was nothing left of me anymore. And all of the people in the family, there's nothing left of them anymore. They're all Charlie, too. Note. From the Robert Hendrickson documentary film, Manson. End of note. Paul Watkins. We are what you have made us. We were brought up on your TV. We were brought up watching Gunsmoke, Have Gun, Will Travel, FBI, Combat. Combat was my favorite show. I never missed Combat. Note. From the Robert Hendrickson documentary film, Manson. End of note. Brenda. Whatever is necessary, you do it. When somebody needs to be killed, there's no wrong. You do it and then you move on and you pick up a child and you move him to the desert. You pick up as many children as you can and you kill whoever gets in your way. That is us. Note, from the Robert Hendrickson documentary film, Manson. End of note. Sandy. If you find an apple that has a little spot on it, you cut out that spot. Squeaky. You just better hope I never get out. Bobby Beausoleil. A Shared Madness Although Manson and the girls had been convicted, the trials and the murders were not yet over. For their part in the attempted murder of prosecution witness Barbara Hoyt, four of the five defendants served only 90 days in the county jail, while the fifth escaped punishment entirely. Although I was not assigned to the case, I questioned the way it was handled. Because it was felt that the evidence against the defendants was weak, and because of the expense of flying in witnesses from Hawaii, the DA's office, LAPD, and the defense attorneys agreed to a deal. In return for the defendants pleading no contest to one count of conspiracy to dissuade a witness from testifying, the prosecutor made a motion to reduce the charge from a felony to a misdemeanor. Judge Stephen Stothers granted the motion, and on April 16, 1971, he sentenced four of the five defendants, Lynette Fromm, a.k.a. Squeaky, Steve Grogan, a.k.a. Clem, Catherine Scher, a.k.a. Gypsy, and Dennis Rice to 90 days in the county jail. Since they had already served 15 days, they were back on the streets in 75 days. The fifth defendant, Ruth Ann Morehouse, a.k.a. Weish, the girl who actually gave Barbara Hoyt the LSD-laden hamburger, got off scot-free. When it came time for sentencing, she failed to appear. Although a bench warrant was issued for her arrest, and she was known to be living in Carson City, Nevada, 
the DA's office decided it wasn't worth the trouble to extradite her. Of the five, three would later be involved in other murders, some attempted, some successful. Charles Tex Watson went on trial in August 1971. A good portion of my preparation took place not in a law library, but in a medical library, since I was relatively sure that Watson was going to plead not guilty by reason of insanity and put on a psychiatric defense. The trial had three possible phases, guilt, sanity, and penalty, each of which presented its own special problems. Even though defense attorney Sam Bubrick told me that Watson intended to take the stand and confess, I knew I still had to present a strong case during the guilt phase, since it was a safe bet that Watson's testimony would be self-serving. Two, I had to prove, by evidence such as Watson's instructing Linda to steal the $5,000, that although Watson was dominated by Manson, he still had enough independence to make him legally responsible for his acts. One of the key issues during the guilt trial, then, was whether Watson was suffering from diminished mental capacity at the time of the murders. If he was, and it was of such a nature that it prevented him from deliberating and premeditating, the jury would have to find the chief Tate-LaBianca killer guilty of second rather than first-degree murder. If convicted of any degree of criminal homicide, then there would be a sanity trial, in which the sole issue would be whether Watson was sane or insane at the time of the murders. I anticipated, and quite rightly, that the defense would call a number of prominent psychiatrists, eight were called, many of whom would testify that in their opinion Watson was insane. Therefore, I'd not only have to subject their testimony to withering cross-examination, I'd also have to present an abundance of evidence showing that Watson was in full command of his mental faculties at the time of the murders, and that he was well aware that in the eyes of society, what he was doing was wrong. In short, I had to prove that he wasn't legally insane. Such evidence as his cutting of the telephone wires, his telling Linda to wipe the knives of fingerprints, his manner when talking to Rudolph Weber, and his using an alias when questioned by the authorities in Death Valley a few weeks after the murders, thus became extremely important to proving my case, in that all were circumstantial evidence of a consciousness of wrongdoing and guilt on Watson's part. If Watson was convicted of first-degree murder and also found sane, then the jury would have to decide the ultimate question, whether he was to be given life or death. And this meant I would again face many of the same problems I had with the girls in the penalty phase of the earlier trial. Still another problem was Watson's demeanor. In an obvious attempt to project a college boy image, Watson dressed very conservatively in court. Short hair, shirt and tie, blue blazer, slacks. But he still looked strange. His eyes were glassy and never seemed to focus. He reacted not at all to the damning testimony of such witnesses as Linda Kasabian, Paul Watkins, Brooks Poston, and Diane Lake. And his mouth was always slightly gaping, giving him the appearance of being mentally retarded. Taking the stand on direct examination by the defense, Tex played the part of Manson's abject slave. He admitted shooting or stabbing six of the Tate-LaBianca victims, but denied stabbing Sharon Tate. And everything which showed either premeditation or deliberation he put on Manson or the girls. My cross-examination so shook Tex that he often forgot he was supposed to be playing the idiot. By the time I'd finished, it was obvious to the jury that he was in complete command of his mental faculties, and probably always had been. I also got him to admit that he had stabbed Sharon Tate, too. That he didn't think of the victims as people, but as just blobs. That he had told Dr. Joel Fort that the people at the Tate residence were running around like chickens with their heads cut off. 
and that when he said this he had smiled. And I tore to shreds his story that he was simply an unthinking zombie programmed by Charles Manson, as well as cast considerable doubt on his claim that he now felt remorse for what he had done. Watson's testimony cleared up some mysteries. Contrary to the findings of LAPD evidence expert Dwayne Wolfer, Watson identified the pair of red wire cutters found in Manson's dune buggy as the pair he had used to cut the Tate telephone wires that night. Also revealed for the first time were Manson's exact instructions to Watson on the night of the murders at 10,050 Shallow Drive. Watson testified, Charlie called me over behind a car and handed me a gun and a knife. He said for me to take the gun and knife and go up to where Terry Melcher used to live. He said to kill everybody in the house as gruesome as I could. I believe he said something about movie stars living there. And Watson admitted that when he entered the LaBianca residence, he was already armed with a knife. My greatest difficulty during the entire Watson trial came not from the evidence, the defense attorneys, or the defense witnesses, but from the judge, Adolph Alexander, who was a personal friend of defense attorney Sam Bubrick. Alexander not only repeatedly favored the defense in his rulings, he went far beyond that. During voir dire, he remarked, many of us are opposed to the death penalty. When prosecution witnesses were testifying, he gave them incredulous, unbelieving looks. When defense witnesses took the stand, he industriously took notes. All this was done right in front of the jury. He also frequently cross-examined the prosecution witnesses. Finally, I'd had it. Asking to approach the bench, I reminded Alexander that this was a jury trial, not a court trial, and that I was immensely concerned that by cross-examining the prosecution witnesses, he was giving the jury the impression that he didn't believe the witnesses. And since a judge has substantial stature in the eyes of a jury, this could be extremely harmful to the people. I suggested that if he wanted to have certain questions asked, he write them out and give them to the defense attorneys to ask. Thereafter, Alexander cut down on his cross-examination of the prosecution witnesses. However, he still continued to amaze me. When the jury went out to deliberate, he didn't even have the exhibit sent back to the jury room, a virtually automatic act, until after I had demanded that he do so. And once in chambers and off the record, he referred to the defendant as poor Tex. Also off the record was a remark I made to him toward the end of the trial. You're the biggest single obstacle to my obtaining a conviction of first-degree murder in this case. Despite the problems presented by Judge Alexander, on October 12, 1971, the jury found Watson guilty of seven counts of first-degree murder and one count of conspiracy to commit murder. That I had effectively destroyed the testimony of the defense psychiatrists on cross-examination was borne out by the fact that on October 19th, it took the jury only two and a half hours to decide that Watson was sane. And on October 21st, after remaining out only six hours, they returned with a verdict of death. The trial had lasted two and a half months and cost a quarter of a million dollars. It also added another 40 volumes, 5,916 pages, to the mini-library on the Tate-LaBianca murders. Although Judge Alexander thanked the jury for the conscientious job they had done, he remarked on the day he sentenced Watson, if I had tried this case without a jury, I possibly would have arrived at a different verdict. In still other proceedings, Susan Atkins pleaded guilty to the murder of Gary Hinman and was given life imprisonment. In sentencing her, Judge Raymond Choate called her a danger to any community who should spend her entire life in custody. 
The defense obtained separate trials for Charles Manson, Bruce Davis, and Steve Grogan on the combined Hinman-Shea murder charges. Despite the fact that the body of Donald Shorty Shea hadn't been found, and hasn't to this day, prosecutors Bert Katz, Anthony Manzella, and Stephen Kay succeeded in the difficult task of obtaining guilty verdicts against each of the defendants on all of the counts. Verdicts of life imprisonment were returned for Manson and Davis. The Grogan jury voted death, but when it came time for sentencing, two days before Christmas, 1971, Judge James Colts, commenting that Grogan was too stupid and too hopped up on drugs to decide anything on his own, and declaring that it was really Manson who decided who lived or died, reduced the sentence to life imprisonment. During voir dire in his trial, Manson, angered by the judge's refusal to let him represent himself, told the court, I enter a plea of guilty. I chopped off Shorty's head. The judge refused to accept the plea, and the next day Manson withdrew it. During another angry outburst, Manson turned to the press and said, I've told my people to start killing you. Again, Manson was represented by Irving Canarak. With Irving, he knew it would be a long trial, postponing his trip to San Quentin's death row. Through all the trials, the Manson girls continued their vigil on the corner of Temple and Broadway. Literally in the shadow of the Hall of Justice, in view of the thousands of people who passed that corner every day, they fashioned a bizarre plot to free all the imprisoned Manson family members. In late July of 1971, my co-author learned from a family member in the San Francisco Bay Area that the family was planning to break out Manson sometime within the next month. Though he was not told how they intended to accomplish this, he was given some additional details. The family was stockpiling arms and ammunition. They had secretly rented a house in South Los Angeles and were hiding an escaped convict there. And with Manson's escape, Helter Skelter will really start. The revolution will be on. Wishful thinking? I wasn't sure, and passed the information along to LAPD. When I did, I learned that among the witnesses Manson had called in the Hinman Shea trial was a fulsome convict named Kenneth Como, also known by the colorful AKA Jesse James. Though it hadn't been publicized, when brought to Los Angeles less than a week before, Como had managed to escape from the Hall of Records. LAPD doubted, however, that he was still in the area. As for the Manson escape, they had heard rumors also, but nothing definite. They were inclined to doubt the tale. On schedule, less than a month later, the Manson family made their attempt. Shortly after closing time on the night of Saturday, August 21, 1971, six armed robbers entered the Western Surplus Store in the Los Angeles suburb of Hawthorne. While one kept a shotgun on the female clerk and two customers, the others began carrying rifles, shotguns, and pistols to a van parked in the alley outside. They had collected about 140 guns when they spotted the first police car. LAPD, alerted by a silent alarm, had already sealed off the alley. The robbers came out shooting. In the 10-minute gun battle that followed, the van was riddled with over 50 bullets, and some 20 bullets crashed into the black and whites. Surprisingly, no one was killed, though three of the suspects received slight wounds. All six robbers were Manson family members. Apprehended were Mary Bruner, 27, first member of the family, Catherine Scher, a.k.a. Gypsy, 29, and Dennis Rice, 32, both recently freed after serving 90-day sentences for their part in the attempted silencing of Barbara Hoyt, Lawrence Bailey, a.k.a. Larry Jones, 23, who was present the night the Tate killers left Spawn, and escaped convict Kenneth Como, 33. 
Another family member, Charles Lovett, 19, got away during the gunfight, but was subsequently apprehended. After their arrest, it was learned that the same group was also responsible for the robbery of a Covina beer distributorship on August 13th, which netted them $2,600. The police surmised that through the robberies, the group intended to get enough guns and ammunition to stage a San Rafael-type commando raid on the courthouse. Steve Grogan had called Manson as a witness in his trial. It was believed that the day Manson appeared in court, the family intended to storm the Hall of Justice, breaking out both. Actually, the real plan was far more spectacular, and given the right circumstances and enough public pressure, it just might have worked. Although never made public before this, according to a family member who was privy to the planning of the Hawthorne robbery, the real plan was as follows. Using the stolen weapons, the family was going to hijack a 747 and kill one passenger every hour until Manson and all the other imprisoned family members were released. Extraordinary security measures were taken during the trial of the Hawthorne robbery defendants, in part because the defense had called as witnesses what Judge Arthur Alarcon labeled the biggest collection of murderers in Los Angeles County at one time. Twelve convicted killers, including Manson, Beausoleil, Atkins, Krenwinkle, Van Houten, Grogan, and Davis took the stand. Their presence in one place made everyone a little nervous, especially since by this time the family had discovered that the Hall of Justice was not escape-proof. In the early morning hours of October 20, 1971, Kenneth Como hacksawed his way through the bars of his 13th floor cell, climbed down to the 8th floor on a rope made of bedsheets, kicked in a window in the courtroom of Department 104, where just a few months earlier I'd prosecuted Manson and his three female co-defendants, then left the building by way of the stairs. Sandra Good picked up Como in the family van. Though Sandy later smashed up the van and was arrested, Como managed to elude capture for seven hours. Also arrested, but subsequently released, there being no positive proof that they had aided and abetted the escape, were Squeaky, Brenda, Kitty, and two other family members. No attempt was made to break out Manson during the Hawthorne trial. However, two of the jurors had to be replaced by alternates after receiving telephone threats that they would be killed if they voted for conviction. The calls were linked to an unidentified female family member. Although Gypsy and Rice had previously been given only 90 days for their part in the attempted murder of a prosecution witness, they and their co-defendants found that the courts take shooting at police officers a little more seriously. All were charged with two counts of armed robbery. Rice pleaded guilty and was sent to state prison. The others were convicted on both counts and given the following sentences. Lovett, two consecutive five-year-to-life terms. Cher, ten years to life. Como, fifteen years to life. Bruner and Bailey, 20 years to life. Sandra Good was subsequently tried for aiding and abetting an escape. Her attorney, the one and only Irving Canarak, claimed she had been kidnapped by Como. The jury didn't buy it, and Sandy was given six months in jail. The day Como escaped, Canarak, appearing in Judge Raymond Choate's court, claimed in his patented way, I allege with no proof at this particular time that this escape was deliberately allowed to take place. Judge Choate asked Canarak if he could explain why Como was forced to climb down a rope from the 13th to the 8th floor. That makes it look good, Your Honor, Canarak explained. While Manson was still on trial for the Hinman Shea murders, I dropped into the courtroom one day. It was a welcome relief to be a spectator for a change. 
Manson, who had recently taken to wearing a black stormtrooper's uniform in court, spotted me and sent a message by the bailiff that he wanted to speak to me. There were a few things I wanted to ask him about also, so I stayed over after court recessed. Sitting in the prisoner's dock in the courtroom, we talked from 4.30 p.m. to nearly 6 p.m. None of the talk concerned the current charges against him. Mostly, we discussed his philosophy. I was especially interested in learning the evolution of some of his ideas and questioned him at length about his relationship with Scientology and with the satanic cult known as The Process, or The Church of the Final Judgment. Manson had wanted to speak to me, he said, because he wanted me to know, I don't have no hard feelings. He told me that I had done a fantastic, remarkable job in convicting him, and he said, you gave me a fair trial, like you promised. He was not bitter about the result, however, because to him, prison has always been my home. I didn't want to leave it the last time, and you're only sending me back there. There were regular meals, not great, but better than the garbage at Spawn Ranch. And since you don't have to work if you don't want to, he'd have plenty of time to play his guitar. That may be, Charlie, but you don't have any women there, I said. I don't need broads, he replied. Every woman I ever had, she asked me to make love to her. I never asked them. I can do without them. There was plenty of sex in prison, he said. Although Manson again claimed that the Beatles' music and LSD were responsible for the Tate-LaBianca murders, he admitted that he had known they were going to happen, because I even knew what the mice were doing at Spawn Ranch. He then added, So I said to them, Here, do you want this rope? Do you want this gun? And later I told them not to tell anyone about what happened. Though careful never to do so in open court, in our private conversations, Manson often referred to blacks as niggers. He claimed he didn't dislike them. I don't hate anyone, he said, but I know they hate me. Returning to the familiar theme of Helter Skelter, I asked him when he thought the black man was going to take over. I may have put a clog in them, he replied. You mean the trial alerted Whitey? His reply was a simple and sad, yeah. Our conversation took place on June 14, 1971. The following day, one of the attorneys complained, and Judge Choate conducted an evidentiary hearing in open court. I testified to the gist of our conversation, noting that Manson had asked to speak to me, and not vice versa, and that the current charges were not discussed. There was nothing unethical about this, I observed. Moreover, I told Canarek that Manson wanted to talk to me, but Canarek had merely walked away. The bailiff, Rusty Burrell, who had sat in on the conversation, staying overtime because he found it interesting, supported my account, as did Manson himself. Manson. The version the man, indicating me, gave was right on. I am almost sure Mr. Canarek knew that I had asked to see him. I had wanted to speak to this man for the last year, and it was my request that motivated it. As for the hearing itself, Manson said, Your Honor, I don't think this is fair at all. You know, this was my mistake. Agreeing and ruling that there had been no impropriety involved, Judge Choate brought the hearing to an end. The irony of all this was not lost on the press, which reported, with some incredulity, that Manson had taken the stand to defend the man who had convicted him of seven murders.
My interest in the sources of Manson's beliefs stretched back to my assignment to the case. Some of those sources have been mentioned earlier. Others, though inadmissible as evidence in the trial, have more than a passing interest, if only as clues to the genesis of such a sick obsession. I knew from Greg Jacobson and others that Manson was an eclectic, a borrower of ideas. I knew, too, both from his prison records and from my conversations with him, that Manson's involvement with Scientology had been more than a passing fad. Manson told me, as he had Paul Watkins, that he had reached the highest stage, Theta Clear, and no longer had any connection with or need for Scientology. I was inclined to accept at least the latter portion of his claim. In my rather extensive investigation, I found no evidence of any kind that Manson was involved with Scientology after his release from prison in 1967. Note. One of Manson's chief disciples, Bruce Davis, was very closely involved with Scientology for a time, working in its London headquarters from about November or December of 1968 to April of 1969. According to a Scientology spokesman, Davis was kicked out of the organization for his drug use. He returned to the Manson family and Spawn Ranch in time to participate in the Hinman and Shea slayings. End of note. By this time, he had gone on to do his own thing. What effect, if any, Scientology had on Manson's mental state cannot be measured. Undoubtedly, he picked up from his auditing sessions in prison some knowledge of mind control, as well as some techniques which he later put to use in programming his followers. Manson's link with the process, or the Church of the Final Judgment, is more tenuous, yet considerably more fascinating. The leader of the satanic cult is one Robert Moore, whose cult name is Robert de Grimston. Himself a former disciple of Scientology founder L. Ron Hubbard, Moore broke with Scientology about 1963 to form his own group, after apparently attaining a high position in the London headquarters. He and his followers later traveled to various parts of the world, including Mexico and the United States, and for at least several months, and possibly longer, he lived in San Francisco. He also reportedly participated in a seminar at the Esalen Institute in Big Sur, though whether this coincided with any of Manson's visits there is unknown. One of de Grimston's most fervent disciples is one Victor Wilde, a young leather goods manufacturer whose process name is Brother Ely. Up until December of 1967, Victor Wilde's residence, and the San Francisco headquarters for the process, was 407 Cole Street in Haight-Ashbury. From about April through July 1967, Charles Manson and his still-fledgling family lived just two blocks away, at 636 Cole. In view of Manson's curiosity, it appears very likely that he at least investigated the Satanists, and there is fairly persuasive evidence that he borrowed some of their teachings. In one of our conversations during the Tate-LaBianca trial, I asked Manson if he knew Robert Moore, or Robert de Grimston. He denied knowing de Grimston, but said he had met Moore. You're looking at him, Manson told me. Moore and I are one and the same. I took this to mean that he felt they thought alike. Not long after this, I was visited by two representatives of the process, a father John and a brother Matthew. Having heard that I was asking questions about the group, they had been sent from their Cambridge, Massachusetts headquarters to assure me that Manson and Moore had never met, and that Moore was opposed to violence. They also left me a stack of process literature. The following day, the names Father John and Brother Matthew appeared on Manson's visitors list. What they discussed is unknown. All I know is that in my last conversation with Manson, 
Charlie became evasive when I questioned him about the process. In 1968 and 1969, the process launched a major recruiting drive in the United States. They were in Los Angeles in May and June of 1968, and for at least several months in the fall of 1969, returning to England in about October, after claiming to have converted some 200 American hippies to their sect. Manson was in Los Angeles during both periods. It is possible that there may have been some contact with Manson and or his group, but I found no evidence of this. I'm inclined to think that Manson's contact with the group probably occurred in San Francisco in 1967, as indicated, at a time when his philosophy was still being formulated. I believe there was at least some contact, in view of the many parallels between Manson's teachings and those of the process, as revealed in their literature. Both preached an imminent, violent Armageddon, in which all but the chosen few would be destroyed. Both found the basis for this in the book of Revelation. Both conceived that the motorcycle gangs, such as Hell's Angels, would be the troops of the last days. And both actively sought to solicit them to their side. The three great gods of the universe, according to the process, were Jehovah, Lucifer, and Satan, with Christ, the ultimate unifier who reconciles all three. Manson had a simpler duality. He was known to his followers as both Satan and Christ. Both preached the second coming of Christ, a not unusual belief, except in their interpretation of it. According to a process pamphlet, through love, Christ and Satan have destroyed their enmity and come together for the end. Christ to judge, Satan to execute the judgment. When Christ returned this time, Manson said, it would be the Romans, that is, the establishment, who went up on the cross. Manson's attitude toward fear was so curious, I felt it to be almost unique. At least I felt that until reading in a special issue of the Process magazine devoted to fear. Fear is beneficial. Fear is the catalyst of action. It is the energizer, the weapon built into the game in the beginning, enabling a being to create an effect upon himself, to spur himself on to new heights, and to brush aside the bitterness of failure. Though the wording differs, this is almost exactly what Manson preached. Manson spoke frequently of the bottomless pit, the process of the bottomless void. Within the organization, the process was called, at least until 1969, the family, while its members were known as brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers. The symbol of the process is similar, though not identical, to the swastika Manson carved on his forehead. Among the precepts of the process, which parallel Manson's own, the time of the end is now. The ultimate sin is to kill an animal. Christ said, love your enemy. Christ's enemy was Satan. Love Christ and Satan. The lamb and the goat must come together. Pure love descended from the pinnacle of heaven, united with pure hatred raised from the depths of hell. One former process member, being interrogated by LAPD in connection with two motorcycle gang slayings, neither of which was connected with the process, said of the cult, they don't like anybody that they can't indoctrinate or anybody that is not with them. They are just totally against what they call the gray forces, the rich establishment, or the Negroes. Question. Why don't they like Negroes? Answer. I don't know. They just don't. Question. They have a natural hate for the Negro? Answer. They have a natural hate, but they would also like to use the Negro as a whole to begin some kind of militant thing. They are really good at picking out angry people. 
This was merely the opinion of one disaffiliated member, and may well not be the official position of the process itself, but the similarities to Manson's own philosophy are still chilling. These are only some of the parallels I found. They are enough to convince me, at least, that even if Manson himself may never have been a member of the process, he borrowed heavily from the satanic cult. Note. There is at least one precept Manson did not borrow from the group. Unmarried adherents are expected to remain chaste. End of note. Nor are these the only connections between the Manson family and Satanists. Bobby Beausoleil was for a time closely associated with filmmaker Kenneth Anger, who was himself deeply involved in both the motorcycle gang mystique and the occult. Beausoleil starred in Anger's film, Lucifer Rising, playing the part of Lucifer. This was before he ever met Manson. In his psychiatric report on Susan Atkins, Dr. Joel Hockman wrote of a portion of her San Francisco period, apparently sometime in 1967 or 1968, before she too met Manson. At this time she entered into what she now calls her satanic period. She became involved with Anton LaVey, the Satanist. Note. LaVey, founder of the San Francisco-based First Church of Satan, is known, by those knowledgeable in such matters, more as a spectacular showman than as a demonic Satanist. He has stated numerous times that he condemns violence and ritual sacrifice. End of note. She took a part in a commercial production of A Witch's Sabbath and recalls the opening night when she took LSD. She was supposed to lie down in a coffin during the act and lay down in it while hallucinating. She stated that she didn't want to come out and consequently the curtain was 15 minutes late. She stated that she felt alive and everything else in the ugly world was dead. Subsequently, she stayed on her satanic trip for approximately eight months. During the Tate-LaBianca trial, Patricia Krenwinkel doodled. Her two favorite subjects, according to bailiff Bill Murray, were devil's heads and the Mendes goat, both Satanist symbols. Before he killed him, Charles Tex Watson told Wojciech Frykowski, I am the devil and I'm here to do the devil's business. An apparently important influence on Manson, in both precept and example, was a dead man, Adolf Hitler. Manson looked up to Hitler and spoke of him often. He told his followers that Hitler had the best answer to everything, and that he was a tuned-in guy who leveled the karma of the Jews. Manson saw himself as no less a historical figure, a leader, who would not only reverse the karma of the blacks, but level all but his own Aryan race, his all-white, all-American family. There were both surface and substantive parallels between Hitler and Manson. Both were vegetarians, both were little men, both suffered deep wounds in their youth, the psychological scars at least contributing to, if not causing, their deep hatred for society. Both suffered the stigma of illegitimacy, in Manson's case, because he himself was a bastard, in Hitler's because his father was. Both were vagrant wanderers. Both were frustrated and rejected artists. Both liked animals more than people. Both were deeply engrossed in the occult. Both had others commit their murders for them. Both were racists. Yet there is some evidence that both also believed they carried the blood of the very people they despised. Many historians believe that Hitler was secretly obsessed with the fear that he had a Jewish ancestor. If Manson's prison records are correct, he may have believed his father was black. Both surrounded themselves with boot-licking slaves. 
both sought out the weaknesses of others and used them. Both programmed their followers through repetition, repeating the same phrases over and over. Both realized and exploited the psychological impact of fear. Both had a favorite epithet for those they hated. Hitler's was Schweinhund. Manson's was Pig's. Both had eyes, which their followers described as hypnotic. Beyond that, however, both had a presence, a charisma, and a tremendous amount of personal persuasive power. Generals went to Hitler intent on convincing him that his military plans were insane. They left true believers. Dean Morehouse went to Spawn Ranch to kill Manson for stealing his daughter, Ruth Ann. He ended up on his knees worshiping him. Both had an incredible ability to influence others. Both Manson's and Hitler's followers were able to explain away the monstrous acts their leaders committed by retreating into philosophical abstractions. Probably the single most important influence on Hitler was Nietzsche. Manson told Jacobson that he had read Nietzsche. Whether true or not, Manson read with difficulty and Nietzsche is not easy reading, both Manson and Hitler believed in the three basic tenets of Nietzsche's philosophy. Women are inferior to men. The white race is superior to all other races. It is not wrong to kill if the end is right. And kill they both did. Both believed that mass murder was all right, even desirable, if it furthered the attainment of some grand plan. Each had such a plan. Each had his own grandiose obsession. Hitler's was the Third Reich. Manson's was helter-skelter. At some point, parallels become more than coincidence. How much of this was conscious borrowing on Manson's part, how much unconscious emulation is unknown. I do believe that if Manson had had the opportunity, he would have become another Hitler. I can't conceive of his stopping short of murdering huge masses of people. Some mysteries remain. One is the exact number of murders committed by members of the Manson family. Manson bragged to Juan Flynn that he had committed 35 murders. When Juan first told me this, I was inclined to doubt that it was anything more than sick boasting on Charlie's part. There is now evidence, however, that even if this wasn't true then, the total to date may be very close to, and may even exceed, Manson's estimate. In November 1969, Susan Atkins told Ronnie Howard, there are 11 murders that they will never solve. Leslie Van Houten used the same number in her interrogation by Mike McGann, while Weish told Barbara Hoyt that she knew of 10 people the family had killed, besides Sharon. Susan told Virginia Graham that, in addition to the eight Hinman Tate LaBianca slayings, there's more, and more before. One was undoubtedly Shay. Another was probably the Black Panther, Bernard Crow, whom Susan, like Manson himself, erroneously believed dead. Susan may have been referring to Crow when, in the tape she made with Caballero, she said that the 22 caliber Longhorn revolver used in the Tate homicides had been used in other killings, though on the tape this was clearly plural, not singular. Susan also told Virginia, there's also three people out in the desert that they done in. According to Virginia, Susan just said it very nonchalant-like, mentioning no names. When Steve Zabriskie tried unsuccessfully to convince Portland police that a Charlie and a Clem were involved in both the Tate and the LaBianca murders, he also said that Ed Bailey had told him that he had seen this Charlie shoot a man in the head. The murder had occurred in Death Valley, according to Bailey, and the gun was a 45 caliber automatic. When interrogated by LAPD in May 1970, Bailey, true name Edward Arthur Bailey, denied this. 
However, another source, who was for a time close to the family, claims he heard, there are supposed to be two boys and a girl buried about eight feet deep behind Barker Ranch. No bodies have ever been found, but then the body of Donald Shorty Shea has never been found either. On October 13, 1968, two women, Clyda Delaney and Nancy Warren, were beaten, then strangled to death with leather thongs a few miles south of Ukiah, California. Several members of the Manson family were in the area at the time. Two days later, Manson suddenly moved the whole family from Spawn to Barker Ranch. The Mendocino County Sheriff's Office believed there might be a link, but a belief is not evidence. At about 3.30 a.m. on December 30, 1968, 17-year-old Marina Haba, daughter of writer Hans Haba, was abducted outside the West Hollywood home of her mother as she was returning home from a date. Her body was found on New Year's Day off Mulholland near Beaumont Drive. Cause of death? Multiple stab wounds in the neck and chest. It has been rumored, but never confirmed, that the victim was acquainted with one or more members of the family. Though most of his followers were at Barker Ranch, Manson was apparently in Los Angeles on December 30th, returning to Barker the following day. Though several persons, including KNXT newscaster Carl George, believed there was a connection, nothing definite has been established, and the murder remains unsolved. On the night of May 27, 1969, Darwin Orell Scott was hacked to death in his Ashland, Kentucky apartment. The killing was so savage that the victim, who was stabbed 19 times, was pinned to the floor with a butcher knife. 64-year-old Darwin Scott was the brother of Colonel Scott, the man alleged to be Charles Manson's father. In the spring of 1969, a motorcycle riding guru from California, who called himself Preacher, appeared in the Ashland area with several female followers. Dispensing free LSD to local teenagers, he attempted to set up a commune in an abandoned farmhouse near Huntington. He remained in the area until April, at which time vigilantes burned down the house and drove off the group, because, quoting the Ashland paper, they didn't like hippies and didn't want any more around. At least four local residents later told reporters that Manson and Preacher were one and the same person. Despite their positive IDs, Manson's presence in California during at least part of this period is fairly well documented, and it would appear that he was in California on the day of Scott's murder. On May 22, 1969, Manson telephoned his parole officer, Samuel Barrett, requesting permission to travel to Texas with the Beach Boys. Permission was withheld pending verification of Manson's employment with the group. In a letter dated May 27, the same day as Scott's murder, Manson said that the group had left without him and that he had moved from Death Valley back to Spawn Ranch. To categorize Barrett's control over Manson as minimal would be an exaggeration. Barrett did not again talk to Manson until June 18th. Barrett did not note the postmark on the letter. He did note that he didn't receive it until June 3rd, seven days after it was supposedly written. It is possible that Manson was using the letter as an alibi. It is also possible that he sent one of his killers to murder Scott. But both possibilities are strictly conjecture. The murder of Darwin Scott also remains unsolved. Early on the morning of July 17, 1969, 16-year-old Mark Waltz left his parents' home in Chatsworth and hitchhiked to the Santa Monica Pier to go fishing. His pole was later found on the pier. His body was found about 4 a.m. on July 18th, off Topanga Canyon Boulevard, a short distance from Mulholland. Young Walt's face and head were badly bruised, 
and he had been shot three times in the chest by a 22 caliber weapon. Though neither a ranch hand nor a family member, Waltz occasionally hung around Spawn Ranch. Although LASO sent investigators to Spawn, they were unable to uncover any evidence linking the killing to anyone there. Walt's brother, however, called the ranch and told Manson, I know you done my brother in, and I'm going to kill you. Though he didn't carry through, he obviously felt Manson was responsible. When Danny DiCarlo had his marathon session with LAPD, he was asked, What do you know about a 16-year-old boy that was shot? DiCarlo replied, That had nothing to do with anybody up there. I'll tell you why, because they were just as shocked about it as I was. If they had done it, they would have told me. DiCarlo informed the officers about the brother's call. One asked, Why do you think he suspected Charlie? DiCarlo replied, Because there aren't too many maniacs on the street that would just pull a gun on someone and blow their head off for no reason at all. LAPD didn't pursue it further, since this was LASO's case. The murder remains unsolved. In a period of one month, between July 27th and August 26th, 1969, Charles Manson and his murderous family slaughtered nine people. Gary Hinman, Stephen Parent, Jay Sebring, Abigail Folger, Wojciech Frykowski, Sharon Tate, Lino LaBianca, Rosemary LaBianca, and Donald Shea. Though it is known that a number of female family members were involved in the cleanup operation that followed Shea's murder, None has ever been tried as an accessory after the fact. Some are still on the streets today. Manson's arrest on October 12, 1969, did not stop the murders. As already mentioned, on November 5, 1969, John Philip Hout, a.k.a. Christopher Jesus, a.k.a. Zero, was shot to death in a beach house in Venice. The four family members still present when the police arrived claimed he had killed himself while playing Russian roulette. Linda Baldwin, a.k.a. Little Patty, true name Madeline Joan Cottage, said she had been lying on the bed next to him when it happened. The others, Bruce Davis, Susan Bartell, a.k.a. Country Sue, and Kathy Gillies, all told the officers they hadn't witnessed the act but had heard the shot. At least one, and possibly all, lied. During the penalty phase of the Tate-LaBianca trial, I asked Kathy, you said that Zero shot himself. Who told you that? Certainly not Zero. Answer, nobody had to tell me. I saw it happen. Question, oh, you were present? Answer, yes. Question, can you explain how it happened? Answer, I was talking to him and he walked into the next room. Little Patty was lying on the bed. He sat down on the bed next to her. He reached over, grabbed the gun and shot himself question. Just like that? Answer, yes. Question, out of a clear blue sky? Answer, right out of a clear blue sky. Three big questions remain. Why was Zero playing Russian roulette with a fully loaded gun? Why, if he took the gun out of the leather case, was the case clean of prints? And why, though Bruce Davis admitted picking up the gun, were neither his prints nor those of Zero on it. About a week after the story of Manson's involvement in the Tate-LaBianca murders broke in the press, Los Angeles Times reporter Jerry Cohen was contacted by a man who claimed he had been present when Zero was shot. 
Only Zero hadn't been playing Russian roulette. He had been murdered. The man was about 25, 5 feet 8, blonde, of slight build. He refused to give Cohen his name. He was, he admitted, scared to death. Six or eight persons had been in the Venice pad that night, smoking hash. It was one of the chicks that killed Zero, he told Cohen. But he wouldn't say which one, only that recently, at another Manson family gathering, she had sat staring at him for three hours, all the while fingering her knife. In questioning him, Cohen established that he had become involved with the family after the Tate-LaBianca murders. He had never met Manson, he said, but he had heard from other family members that there had been many more murders than the police know of, and that the family is a whole lot larger than you think. The youth wanted money to get to Marin County in Northern California. Cohen gave him $25, implying there would be more if he returned to identify Zero's murderer. He never saw him again. On November 16, 1969, the body of a young girl was found dumped over an embankment at Mulholland and Beaumont Drive near Laurel Canyon, in almost the same spot where Marina Haba's body was found. A brunette in her late teens, 5 feet 9, 115 pounds, she had been stabbed 157 times in the chest and throat. Ruby Pearl remembered seeing the girl with the family at Spawn and thought her name was Sherry. Though the Manson girls traded aliases often, LASO was able to identify only one Sherry, Sherry Ann Cooper, a.k.a. Simi Valley Sherry. She had fled Barker Ranch at the same time as Barbara Hoyt and was, fortunately, still alive. The victim, who had been dead less than a day, became Jane Doe 59 in police files. Her identity is still unknown. The proximity in time of her death to that of Zero suggests the possibility that she may have been present at the murder, then killed so she wouldn't talk. But this is strictly conjecture, and there is no evidence to support it. Her murder remains unsolved. On November 21, 1969, the bodies of James Sharp, 15, and Doreen Gall, 19, were found in an alley in downtown Los Angeles. The two teenagers had been killed elsewhere, with a long-bladed knife or bayonet, then dumped there. Each had been stabbed over 50 times. Ramparts Division Lieutenant Earl Deemer investigated the Sharp Gall murders, as did Los Angeles Times reporter Cohen. Although the two men felt there was a good possibility that a family member was involved in the slayings, the murders remain unsolved. Both James Sharp and Doreen Gall were Scientologists, the latter a Scientology clear, who had been residing in a Church of Scientology house. According to unconfirmed reports, Doreen Gall was a former girlfriend of Manson family member Bruce Davis, himself an ex-Scientologist. Davis's whereabouts at the times of the murders of Sharp, Gall, and Jane Doe 59 are not known. He disappeared shortly after being questioned in connection with the death of Zero. On December 1, 1969, Joel Dean Pugh, husband of family member Sandy Good, was found with his throat slit in a London hotel room. As noted, local police ruled the death a suicide. On learning of Pugh's demise, Inyo County DA Frank Foles made official inquiries, specifically asking Interpol to check visas to determine if one Bruce Davis was in England at the time. Scotland Yard replied as follows. It has been established that Davis is recorded as embarking at London Airport for the United States of America 
on 25th April 1969 while holding United States Passport 612-2568. At this time, he gave his address as Dormer Cottage, Felbridge, Surrey. This address is owned by the Scientology movement and houses followers of this organization. The local police are unable to give any information concerning Davis, but they understand that he has visited our country more recently than April 1969. However, this is not borne out by our official records. Davis did not reappear until February 1970, when he was picked up at Spawn Ranch, questioned briefly on the Inyo County Grand Theft Auto charges, then released. After the grand jury indicted him for the Hinman murder, he vanished again, this time not surfacing until December 2, 1970, four days after the mysterious disappearance of Ronald Hughes. As mentioned, when he gave himself up, he was accompanied by family member Brenda McCann. With three exceptions, these are all the known murders which have been proven, or are suspected to be, linked to the Manson family. Are there more? I've discussed this with officers from LAPD and LASO, and we tend to think that there probably are, because these people like to kill. But there is no hard evidence. As for those three other murders, two of them occurred as late as 1972. On November 8, 1972, a hiker near the Russian River Resort community of Gurneville in Northern California saw a hand protruding from the ground. When police exhumed the body, it was found to be that of a young man wearing the dark blue tunic of a marine dress uniform. He had been shotgunned and decapitated. The victim was subsequently identified as James T. Willett, 26, a former Marine from Los Angeles County. This information appeared on radio and TV newscasts on Friday, November 10th. On Saturday, November 11th, Stockton, California police spotted Willett's station wagon parked in front of a house at 720 West Flora Street. When refused entry to the house, they broke in, arresting two men and two women and confiscating a number of pistols and shotguns. Both women had Manson family X's on their foreheads. They were Priscilla Cooper, 21, and Nancy Pittman, a.k.a. Brenda McCann, 20. A few minutes after police entered the residence, a third female called, asking to be picked up and given a ride to the house. The police obliged and also arrested Lynette Fromm, a.k.a. Squeaky, 24, ex-officio leader of the family in Manson's absence. The two men were Michael Monfort, 24, and James Craig, 33, both state prison escapees wanted for a number of armed robberies in various parts of California. Both had the letters A.B. tattooed on their left breasts. According to a spokesman for the State Department of Corrections, the initials stood for the Aryan Brotherhood, described as a cult of white prison inmates dedicated largely to racism, but also involved in hoodlum activities, including murder contracts. While in the house, the police noticed freshly turned earth in the basement. After obtaining a search warrant, they began digging, and early the following morning exhumed the body of Lauren Willett, 19. She had been shot once in the head, her death occurring either late Friday night or early Saturday morning, not long after the identity of her slain husband was revealed on news broadcasts. Questioned by the police, Priscilla Cooper claimed that Lauren Willett had killed herself playing Russian roulette. Although, like Zero, Mrs. Willett was not able to contradict this story, the Stockton police were far more skeptical than had been LASO. The three women and two men were charged with her murder. 
They were scheduled to go to trial in May 1973. On April 2nd, however, four of the five surprised the court by entering guilty pleas. Michael Monfort, who pleaded guilty to the murder of Lauren Willett, was sentenced to seven years to life in state prison. Superior Court Judge James Dara also ordered consecutive terms of up to five years and two years for James Craig, who had pleaded guilty to being an accessory after the fact to murder and to possessing an illegal weapon, that is, a sawed-off shotgun. Both girls also pleaded guilty to being an accessory after the fact, and both Priscilla Cooper and Nancy Pittman, a.k.a. Brenda, who Manson once indicated to me was his chief candidate for family assassin, were sent to state prison for up to five years. Still another family member, Maria Alonzo, a.k.a. Crystal, 21, arrested while trying to smuggle a switchblade knife into the Stockton jail, was subsequently released. As was Squeaky. There being insufficient evidence to link Lynette Fromm to Lauren Willett's murder, the charges against her were dropped and she was freed to again assume leadership of the Manson family. Monfort and an accomplice, William Goucher, 23, subsequently pleaded guilty to second-degree murder and the death of James Willett, and were sent to state prison for five years to life. Craig, who pleaded guilty to being an accessory after the fact of the murder, was given another prison term of up to five years. The motive for the two murders is not known. It is known that the Willets had been associated with the Manson family for at least a year, and possibly longer. Police surmised that Lauren Willett was killed after learning of the murder of her husband, to keep her from going to the police. As for the murder of James Willett, the official police theory is that Willett himself may have been about to inform about the robberies the group had committed. There is another possibility. It may be that both James and Lauren Willett were killed because they knew too much about still another murder. James and Lauren. Something about those first names seemed familiar. Then it connected. On November 27, 1970, a James Forsher and a Lauren Elder drove defense attorney Ronald Hughes to Sespe Hot Springs. After Hughes disappeared, the couple were questioned, but not polygraphed, the police being satisfied that when they left the flooded area, Hughes was still alive. At first, I thought Elder might be Lauren Willett's maiden name, but it wasn't. Nor, in checking the police reports and newspaper articles, was I able to find any description of Forsher and Elder. All I did find were their ages, both given as 17, and an address, from which I subsequently learned they had long since moved. All other efforts to track them down were unsuccessful. It appears unlikely that James Forsher and James Willett were the same person. Willett would have been 24 in 1970, not 17. But Lauren is a decidedly uncommon name. And 19 in 1972, she would have been 17 in 1970 coincidence? There had been far stranger ones in this case. One thing is now known, however. If an admission by one of Manson's most hardcore followers is correct, Ronald Hughes was murdered by the Manson family. It was some weeks after the conclusion of the Tate-LaBianca trial before I received the autopsy report I'd requested from Ventura County. The identification, made through dental x-rays, was positive. The body was that of Ronald Hughes. Yet the rest of the autopsy report added little to the newspaper accounts. It noted, The decedent was observed face down in a pool of water, with the head and shoulder wedged under a large rock. One arm was almost completely severed at the shoulder, 
and there were large open areas in the chest and back. Other than this, no outward evidence of violence was noted, while no evidence of foul play was indicated by the x-rays. All this was qualified more than a little by the fact that the body was badly decomposed. As for the report's primary findings, there were none. Nature of death, undetermined. Cause of death, undetermined. The report did note that the stomach contained some evidence of medication residue, but its exact composition, drugs, poison, whatever, was, like the nature and cause of death, left undetermined. Completely dissatisfied with the report, I requested that our office conduct an investigation into the death of Hughes. The request was denied, it being decided that since there was no evidence of foul play, such an investigation was unnecessary. There the matter remained, until very recently. While the Tate-LaBianca trial was still in progress, motion picture director Lawrence Merrick began work on a documentary on the Manson family. The film, simply titled Manson, dealt only briefly with the murders and focused primarily on life at Spawn and Barker ranches. I narrated a few segments, and there were interviews with a number of Manson's followers. The movie was shown at the Venice Film Festival in 1972 and nominated for an Academy Award the following year. During its filming, Merrick gained the confidence of the Manson girls. Sandra Good admitted, for example, on film, that when she and Mary Bruner learned of the Tate murders, while still in the Los Angeles County Jail, Mary said, right on, and I said, wow, looks like we did it. Off-camera and unrecorded, Sandy made a number of other admissions to Merrick. She told him, in the presence of one other witness, that to date the family had killed 35 to 40 people, and that Hughes was the first of the retaliation murders. The trials did not write Feeney to the Manson saga. As Los Angeles Times reporter Dave Smith observed in West Magazine, to pull the curtain over the Manson case is to deny ourselves any possible hint of where the beast may come from next, and so remain afraid of things that go bump in the night, the way we were in August of 1969. Mass murders have occurred throughout history. Since the Tate-LaBianca slayings, in California alone, Labor contractor Juan Corona has been convicted of killing 25 migrant farm workers. John Lindley Frazier slaughtered Dr. Victor Ota, his wife, two of his sons, and his secretary, then dumped their bodies in the Ota swimming pool. In a rampage that lasted several months, Herbert Mullen killed 13 persons, ranging in age from 3 to 73. Edmund Kemper III, ruled insane after slaying his grandmother and grandfather, was ruled sane and released to later kill his mother, one of her friends and six college co-eds, and a possible total of 17 murders has been attributed to two young ex-convict drifters. With the exception of the latter pair, however, these were the work of loners, obviously deranged, if not legally insane, individuals, who committed the murders by themselves. The Manson case was, and remains, unique. If, as Sandra Good claimed, the family has to date committed 35 to 40 murders, this may be near the U.S. record. Yet it is not the number of victims which makes the case intriguing and gives it its continuing fascination, but a number of other elements for which there is probably no collective parallel in the annals of American crime. The prominence of the victims, the months of speculation, conjecture, and pure fright before the killers were identified, the incredibly strange motive for the murders to ignite a black-white Armageddon, the motivating nexus between the lyrics of the most famous rock group ever, the Beatles, and the crimes, 
and behind it all, pulling the strings, a Mephistophelian guru who had the unique power to persuade others to murder for him. Most of them young girls who went out and savagely murdered total strangers at his command, with relish and gusto, and with no evident signs of guilt or remorse. All these things combined to make Manson perhaps the most frightening mass murderer, and these murders perhaps the most bizarre in American history. How Manson gained control remains the most puzzling question of all. During the Tate-LaBianca trials, the issue was not so much how he did this, but proving that he did it. Yet in understanding the whole Manson phenomenon, the how is extremely important. We have some of the answers. During the course of his wanderings, Manson probably encountered thousands of persons. Most chose not to follow him, either because they sensed that he was a very dangerous man, or because they did not respond to the sick philosophy he preached. Those who did join him were not, as noted, the typical girl or boy next door. Charles Manson was not a Pied Piper, who suddenly appeared on the basketball court at Texas State, handed Charles Watson a tab of LSD, then led him into a life of crime. Watson had quit college with only a year to go, gone to California, immersed himself in the selling as well as the using of drugs before he ever met Charles Manson. Not just Watson, but nearly every other member of the family had dropped out before meeting Manson. Nearly all had within them a deep-seated hostility toward society and everything it stood for, which pre-existed their meeting Manson. Those who chose to go with him did so, Dr. Joel Hockman testified, for reasons which lie within the individuals themselves. In short, there was a need, and Manson seemed to fulfill it. But it was a double process of selection, for Manson decided who stayed. Obviously, he did not want anyone who he felt would challenge his authority, cause dissension in the group, or question his dogma. They chose, and Manson chose, and the result was the family. Those who gravitated to Spawn Ranch and stayed did so because basically they thought and felt alike. This was his raw material. In shaping that material into a band of cold-blooded assassins who were willing to vent, for him, his enormous hostility toward society, Manson employed a variety of techniques. He sensed and capitalized on their needs. As Greg Jacobson observed, Charlie was a man of a thousand faces, who related to all human beings on their level of need. His ability to psych out people was so great that many of his disciples felt he could read their minds. I doubt seriously if there was any magic in this. Having had many, many years to study human nature in prison, and being the sophisticated con man that he is, Manson probably realized that there are certain problems that nearly every human being is beset with. I strongly suspect that his magical powers were nothing more and nothing less than the ability to utter basic truisms to the right person at the right time. For example, any girl, if she is a runaway, has probably had problems with her father, while anyone who came to Spawn Ranch was searching for something. Manson made it a point to find out what that something was and supply at least a semblance of it, whether it was a father surrogate, a Christ figure, a need for acceptance and belonging, or a leader in leaderless times. Drugs were another of his tools. As brought out in the psychiatric testimony during the trials, LSD was not a causal agent, but a catalyst. Manson used it very effectively to make his followers more suggestible, to implant ideas, to extract agreements. As Paul Watkins told me, Charlie always took a smaller dose of LSD than the others, 
so he would remain in command. He used repetition. By constantly preaching and lecturing to his subjects on an almost daily basis, he gradually and systematically erased many of their inhibitions. As Manson himself once remarked in court, you can convince anybody of anything if you just push it at them all of the time. They may not believe it 100%, but they will still draw opinions from it, especially if they have no other information to draw their opinions from. Therein lies still another of the keys he used. In addition to repetition, he used isolation. There were no newspapers at Spawn Ranch, no clocks. Cut off from the rest of society, he created in this timeless land a tight little society of his own, with its own value system. It was holistic, complete, and totally at odds with the world outside. He used sex. Realizing that most people have sexual hang-ups, he taught, by both precept and example, that in sex there is no wrong, thereby eradicating both their inhibitions and their guilt. But there was more than sex. There was also love, a great deal of love. To overlook this would be to miss one of the strongest bonds that existed among them. The love grew out of their sharing, their communal problems and pleasures, their relationship with Charlie. They were a real family in almost every sense of that word, a sociological unit complete to brothers, sisters, substitute mothers, linked by the domination of an all-knowing, all-powerful patriarch. Cooking, washing dishes, cleaning, sewing, all the chores they had hated at home they now did willingly because they pleased Charlie. He used fear very, very effectively. Whether he picked up this technique in prison or later is not known, but it was one of his most effective tools for controlling others. It may also have been something more. As Stanford University professor Philip Zimbardo, a longtime student of crime and its effects, noted in a Newsweek article, by raising the level of fear around you, your own fear seems more normal and socially acceptable. Manson's own fear bordered on paranoia. He taught them that life was a game, a magical mystery tour. One day they would be pirates with cutlasses, slashing at anyone who dared board their imaginary ship. The next, they'd change costumes and identities and become Indians stalking cowboys, or devils and witches casting spells. A game. But there was always a pattern behind it. Them versus us. Dr. Hockman testified, I think that historically the easiest way to program someone into murdering is to convince them that they are alien, that they are them and we are us, and that they are different from us. Krauts. Japs. Gooks. Pigs. With the frequent name-changing and role-playing, Manson created his own band of schizophrenics. Little Susan Atkins, who sang in the church choir and nursed her mother while she was dying of cancer, couldn't be held responsible for what Sadie Mae Glutz had done. He brought to the surface their latent hatred, their inherent penchant for sadistic violence, focusing it on a common enemy, the establishment. He depersonalized the victims by making them symbols. It is easier to stab a symbol than a person. He taught his followers a completely amoral philosophy, which provided complete justification for their acts. If everything is right, then nothing can be wrong. If nothing is real and all of life is a game, then there need be no regret. If they needed something that couldn't be found in the garbage bins or communal clothing pile, they stole it. Step by step. 
panhandling, petty theft, prostitution, burglaries, armed robberies, and last of all, for no motive of gain, but because it was Charlie's will, and Charlie's will is man's son, the final step, the ultimate act of defiance of the establishment, the most positive proof of their total commitment, murder. Comedians punned that the family that slays together stays together. But behind the grim jest, there was truth. Knowing they had violated the strictest of all commandments created a bond not less but more binding in that it was their secret. He used religion. Not only did he find support for much of his philosophy in the Bible, he often implied that he was the second coming of Christ. He had his twelve apostles several times over. Not one but two Judases, Sadie and Linda, his retreat to the desert, Barker Ranch, and his trial in the Hall of Justice. He also used music, in part because he was a frustrated musician, but also because he must have known it was the one thing that could get through to more young people than any other. He used his own superior intelligence. He was not only older than his followers, he was brighter, more articulate and savvy, far more clever and insidious. With his prison background, his ever-adaptable line of con, plus a pimp's knowledge of how to manipulate others, he had little trouble convincing his naive, impressionable followers that it was not they but society which was sick. This, too, was exactly what they wanted to hear. All of these factors contributed to Manson's control over others. But when you add them all up, do they equal murder without remorse? Maybe. But I tend to think that there is something more some missing link that enabled him to so rape and bastardize the minds of his followers that they would go against the most ingrained of all commandments, thou shalt not kill, and willingly, even eagerly, murder at his command. It may be something in his charismatic, enigmatic personality, some intangible quality of power that no one has yet been able to isolate and identify. It may be something he learned from others. Whatever it is, I believe Manson has full knowledge of the formula he used and it worries me that we do not. For the frightening legacy of the Manson case is that it could happen again. I believe Charles Manson is unique. He is certainly one of the most fascinating criminals in American history, and it appears unlikely that there will ever be another mass murderer quite like him. But it does not take a profit to see at least some of the potentials of his madness in the world today. Whenever people unquestioningly turn over their minds to authoritarian figures to do with as they please, whether it be in a satanic cult or some of the more fanatic offshoots of the Jesus movement, in the right wing or the far left, or in the mind-bending cults of the new sensitivity, those potentials exist. One hopes that none of these groups will spawn other Charles Mansons. But it would be naive to suggest that the chilling possibility does not exist. There are some happy endings to the Manson story, and some not so happy. Both Barbara Hoyt and Diane Lake returned to and graduated from high school, with apparently few, if any, permanent scars from their time with Manson. Barbara is now studying to be a nurse. Stephanie Schramm has her own dog grooming shop. Paul Watkins and Brooks Poston form their own combo and appear at various clubs in the Inyo County area. Their songs were good enough to be used as background music in the Robert Hendrickson documentary film on Manson. After the fire, George Spahn sold his ranch to an investment firm, which planned to turn it into a dude ranch for German visitors to the United States. He's since purchased another ranch near Klamath Falls, Oregon, and Ruby Pearl is running it for him. 
I haven't heard from Juan Flynn recently, but I'm not worried about him. Juan was always able to take care of himself. Though I last saw him in my office, for some reason I visualize him on a big white horse, his pretty girlfriend behind him holding on for dear life as they gallop off into the sunset, which I suspect is Juan's own image of himself. Since the murder of his wife, Roman Polanski has produced several motion pictures, including a new version of Macbeth. Critics noticed in his interpretation disturbing parallels to the Tate murders. Polanski himself posed for an Esquire interview, holding aloft a shiny knife, and according to the press, he has recently moved back to Los Angeles, into a home not far from 10,050 Shallow Drive. Polanski's attorney, working in conjunction with LAPD, divided the $25,000 reward as follows. Ronnie Howard and Virginia Graham each received $12,000, while Stephen Weiss, the young boy who found the 22 caliber murder weapon, received $1,000. Neither Danny DiCarlo nor Alan Springer was around to share in the reward. Shortly before the Watson trial, Danny skipped bail on the federal gun charge and fled to Canada. His exact whereabouts are unknown. According to LAPD, biker Al Springer simply vanished. It is not known whether he is alive or dead. Ronnie Howard tried working as a cocktail waitress, but found it difficult to hold a job. Everywhere she went, she said, she was identified as the Manson Case Snitch. Several times, she was beaten up on her way home from work, and one night, someone fired a bullet through the living room window of her apartment, missing her head by inches. The would-be assailant was never identified. The next day, she told reporters, I should have kept my mouth shut in the first place. Virginia Graham had a job as a receptionist in a legal office and seemed well on the way to rehabilitation when she jumped parole. As this is written, she is still a fugitive. Seven months after reporter Bill Farr declined to tell Judge Older who gave him the Virginia Graham statement regarding the celebrity murders the Manson family had planned, Judge Older called Farr back into court and ordered him to either do so or be found in contempt. Under California law, the confidentiality of a reporter's news source is protected. However, since the Tate-LaBianca trial, Farr had left the Los Angeles Herald-Examiner and was now working in a press secretary job. Older said that since he was no longer a reporter, he was no longer protected by the law. Farr argued, and I feel quite persuasively, that if Older's order was permitted to stand, both the news media and the public would suffer, since, if not guaranteed anonymity, many persons would decide not to provide essential information to the press. On both constitutional grounds and his own personal convictions, Farr declined to identify his sources. He did state, on the advice of his attorneys, that he had obtained copies of the Graham statement from two lawyers and another person subject to the gag order, but he declined to name them. Under orders from Judge Older, defense attorneys Day Shin, Irving Canarak, and Paul Fitzgerald, and prosecutors Stephen Kay, Donald Musich, and I all took the stand. All six denied under oath giving the statement to Farr. All I know is that I didn't give Farr the statement. Judge Older held Farr in civil contempt and sentenced him to an indefinite jail term. He later served 48 days in the Los Angeles County Jail before being freed by an order by U.S. Supreme Court Justice William O. Douglas pending the outcome of a new appeal. Had Farr been cited for criminal contempt and given consecutive sentences, the maximum penalty would have been 65 days in jail and a fine of $6,500. But Older cited him for civil contempt, and gave him an indefinite sentence, 
which could mean that if Older remains adamant and the higher courts rule against Farr, he could remain in jail for as long as 15 years, until 55-year-old Charles Older reaches 70, the mandatory age of retirement. Many, though not all, of the hardcore Manson family members are now serving time in various penal institutions. Other family members split to follow new leaders. Kathy Gillies, according to the last information I received, was a mom with one of the motorcycle gangs. Still others continue to make headlines. Maria Alonzo, a.k.a. Crystal, who was released shortly after the Stockton murder, was arrested in March 1974 and charged with allegedly plotting to kidnap a foreign consul general in an attempt to secure the release of two prisoners in the Los Angeles County Jail. As this is written, she has yet to be brought to trial. For a time, there was a spate of books, plays, and motion pictures, which, if not glorifying Manson, depicted him in a not wholly unfavorable light. And for a time, it looked as if a Manson cult was emerging. Not only were there buttons reading, Free the Manson Four, that cancerous growth known as the family again began growing. When interviewed, the new converts, who had never had any personal contact with Manson, looked and talked exactly like Squeaky, Sandy, and the others, giving rise to the very disturbing possibility that Manson's madness might be communicable. But the strange phase quickly passed, and there is little left of the Manson family now, though little Squeaky, chief cheerleader of the Manson cause, is still keeping the faith. Although undisputed leader of the family while Charlie is in absentia, and presumably involved in the planning of their activities, and though arrested more than a dozen times on charges ranging from robbery to murder, she has only been convicted a few times, and always on minor charges. Moreover, not long ago she found a champion in, of all places, the district attorney's office in Los Angeles. One of the young deputy DAs, William Melcher, first became acquainted with Squeaky while the group was holding its vigil on the corner of Temple and Broadway. For Christmas 1970, Melcher's wife baked cookies for the Manson girls, and a friendship developed. Not long after Squeaky was released on the Stockton murder charge, she was rearrested as a suspect in a Granada Hills armed robbery. Convinced they had the wrong person, Melcher successfully proved this to the police, and she was freed. Clearing her was, Melcher told the Los Angeles Times, my greatest satisfaction in three years as a prosecutor. Noting that the group had a lot of ill feeling about the police and courts, I wanted them to know that justice also works on their side of the street. Someday he would like to write a book on the girls, Melcher added. I'd like to write not an expose of the tragedy and violence, which I do not condone, but a book about the beauty I've seen in that group, their opposition to war, their truthfulness, and their generosity. The fate of Charles Manson, Charles Watson, Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, Leslie Van Houten, and Robert Beausoleil was decided on February 18, 1972. That day, the California State Supreme Court announced that it had voted 6-1 to one to abolish the death penalty in the state of California. The opinion was based on Article 1, Section 6 of the state constitution, which forbids cruel or unusual punishment. Note. In June 1972, the United States Supreme Court ruled, in a 5-4 decision, that the death penalty, if imposed in an arbitrary fashion, with the jury being given absolute discretion and no guidelines, constituted cruel and unusual punishment in violation of the Eighth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Although a number of states, including California, have since passed laws restoring the death penalty and making it mandatory for certain crimes, including mass murders, 
At the time this is written, the United States Supreme Court has yet to rule on their constitutionality. Even if the California law is let stand, it would not affect the Manson family killers, since the new statute is not retroactive. End of note. The sentences of the 107 persons awaiting execution in California were automatically reduced to life imprisonment. Manson, in Los Angeles as a defense witness in the Bruce Davis trial, grinned broadly on hearing the news. In California, a person sentenced to life imprisonment is eligible to apply for parole in seven years. By August 1972, the last prisoners had left California's death rows, most to be transferred to the yards, or general inmate population, of various state penal institutions. Although at this writing, Atkins, Krenwinkel, and Van Houten remain in the special security unit constructed for them at the California Institute for Women at Frontera, it is likely that in time they will join the general population also. In his psychiatric report on Patricia Krenwinkel, Dr. Joel Hockman said that of the three girls, Katie had the most tenuous hold on reality. It was his opinion that if she were ever separated from the others and the Manson mystique, it was quite possible she would lose even that and lapse into complete psychosis. With regard to Leslie Van Houten, who of the three girls was least committed to Manson, yet still murdered for him, I fear that she may grow harder and tougher. I have very little hope for her eventual rehabilitation. Writing of Susan Atkins, Los Angeles Times reporter Dave Smith expressed something which I had long felt. Watching her behavior, bold and actressy in court, cute and mincing when making eye play with someone, a little haunted when no one pays attention, I get the feeling that one day she might start screaming and simply never stop. As for the other convicted Manson family killers, Charles Watson, Robert Beausoleil, Steve Grogan, a.k.a. Clem, and Bruce Davis, all are now in the general inmate population. Tex is no longer playing insane and has a girlfriend who visits him regularly. Bobby received a certain amount of national attention when he was interviewed by Truman Capote during a TV documentary on American prisons. Not long afterward, his jaw was broken and his hand dislocated in a brawl in the yard of San Quentin. The fight was the result of a power struggle over the leadership of the Aryan Brotherhood, with which Beausoleil had become affiliated. The AB, which is believed responsible for more than a dozen fatal stabbings in various California prisons in the last few years, is the successor to several earlier groups, including a neo-Nazi organization. Its total membership is not known, but it is believed to have about 200 hardcore inmate followers, and it espouses many of the same racial principles that Charles Manson did. The legacy lives on. Of all the Manson family killers, only their leader merits special handling. In October 1972, Charles Manson was transferred to the Maximum Security Adjustment Center at Folsom Prison in Northern California. Described as a prison within a prison, it provides special housing for problem inmates who cannot be safely controlled in the general prison population. With the transfer, Manson lost not only all of the special privileges afforded those awaiting execution, he also lost his regular inmate privileges because of his hostile and belligerent attitude. Prison is my home, the only home I ever had, Manson often said. In 1967, he begged the authorities not to release him. Had anyone heeded his warning, this book need never have been written, and perhaps 35 to 40 people now dead might still be alive. In convicting him, Manson said, I was only sending him home. Only this time it won't be the same. 
observed San Quentin Warden Lewis Nelson before Manson was transferred to Folsom. It would be dangerous to put a guy like Manson into the main population, because in the eyes of other inmates, he didn't commit first-class crimes. He was convicted of killing a pregnant woman, and that sort of thing doesn't allow him to rank very high in the prison social structure. It's like being a child molester. Guys like that are going to do hard time wherever they are. Two, like Sirhan Sirhan, convicted slayer of Senator Robert Kennedy, his notoriety is his own worst enemy. For as long as he remains in prison, Manson will be looking over his shoulder, aware that any con hoping to make a reputation need only put a shiv in his back. That Manson, Watson, Beausoleil, Davis, Grogan, Atkins, Van Houten, and Krenwinkel will be eligible for parole in 1978 does not mean that they will get it, only that this is the earliest date they will be eligible to apply. The average incarceration in California for first-degree murder is 10 and a half to 11 years. Because of the hideous nature of their crimes and the total absence of mitigating circumstances, my guess is that all will serve longer periods. The girls, 15 to 20 years. The men, with the exception of Manson himself, a like number. As for the leader of the family, my guess is that he will remain in prison for at least 25 years, and quite possibly the rest of his life. In mid-October of 1973, some 30 prisoners in California's toughest lockup, Folsom Prison's 4A Adjustment Center, staged what was described by the San Francisco Chronicle as a peaceful protest against prison conditions. The man who used and championed fear did not participate. According to the Chronicle story, mass murderer Charles Manson is among the inmates in 4A, although prison spokesmen say he is not involved in this demonstration. Manson has been threatened by other inmates in the past, and authorities say he seldom ventures out of his cell for fear of being attacked. Captions A chilling 64-page photographic record of the victims, the killers, the evidence. The murders. 1. 10,050 Shallow Drive, a secluded cul-de-sac high above the City of the Angels. Until that night, Sharon Tate called it her love house. 2. First, the telephone wires were cut. 3. Fearing the gate was electrified, the killers avoided it. 4. Instead, they scaled the embankment to the right of the gate. 5. Later, on fleeing the premises, one of the killers left a bloody fingerprint on the button of the gate control mechanism. Still later, an LAPD officer pushed the button, creating a superimposure which eradicated the print. 6. Scale diagram of the Tate residence, showing the location of four of the five bodies. Parents Rambler was to the right, farther up the paved parking area that led to the gate. The guest house was located to the left, a considerable distance beyond the pool. 7. Stephen Earl Parent, 18, at his high school prom. A hi-fi enthusiast, he was working at two jobs to save enough money for college that fall. 8. Stephen Earl Parent, murder victim. In the wrong place at the wrong time, Parent was driving toward the gate when the killers arrived. He was the first to die. 9 and 10. After discovering Parent's body, the first officers proceeded up the driveway to the residence. They found the house and grounds frighteningly quiet. 11. Coffee heiress Abigail Folger, 25, and her Polish lover Wojciech Frykowski, 32. 
They had begun moving out of the Shallow Drive residence, but Sharon asked them to stay until her husband, movie director Roman Polanski, returned the following week. 12. Abigail Folger, murder victim. Her body was also on the lawn, a short distance beyond Frykowski's. She had been stabbed so often, her white gown appeared red. 13. Wojciech Frykowski, murder victim. Found sprawled on the lawn near the front door, Frykowski had fought hard for his life. He had been shot twice, hit over the head 13 times with a blunt object, and stabbed 51 times. 14 and 15. The walkway leading to the front door of the Tate residence. The pools of blood were mute evidence of the furious struggle that occurred here. Only on getting closer did the officers see the bizarre message the killers had left. Printed on the door, in Sharon Tate's own blood, were the letters P.I.G. 16. An American flag was draped over the back of the couch in the living room. On the other side, in front of the fireplace, was a scene so incredible it horrified even the most case-hardened detectives. 17. Internationally known men's hairstylist J. Sebring, 35, had once been engaged to Sharon Tate. According to some, he was still in love with her. 18. Beautiful honey blonde actress Sharon Tate, 26. Though featured in Valley of the Dolls, only in death would she receive star billing. 19. J. Sebring, murder victim. A bloody towel covered his face. A rope looped around his neck led to still another body. 20. Sharon Tate Polanski, murder victim. Eight months pregnant, she pleaded for the life of her child. Look, bitch, I have no mercy for you, one of her killers replied. 21. The loft over the living room. Before she was stabbed to death, Sharon Tate was hanged from one of the rafters. The rope, left behind by the killers, became an important clue. 22. Other clues included a pair of eyeglasses, three pieces of broken gun grip, and this buck knife found sticking up from the cushion of a chair in the living room. 23. The Folger Frykowski bedroom. Abigail Folger was reading when the killers came down the hall. Apparently thinking they were friends of the Polanskis, she looked up and smiled. 24. Sharon Tate's bedroom, as it appeared the morning after the murders. The bassinet atop the armoire would never be used. 25. Chased by one of the killers, Abigail Folger had attempted to escape via the door leading from Sharon's bedroom to the pool outside, but they caught her on the lawn. 26. The guest house at the far end of the estate. Hearing the barking of a dog and a voice saying, Shh, be quiet, the police surrounded it, arresting the only person still alive on the premises, 19-year-old caretaker William Gerritsen. Though charged with the five murders, he was released after passing a polygraph test. 27. Aerial view of the La Bianca residence, 3301 Waverly Drive in the Los Feliz section of Los Angeles. The house, formerly occupied by Harold True, 3267, is to the right. The killers parked where the vehicle appears, walked up the curved driveway toward 3267, then cut across to the La Bianca home. 28 and 29. Again, as with the five murders the previous night, the police found a number of bizarre clues. Death to pigs and rise on the living room walls, and the misspelled helter-skelter on the refrigerator door, 
all printed in the blood of one of the victims. 30. Lino LaBianca was sitting on the couch, reading the Sunday paper, when the deadly nightmare began. 31. The bedroom. Hearing the screams of her husband, Rosemary LaBianca began to struggle. Her assailants kept stabbing her even after she was dead. 32. Owner of a chain of grocery stores, Lino LaBianca, 44, seemed to have nothing in common with the Tate victims, and, despite the many similarities, the police quickly concluded the two crimes were unrelated. 33. Rosemary LaBianca, 38. A few days before her death, she confided to a friend that someone had been inside their home while she and Lino were away. 34. Lino LaBianca, murder victim. In addition to the multiple stab wounds, a knife and fork were found protruding from his body, and the word war had been carved on his stomach. 35. Rosemary LaBianca, murder victim. Wielding knives very similar to those used the previous night, the killers stabbed her 41 times. 36. Less than 24 hours after the discovery of the word pig printed on the front door of the Tate residence, one of the homicide detectives assigned to the case was told of a strikingly similar murder which had occurred in Malibu only three weeks earlier, in which the words political piggy had been printed in the blood of the victim, musician Gary Hinman. Even after the bloody words death to pigs were found at the LaBianca residence, he didn't feel the lead worth investigating. 37. Music teacher Gary Hinman, murder victim. He made the mistake of befriending his killers. 38. John Philip Hout, a.k.a. Christopher Jesus, a.k.a. Zero. Murder victim or suicide? The others present claimed he had been playing Russian roulette. Only the gun was fully loaded and clean of prints. 39. Aspiring actor and Spawn Ranch cowboy Donald Shorty Shea, murder victim. Like Sharon Tate, he was hoping for stardom and found death instead. His body has never been found. 40. Attorney Ronald Hughes, murder victim. His attempt to defend one of the Tate-LaBianca killers cost him his life. As revealed here for the first time, the slaying of Hughes was the first of the retaliation murders. The Manson Family Album 41. Charles Mills Manson, also known as Jesus Christ, God. Although it was never brought out in court, Manson bragged of committing 35 murders. 42 through 47. Burglar, car thief, forger, pimp. By the age of 32, Manson had spent 17 years, more than half his life, in prison. What happened to transform a small-time hood into one of the most notorious mass murderers of our time? 48. Charles Manson at the time of the Spawn Ranch Raid, August 16, 1969. A week after the Tate murders, all but one of the killers were under arrest on suspicion of car theft. All were released within 48 hours when it was discovered the warrant was misdated. 49. Following the October 10th to 12th, 1969 raid on isolated Barker Ranch in Death Valley, Manson was booked for grand theft auto and arson. Standing only five feet two, he hardly looked like a man who could and did command others to kill for him. 50. The most widely publicized photograph of Charles Manson. When it appeared on newsstands all over the world, family members were heard to exclaim proudly, Charlie made the cover of life.
51 and 52. Charles Watson, a.k.a. Tex, age 23, murderer. 53 and 54. Susan Denise Atkins, a.k.a. Sadie Mae Glutz, 21, murderer. 55 and 56. Leslie Van Houten, a.k.a. Lulu, age 20, murderer. 57 and 58. Patricia Krenwinkel, a.k.a. Katie, age 21, murderer. 59 and 60. Robert Bobby Beausoleil, a.k.a. Cupid, age 22, murderer. 61 and 62. Mary Teresa Bruner, age 25, murderer. 63 and 64. Steve Grogan, a.k.a. Clem, age 17, murderer. 65 and 66. Bruce McGregor Davis, age 26, murderer. 67. Lynette Fromm, a.k.a. Squeaky, age 20. Acting head of the family in Manson's absence, she was arrested in connection with the attempted murder of prosecution witness Barbara Hoyt and given a 90-day sentence. 68. Sandra Good, a.k.a. Sandy, age 25. The daughter of a San Diego stockbroker and a former student at San Francisco State College, she bragged that the Manson family had killed defense attorney Ronald Hughes. 69. Ruth Ann Morehouse, a.k.a. Weish, age 17. Arrested in connection with the attempted murder of a prosecution witness, she was released on her own recognizance, then failed to appear for sentencing. 70. Catherine Gillies, a.k.a. Capistrano, age 18. Her grandmother owned Myers Ranch. Manson's plan to hasten her inheritance was frustrated by a flat tire. 71. Nancy Pittman, a.k.a. Brenda McCann, age 18. She pleaded guilty to being an accessory in the 1972 murder of Lauren Willett, who, together with her murdered husband, James, may have known too much about the slaying of Hughes. Manson once designated Pittman his chief assassin. 72. Catherine Scher, a.k.a. Gypsy, age 27. Convicted with five others of armed robbery in a bizarre plot to hijack a 747, and obtain the release of Manson and the other family members. 73 and 74. A few of the Manson family children. Manson placed great emphasis on children because, he said, they had no egos and had not yet been contaminated by their parents and society. 75. At present, some of the children have been adopted. Most, however, are wards of the courts and live in foster homes. The court records on the children have been sealed. From Spawn's Movie Ranch to Death Valley. 76 and 77. Aerial photo of Spawn's Movie Ranch. Above shows the main buildings. From this ramshackle movie set, a world of make-believe, the killers went out on their all-too-real nightly missions of murder. 78. 81 and near blind, ranch owner George Spawn depended on the Manson girls to be his eyes, unaware they were also serving as ears for Charlie. Spawn is shown here with family member Gypsy. 79. During the August 16, 1969 raid on Spawn Ranch, sheriff's deputies arrested 26 persons. Only Manson hid under one of the buildings. From far left to right, straight Satan motorcycle gang member Danny DiCarlo, Charles Manson, straight Satan Robert Reinhard, 
and ranch hand Juan Flynn. 80. Manson family members and ranch hands alike were pulled in during the massive raid, which netted a huge cache of arms, including a submachine gun. However, a dozen buck knives, purchased shortly before the Tate murders, had mysteriously disappeared. 81. To reach isolated Barker Ranch, where the family hid following the Shea murder, it was necessary to go up this incredibly rugged dry wash. Only a four-wheel drive vehicle could make it, and then only if someone walked ahead and moved the boulders out of the way. 82 and 83. The submachine gun in its violin case and Manson's command dune buggy. In a special scabbard next to the steering wheel is the sword which Manson used to slice musician Gary Hinman. It was also taken along on the night of the LaBianca murders. 84. Barker Ranch. Manson gave its absentee owner one of the Beach Boys' gold records in return for letting the family stay there. Though in disrepair, the ranch was an oasis compared to most of Death Valley, even having a swimming pool. The family school bus, in the background, was brought in from the less rugged Las Vegas side. 85. Lookouts were posted in dugouts surrounding Barker Ranch, but the pre-dawn raid caught the family off guard. Among those arrested and taken to Independence to be booked were Gypsy, far left, and Katie, Brenda, Squeaky, and Sadie, far right. Standing alongside the Jeep is Little Patty. The police were still unaware the nomadic band was guilty of anything more serious than auto theft. 86. Entering the bathroom, Officer James Purcell noticed hair sticking out of a cabinet under the sink. Inside, he found Charles Manson. The cabinet measured only three by one and one-half by one and one-half feet. 87. Among the items seized in the Barker raid was a knapsack containing dozens of movie magazines and the lyrics of a number of Manson songs. A frustrated musician who failed to make the big time, Manson numbered among his targets those who had. Devil's Canyon is located across from Spawn Ranch, near Santa Susana Pass. Perhaps coincidentally, perhaps not, the Tate murders occurred just after 12 in the night. The Physical Evidence 88 and 89. LAPD fingerprint expert Jerome Bowen pointing to the latent print recovered from the front door of the Tate residence. To the right is the lift card he prepared. 90 and 91. Although only 12 points are marked here, a comparison between the latent and the print of the right ring finger on a fingerprint exemplar belonging to Charles Tex Watson revealed 18 points of similarity. LAPD requires only 10 points for a positive identification. 92 and 93. The location and lift card of the latent fingerprint found on the inside of the French doors that led from Sharon Tate's bedroom outside. 94 and 95. The latent and the print of the left little finger on a fingerprint exemplar belonging to Patricia Krenwinkel revealed 17 points of similarity seven more than required for a positive identification. 96 and 97. Following the clues in Susan Atkins's published confession, on December 15, 1969, a TV crew discovered the bloody clothing the killers had worn and discarded on the night of the Tate murders, over four months earlier. Officers from LAPD are shown placing the evidence in plastic bags for inspection in the SID lab. 98. 
the nine-shot, 22 caliber high-standard Longhorn revolver used by Charles Tex Watson to shoot Parent, Sebring, and Frykowski. It was found by 10-year-old Stephen Weiss on a hillside behind his home on September 1, 1969. Though the Valley Services Division of LAPD, located in Van Nuys, picked up the gun that same day, it was filed away under found evidence. 99. Between September 3rd and 5th, 1969, LAPD sent this letter, together with a photograph of the high standard model, to police departments all over the United States and Canada. They neglected to send one to their own division in Van Nuys, and it was not until December 16th, after persistent calls from Stephen Weiss's father, that the police discovered they already had the Tate murder gun. 100. The helter-skelter door found at Spawn Ranch. Although the words helter-skelter had been found printed at the LaBianca residence, its importance was missed. The People versus Charles Manson. 101. Prosecutor Vincent Bugliosi, chosen from a staff of 450 lawyers and assigned to the Tate-LaBianca case in November 1969, he personally gathered much of the evidence which led to the convictions and death penalty verdicts against Charles Manson, Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Leslie Van Houten, after one of the longest and most sensational trials in American history. 102. Ronnie Howard, also known by some 20 other aliases, the former call girl listened in disbelief as her cellmate, Susan Atkins, bragged of her participation in the Tate, LaBianca, and Hinman murders. Although Atkins first confessed to another inmate, Virginia Graham, it was Howard who first contacted the police. 103. Linda Kasabian, star witness for the prosecution. Ordered by Manson to slit the throat of an actor, the little hippie girl told him, I'm not you, Charlie. I can't kill anybody. 104. Witness Juan Flynn being interviewed by Prosecutor Vincent Bugliosi during a recess in the Tate-LaBianca murder trial. Though marked for death by the family, the colorful Panamanian cowboy lived to testify that Manson told him, Don't you know I'm the one who's doing all of these killings? 105. Kitty Lutzinger, girlfriend of killer Bobby Beausoleil, she told sheriff's investigators about Susan Atkins' involvement in the Hinman murder and inadvertently linked her to the Tate homicides. 106. Biker Al Springer. When he said Manson was responsible for the Tate-LaBianca murders, the detectives were skeptical. He vanished before he could share in the $25,000 reward. 107. Straight Satan Danny DiCarlo. He liked booze and broads, but not murder. The motorcycle rider linked the rope, the sword, and the knives to Manson, but suddenly hedged when it came to the gun. 108. Diane Lake, a.k.a. Snake. With the family since the age of 13, she began a new life after the trial. 109. Barbara Hoyt. Her cooperation almost cost her her life. The family's attempt to eliminate her by giving her an LSD-laden hamburger backfired, changing her to a helpful witness. 110. Stephanie Schramm. Manson found her in Big Sur and planned to use her as his alibi for the two nights of murder. 111 through 118. The Faces of Charles Manson. According to his disciple Squeaky, he was a changeling. He seemed to change every time I saw him. The story on page 1. 119. Monster or Revolutionary Martyr? 
The underground press was divided as to whether Manson was a sick symbol of our times or Christ returned. His cult still survives. 120. A rare example of Manson's sense of humor. He applied for a credit card while on trial for mass murder. 121. Another side of Manson is revealed in one of his doodlings, made during the trial. 122. The Bug. Prosecutor Bugliosi, as depicted by Susan Atkins and Leslie Van Houten during the trial. The three female defendants sketched, giggled, or looked bored, as witness after witness testified to their savage slaughter. 123. Prosecutor Bugliosi talks to reporters congratulating him outside the courtroom moments after the jury returned verdicts of guilty against all the defendants on every count of the indictment with which they were charged. 124. Manson's attorney, Irving Kanarak. The press focused on his bombast and missed his effectiveness. He fought as if he personally were on trial. 125. Charles Tex Watson fought extradition for months, then was tried separately. Though the judge referred to him as poor Tex, Bugliosi obtained a conviction and death penalty verdict against Watson also. 126. We're waiting for our father to be set free. During the trials, Manson family members conducted a vigil outside the Hall of Justice at the corner of Temple and Broadway. Left to right, Sandy, Weish, Kathy, and Mary. 127. I have X'd myself from your world. When Manson carved an X on his forehead, his followers did likewise. Later, again following Manson's lead, they changed the X's into swastikas. Left to right, Squeaky, Sandy, Weish, Kathy. 128. Following the guilty verdicts, Manson, Atkins, Krenwinkel, and Van Houten shaved their heads, as did the girls on the corner, who told reporters, you'd better watch your children because Judgment Day is coming. Left to right, facing camera, Crystal, Mary, Kitty. With backs to camera, left to right, Sandy and Squeaky. 129. Charles Manson on his way to death row, San Quentin Prison. With the abolition of the death sentence, Manson's own sentence was commuted to life imprisonment. Under present California law, he and the other Tate-LaBianca killers will be eligible to apply for parole in 1978. End of captions. The excerpts from the Beatles songs Blackbird, Cry Baby Cry, Helter Skelter, I Will, Honey Pie, Revolution, and Sexy Sadie by Lennon-McCartney are copyright 1968 Northern Songs Limited. All rights for the USA and Canada controlled by McLenn Music Incorporated, care of ATV Music Group, used by permission. All rights reserved. End of Helter Skelter, The True Story of the Manson Murders by Vincent Bugliosi and Kurt Gentry. Narrated by Ray Fouché. In the studios of the American Printing House for the Blind, Louisville, Kentucky, for the Library of Congress, December 1993. For special distribution, as authorized by Act of Congress, under Public Law 89-522, with the permission of the copyright holder and the publisher, a Bantam book, published by arrangement with W. W. Norton & Company, Incorporated, W. W. Norton & Company, Incorporated, 505th Avenue, New York, New York, 10036. End of book.